Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. Pour a cheerful toast and fill it, happy anniversary. But be careful you don't spill it, happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. Ten years, man, ten And welcome to the first of two 10th anniversary specials of Directors Club. And wow, I can't believe it's been 10 years. And I've recruited my two favorite friends to talk movies with. And you get one episode at the start here of the month and then another later in the month. But neither are director centric necessarily. First up, I asked the host of Supporting Characters to join me to talk about our newly revised lists of favorite films of all time, please welcome back the one and only Bill Ackerman. Thank you so much for having me back. And I will say that this will probably be a very director-centric conversation regardless. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously every film we discuss has been made by a director and will likely bring up the name of that director, of course. So, yeah, yeah. it was great talking with you about uh, Bob Clark last year. But it's been quite the run of guest spots with you over the years, in addition to the inception of your own podcast. Can, can you believe it's been 10 years? It's weird. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, you, it's funny because I was thinking about this. I mean, I bought the equipment uh, to be a podcaster myself, to be on your Nicholas Rogue episode. Um, I mean, I bought the equipment for that purpose. Um, and you were actually the first podcaster I ever met in person also. You were, it was like meeting Mark Maron when I met you in person <laughs> in New York because, because I listened to all of the episodes of Directors Club. So it was it was like meeting a celebrity. It's funny to think about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, there's been a couple of occasions where I've been at a film festival and I'll just be talking to somebody in line and then somebody will come up to me and be like, hey, are you Jim from Directors Club? And I'm like, this is that's just weird. That happened to me once, actually, uh, at a screening of uh, uh, Christoph my my uh, Christoph my car, the Ale- Alexei German film in New York. <laughs> wow, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's it's been weird just because. I mean, yes, it's been ten years, but we've taken a lot of breaks, <laughs> and you know, changed hosts at one point. So it's been a it's 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 a weird podcast in that I understand. That it may not, you know, ever reach the popularity of a of a Mark Maron show. Not that I ever expected that in the first place, but um, you know, movie podcasts and it's not going to become film spotting, and I'm fine with that. But you know, it, it's 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 we're only at episode 183, but if we include all the bonus episodes over the years, it's actually episode 275. And I hadn't thought like there were that many bonus episodes, but I guess it makes it about like nine or so per year. So I, yeah. I guess that makes sense. So it's it's a lot more episodes than just the, you know the director centric episodes, 
or the year end episodes that I label as, you know, episode number blank. And it's, it's just weird to think that at 275 episodes of this yeah. show and yeah. hours. I mean, some of them are quite long too. So it's yeah. definitely a lot of podcasting. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I always say this and it doesn't necessarily make it so, but I think the future of directors club is still up in the air when I complete my master's degree at the end of this year in 2021, because I'm, my goal is to obviously, uh, get a better salary and work, work my way up in the world of librarianship. Who knows that that's even possible. Uh, but it's more or less like financial stability has been a goal for a while now. And I qu- haven't quite gotten there yet. And so if it means I have to work more and podcast less, that that'll definitely factor into the plan of, I want a, eventually a two-bedroom, at least a two-bedroom apartment so I can have one bedroom dedicated to uh, having a music studio. Like, that's really the only major goal now that I'm like, yeah, if I meet somebody and have a family, great. But <laughs> if if I, if it's just me, myself, and I, then I just want another bedroom to make it into, like, the official, you know, studio where all my equipment is and I can just go in there and do what I do, whether if it's podcasting or making music, but... Yeah, I, I think ideally, that's a reasonable goal. Yeah, ideally. Um, but I, I want to keep the show going, and you're all guaranteed at least one more year. So uh, um, I'm hopefully I'm, I'm grateful for all of your contributions, and certainly your great show. Uh, is there going to be more episodes in the future? I imagine for I, supporting characters. I think character? so. I think yeah. so. I think you know it, it's funny because every time I take a break, I'm like, well. You know, maybe maybe I'll bring it back. I I've already got at least one or two people lined up for for this year, so it will be coming back. Um, but I I don't know. I mean, there's other things I want to work on, and there's only so many time, how many you know hours I have in the day. So we'll see. Uh, I I I it's not over yet, but I, I don't know. It, it could be stop and start like it has been in the last year or so. Yeah, and that's understandable. We got a lot going on, and certainly there's lots of movies to watch and movies to talk about. Uh, without further ado, I think it's time we should launch into our favorites. But first, really quickly, yeah. I know people are curious about the previous year. Uh, got a couple of emails, um, including one, <laughs> including one who's like. I'm assuming you're going to be doing a year-end episode, so here's my list. But <laughs> sad to say, that's not the case. Uh, and it's and it's and it's just basically because I, I don't know. 2020 really didn't instill me with a lot of passion. Uh, not that it was like a horrible year for movies. It was just a horrible year in general. And I also know that uh, you know I I definitely could have recruited somebody like Bill or another guest. But I, I don't know. I, I like the tradition of having Patrick come along. And he was like, hell no, I don't want to talk about 2020. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, it, we're just basically going to read, you know, a list of titles that, uh, you know, we enjoyed since, you know, honestly, I, I, I even wasn't that excited to do a favorite of 2020 episode. That's surprising um, that you didn't, because I know that you keep on top of new releases like very few people I know. I mean, did you... Did you have trouble narrowing it down or trouble coming up with a list that you really uh, like the films uh, all included? Um, You know, it's I definitely tried to keep up more towards the end of the year because of voting for the Chicago Film Critics Awards. Mm -hmm. And I tried to watch 
basically anything I knew that was going to get a lot of votes. Um, and I mean, there's still some blind spots. There's still certainly a few films, a few screeners I have, like One Night in Miami, Miami, um, Minari. There's a few more that I will, I'm still going to watch probably just because they're getting a lot of buzz. But I, I guess maybe it was just, I thought it was a pretty bland year in general that I was kind of like, eh, I'm not as passionate about the majority of these movies to talk about them for, for a few hours like I normally do. And I again, we had a lot of reasons <laughs> for 2020 as being a really crazy, strange, tumultuous year. But I don't know. The films themselves, for the most part, you know, I think there there are titles on there that I do love. Obviously, if I was able to come up with twenty five, I I I'm pretty happy with them. But yeah, how did you feel about twenty twenty? I mean, I mean, cinematically, or I mean, I mean, the, the year in general is the strangest <laughs> of my life. I mean, of course, I, I, yeah. I I, I think um, I don't know. It, it, it's weird because. I mean, having to experience it all at home and a lot yeah. of it on the laptop, I mean, definitely changed it uh, for me. I mean, um, it was it was strange to attend film festivals in my kitchen. And, you know, it, it was everything both pro and con that I always thought it would be. I mean, as far as um, a saved money, a saved time. If I'm watching some, you know, slow as molasses art house film, I could make a cup of coffee if I'm starting to fade, you know, and, uh, you know, th- there was, there was some perks to it. I mean, I could, New York film festival, I was watching each film in the morning with my morning coffee before going, you know, to going to work, quote unquote, you know, cause I work from home. Um, so it was, there were certain conveniences, but at the same time, I, I do think that films are best experienced on the big screen and like, yeah, free of distractions, like an absorbing environment for it, and to not have that at all, um, it I, I think it hurt some films for me. But um, you know, I still saw lots of amazing things, and uh, you know, I mean, it's funny, like something like Steve McQueen's Small Axe series of films. I mean, I don't know if some people consider that television or not. Even though, I mean, I saw three of them at a film festival. They're feature length films. They're not. Um, you know, connected. I mean, they're self-contained things. I mean, those are films to me. But um, you know, I I, I saw a lot of uh, you know documentaries that were just comfort food viewing, not necessarily things I would put on my list. Um, but you know, I, I I think this is not really my preferred way for it to go forward like this. I mean, I I, I haven't I haven't gone to see anything on the big screen since March, and none of those films really. Um, I think the invisible man was interesting, but I, nothing like wound up on my list that I saw that way. So everything is something I saw at home and it's just, I just never had another year like that. Yeah. I saw two films on the big screen, uh, first cow and phantom mm-hmm. thread. I think there were maybe uh, a couple more before that. Oh yeah. I saw Gretel and Hansel with, with Patrick before okay. it all went to hell. But, um, yeah, I saw the truth, which, um, all the guests uh, canceled because uh, they couldn't uh, book flights out of France any longer. Because <laughs> um, I think Juliet Binoche was supposed to be there, and and uh, you know it, it ended up being like the first warning sign. Uh oh, maybe this is going to be <laughs> something serious. Yeah, but, it's 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 sad. It's it's I don't know what to make of even this year, and I mean even somebody like Fauci, who I really respect, of course, he's 
I don't know, a little like January is going to be the worst month ever. And I'm kind of like, how do you know? <laughs> There's no way to know for sure. I mean, I, I know he's smart and he's scientific and he, you know, he's been, he's been right in the past, but uh, I'm trying to at least have some hope for this year in that like maybe by late summer or in the fall, movies will be on the big screen again, you maybe. know, at the very least. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, more people I know have gotten sick in the last 30 days than at, at the true. beginning. So I he might be right. I, I, I don't know. I try to think positively about it. I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing you can do but sit and wait, I guess, with this. But. So I'll go through my uh, list of 25 real quick here. And All like right. I said, I'm not going to go into any great detail about any of them. If I'm, I'm pretty sure most people know all about these titles, more or less, especially if you listen to film podcasts. Um, and I will start with number 25, and it's kind of sad that it's this low, uh, but it's still a movie I'm wrestling with, and that's I'm Thinking of Ending Things uh, mm. by Charlie Kaufman. And, you know, again, like I always expect his work to get at least in the top 10, but... There's just uh, still something about that ending that rubs me the wrong way. Um, number 24 is Time, the documentary mm-hmm. uh, available on Amazon Prime that I hope people will see. It's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, 23 is Wolf Walkers, a two, first of two animated films on my list. Uh, it's, it's The story itself is very simple. And, you know, at times you go, oh, that's just kind of like a cute thing for kids. But it, it gets really dark and it's it's. Uh, the, the the animation itself you talk about aesthetics and just admiring something on a pure visual level uh wolf walkers is pretty great in that regard hmm. uh, and number 22 is gretel and hansel uh which i don't know like i i guess i'm like i'm the only oz perkins super fan well i know patrick is too but i th- i just think everything he's done so far is especially on a visual level again very 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 impressive very creepy um, there are just things in this movie that I'll never forget. Um, very dreamlike imagery throughout. Uh, but I understand why people don't click with it either. It's 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 not a very satisfying movie and from A to B to C, and it's just kind of more of like a dream logic kind of a thing going on throughout. It's a fairy tale. I should check um, it out. I like his other films. I do too, very much. Yeah. Uh, 21 is Black Bear, um, Abhi Praza really probably her best role if you uh, if you're a fan of hers i recommend it 20 is um palm springs probably the the highest comedy on my list um again i love the time loop groundhog day conceit and uh this one actually does it really well and in a way that's uh surprisingly f- fun and funny and original number 19 is the assistant Whew, that's a heavy movie uh <laughs> especially to watch nowadays uh, 18 is the documentary Boys State. 17 is Swallow. Did did you see that one? Yeah, it was on my list last year because uh, oh, okay. I caught it at Fantastic Fest. Yeah, no, I like Swallow. I thought that was um, yeah. I, I, when I went into it, I was like, oh god, it's gonna be a gimmick film, you know. And I I, I think it really kind of uh, moves past that into something quite moving. But uh, it is, you know, I mean, and I don't want to even spoil the gimmick if you don't know what it is about. But I thought like, oh, when I when I heard the premise, I'm like, okay, well, I'll check it out. But I I was I was kind of thinking it would be a little hokey or but yeah, no, it's it it really stuck with me. Yeah, it's kind of got a salons kind of feel to it, but not 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 like misanthropic in any way. It's just it's 
it, it takes like yeah again like a really kind of unusual disorder and does something unique with it uh and yeah it's it was definitely surprising throughout number 16 is the vast of night which also made your list last year if i recall my number one last year yeah <laughs> yeah and uh it's yeah it's one of those that, I'll, that i it's one of those debuts almost like primer where you go oh i i'm on board for this whatever this director does yeah, I was surprised how many people had a mixed reaction to that one, considering that it was the word of mouth favorite at Fantastic Fest last year. And I'm guess, or two years ago now, because we're talking in 2021. But um, maybe, maybe it doesn't translate to the home viewing quite as well. But on the big screen, that thing was really uh, one of the nicest surprises I had at the movies, you know, in recent years. Yeah, great cinematography. Yeah. Uh, 15 is Kajillionaire, Miranda July's latest. Uh, very divisive. I've well, as most less, most Miranda July's work is. Yeah, yeah. I I I liked it, but it's not on my list. <laughs> yeah, I I I don't know about the ending. If I don't know if I, if I bought the ending, but I I kind of liked everything about it. Uh, especially the parents. I thought they were great. Um, it's funny. It's a funny movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, it's one that could grow on me more. I, I, I saw it the one time and I liked it without being blown away by it. Yeah. I definitely like the future more, but this one yeah. is, is, is still worth seeing. And 14 I, is a movie that has been number one on everybody's list. And I'm like, eh, maybe I need to see it again. Uh, Nomadland, of course, uh, Chloe Zhao's film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm not obviously I'm not going to say anything bad about it. I obviously was moved and I love Francis McDormand and again breathtaking cinematography and I can see why it's resonating with with so many people. I just I there's just something about the writer that I loved even more and maybe that's unfair to sort of compare the two, but at yeah, the no, same I time I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Number 13 is never rarely sometimes always mm-hmm. um incredibly m- moving and upsetting film at times that uh uh that uh, debut performance from well i know the director is eliza hitman but i can't remember the <laughs> the lead actress's <laughs> name right off the top of my head yeah. but who um number 12 is a movie that hasn't been on anybody's list that i've seen um i'll just tell people to look it up because again it's one of those where i don't want to spoil too much but it's called the swerve and uh i i you know, gave a really positive review to this. And a lot of people, I guess, were mixed for the most part. The ones I did, I know that did see it. I liked it. I, I, it's in, you know, my runners up list. I mean, I, I didn't like it the way you liked it, but I, I, it could grow on me. And I definitely, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I, I, yeah, no, I, I would, I would back you up on this. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any film that's sort of like, even if it's not not anywhere near in the same league as something like uh, Polanski's Repulsion, but is clearly influenced by it to some degree, just like a, a portrait of self-destruction in that intense way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I get behind that 100%. Uh, Eleven is Defied Bloods, of course. Spike Lee, you know, and he's on a roll lately. So uh, <laughs> number 10 is The Nest. By the great Sean Durkin, who is, I hope he works more because <laughs> he's great. And it, he almost treats like um, marriage as a kind of like a creepy horror film with the way the, the, the score is handled and the slow cinematography. Like there's just some really great 
moments in this film that will forever stick with me. And Carrie Coon is just one of my favorites right now. So. Yeah, no, I, I like that one too. It's on my list. <laughs> Speaking of Spike Lee, number nine is David Byrne's American Utopia, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a joyous film, very much along the lines of Stop Making Sense, and uh, yet very political. And certainly, you know, it's it's one that I wish I could have seen on the big screen with a bunch of people because. <laughs> Obviously, when they see Stop Making Sense, they all get up and dance and have a great time. So this would have been great to experience on the big screen. But I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad people can see it. Um, Number eight might be my favorite script of the year, and that is Spontaneous, which, uh, genuine surprise. I didn't think I was going to love it as much as I did. (laughs) But uh, I, I, I dug everything about it. I know people sort of harp on the third act where... You know, I'm not giving anything away, but it turns into a little bit of a different movie. It's more about grief and depression at that point. But uh, I stuck with it through the whole thing. I thought it was really good. Yeah, no, it's one of the nicer surprises of of, uh, 2020, you know, in terms of the movies. This was one that um, Travis Crawford recommended to me, and it seemed like such a departure from the kind of things he usually recommends to me, which tend to be a lot more grim (laughs) and uh, foreign. So this was um, something I was like, oh, maybe this is not just a a silly splatter comedy romance or whatever they are selling it as. And it's, I, I don't know, I, I think it's, word of mouth is already pretty positive on this one. I'm, I'm not sure that we're, I mean, we're just echoing a growing chorus of, of positive, uh, you know, words about that one. But yeah, no, I, I liked it a lot. It's on my own list too. Number seven is Sound of Metal. Um Again, it's, 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 it's sort of predictable about where things wind up, but uh, based on the performances and certainly the sound design uh, and just a really, really smart portrayal of what it's like to lose, you know, how do you respond to when you lose the number one thing that you hold near and dear, or at least how do you adapt to losing something like hearing? I can't imagine it. I... Watching this movie it was almost like a horror movie to me <laughs> because I'm like, I, as a musician, that would destroy me. I, I, I define myself by being able to hear and listen to people, too. So it's like, obviously, I know you can. And this movie shows that in a really empathic way. But whew, heavy yeah. stuff for me. Yeah, that that's not on my list, but that's a really good movie and one that I I will probably grow to like more over time. I think when I saw it, I... um. I heard like so, I, so much hype going into it. Like I already yeah. heard so many people saying it was like the best film of the year. It's impossible to watch movies like that. <laughs> yeah. People you know. should shut up. <laughs> don't, don't say anything anymore. Don't tweet about it or nothing. No, I'm, yeah. I'm kidding. It's, no, it's inevitable. It's just hard. It's just hard. You know, when, you know, everyone tells you in advance, like this is the best film of the year, get ready. And then it's like, well, impress me. And it's like, you know, it had, I seen that film, Without any context, you know, I, I probably would have been blown away by it. It's still, I mean, I, it's still very, like, creative. I've never seen a film you sound like that before. I mean, yeah. so it's definitely uh, one of the most interesting things I saw. Um, number six is one of those um, kind of personal gym movies of the year called 14, where um, just the dynamic between these, this this friendship between these two characters really hit home. Um, and just... Watching, you know, having a friend that, you know, is on a self-destructive path, but there's nothing you can do as hard as you try. Uh, that's I've been down that road and uh, it's it was really hard for me to watch at times, but 
it just really uh, one of the kind of like I think it's not it's not necessarily like Francis Ha or something, but a great portrayal of just female friendship um, and how f- difficult it can be to manage sometimes. Yeah, oh, totally agree. It's one of the my favorites of the year too. And Francis Ha is a good point of comparison because I mean it also has that uh, New York setting. Um, oh yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I'm familiar with this director. I think I'm friends with this director on Facebook now. Um, I need to check out all, all of his other work. And um, there's a particular actress that I just I, I'm really drawn towards. The more I see her, um, Tally Tally Madel Madel. Yeah, I know that I mean, uh, one of she's the brunette in the film, but I can't okay. remember. Yeah, I can't remember where I've seen her before. I th- I feel like she's just one of those indie darlings right now that I just uh, whenever she pops up, I'm like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. I, one of the um, one of my past guests on supporting characters, Abby Bender, is an extra in that movie too. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, number five is Pixar's Soul, which I don't. I wouldn't say I'm putting it in the uh, Inside Out up category or one of the other ones i love i love wally and toy story 2 there's there's at least like i'd say six or seven pixar movies that i absolutely love and this would be like number seven or eight uh and it's still really 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 good and it's got an incredible score of course from trent Reznor and uh atticus ross that really helps uh but you know it's 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 got the cute stuff for the kids but it's got the really heavy existential intellectual stuff for the adults it's got a nice blend of the of those two but um for someone for someone like patrick i don't know if he's gonna love it because it is it's from the same team that did inside out and it's very much along those lines so um i can understand people being mixed towards it it seems like that they are like they're not praising it to the way that they normally do but i still loved it i still i still found it moving I haven't seen it, but I it seems like um, it shows up on a lot of lists that I've seen. I, I think the word of mouth is pretty pretty positive on this one. I mean, um, I, I don't see most of the Pixar films. I, I did see Inside Out, but I don't I don't see. But I I think of them Pixar as being the uh, you know the the, the studio that uh, seems to reach critical and commercial you know heights you know more. Uh, regularly than anyone else making films in this current moment, as far as like films that critics take seriously and the audiences also make into giant hits. Um, yeah. So they, they definitely have like a cultural importance, but um, I, I wish I could have seen it. I wish I could have seen it on the big screen. I do love watching, you know, a feast for thine eyes, you know, <laughs> something like this is kind of something you want to be enveloped by at times just because of the worlds it creates. And, it loses a little bit of that when you see it at home, but at the yeah. same time, though, it's accessible for the kids now. So yeah. I hope people watch it, and uh, I, I I sure hope I know people have watched my number four, Moo, uh, First Cow, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Kelly Reichardt's. Uh, you know, Kelly Reichardt's one of my favorite directors, and she's never made a film I didn't like. And I, again, this is this is when you watch this, you're like ah. I feel relaxed. I feel like I'm just, in, you know, I'm in the world of Kelly Reichardt and I'm happy. Yeah. And I I'm enjoying like We might characters. be talking about her later, but, um, you think? yeah, I think so. If I know, if I know you, uh, you know, but yeah, no, I liked first cow as well. I, I, I don't always love everything she does. I mean, I, I don't hated any, 
out of her movies. But uh, th- yeah, no, this was, I, I thought this was one of the most um, enjoyable and accessible things, maybe the most uh, pleasurable film I've seen of hers. Um, and uh, it probably would have had, I don't know if that would have been her crossover film had theaters been able to show it, you know, because I think it arrived right as the pandemic kind of made that impossible but um i it's gonna have a life beyond this moment for sure oh, it, it has a kind of a cult following it definitely will you know and and the fact that someone even like my mom loved it you know just because oh those oily cakes look so good you know and just like little things like that i mean she was able to get into it um and you know she sort of figured out what happens at the end and wasn't because she doesn't like ambiguous endings where you don't like they <laughs> sort of end and like well i'm never showing her meek's cut off that's for sure yeah yeah but um number three is of course amy simon says she dies tomorrow which is a film that i understand people really not liking or not getting into and it's very abstract at times and it doesn't really spell things out in any way and it's kind of just a series of unfortunate uh emotional events i guess <laughs> amongst these characters as they experience anxiety it just sort of sort of happened to come out right as the pandemic hit um right as i you know had a panic attack for the first time in a long time and you know i just feel like she gets it i feel like she understands the complexity of anxiety and channeled it into this movie maybe in ways that people have found very frustrating because i keep hearing that people who do catch up with this is like they more or less have the a WTF moment um, with it. And I understand that, but I just happened to found, find everything about it pretty great. Yeah, I, I, I liked it, but I feel like I feel like a second viewing of this one would be necessary for me because I think um, the first time I'm just taking in what is or isn't happening. And I think sure. I'd, I'd be curious to see it without the element of surprise. Um but, yeah, a, a yeah. second viewing definitely helped for me too. Um, plus, you know, obviously when I I interviewed her, I just I, I just think she's a great director of television and film, and I want to see her do more work. And certainly, the idea of her doing, um, and you know, a, a, an all girl version of Stand by Me, I feel like we talked about that on one ep- on one, during one of our interviews would be really cool. And I, I don't know. I just, I want to see her work more. And clearly uh, this is, this film just came out at a very interesting time, not just because of the pandemic, but because of the allegations and all sorts of stuff. It just felt, it just hit more on a personal level. I don't know. It, 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 it did something to me like the reflective, like what she was going through at the time somehow in, is infused into this movie in a way that I can't even articulate or describe. And it reminds me of how I felt about upstream color. Like I couldn't articulate or describe my feelings watching that movie. And certainly it's going to come up later, but it's certainly not in the same position it was. And I, I don't think, I don't know if it's just because of the whole separating the art of the artist thing, but we'll talk about it when we get to it. <laughs> yeah. We might have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and number two, uh, no surprise, Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson. Jo- <laughs> Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is dead. Try to say that really fast a bunch of times. Um, <laughs> that was. I, when I don't see that make people's list, and, the, and I know people have seen it, I'm kind of like, what? I, I mean, I was. I'm again, like, because I lost my dad, that's going to play a role. But um, I don't know. Like, the. the 
both in camera person, the scenes with her mom, and then to see them incorporated in a different context here alongside her father and just sort of take this journey together. And it's a sh very short but sweet journey we get to experience. Um, I, I loved it. I mean, I think people don't aren't crazy about the surrealist aspect of it, of like, you know, him being in a dream like Wizard of Oz fantasy land or something like that. I think people find that kind of eye rolling, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this was a real tug of war film for me. Cause I, 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 I found myself so moved by the documentary aspect of it and constantly being taken out of it by the fantasy scenarios of his death. Yeah. Kind of. And maybe on a second viewing that won't be distracting, but for me, it just felt like, um, I was constantly being tugged out of something that was really emotionally gripping uh, in a way that I, 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 I really, I, and then I would get right back in and then right back out. And um, so it wasn't an uninteresting experience. <laughs> I mean, I liked the film, but I mean, that was my first impression of it was that, you know, there were things that had me on the verge of tears and then these things that felt like cute. And I just, <laughs> and it, it, it was just, it was, it was, it was just a very weird <laughs> I mean, I don't mind tonal inconsistency, and maybe it doesn't play that way on a second viewing if you know that that's what you're getting. I went into it knowing nothing, you know, so I just, um, that was my first impression of it. I mean, was that it, it had moments that were really impactful, and then parts where I was like, okay, well, this feels like... Um, like part of the pitch they had to to do to make this a movie as opposed to just a moving conversation between father and daughter. Um, mm. So I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I respect, you know, that it, it, it I, I know a few people besides yourself that loved it and I liked it, but I mean that if I'm honest, that was my first impression of it. And I think you can guess my number one because it might even be the same as yours. It might be like, if you, you, you don't normally rank yours, I realize, but um, yeah. it might be the first time we ever have the same number one. And uh, that would be uh, lovers rock. Yeah. Yeah, it is uh, my number one, and uh, it's the first time that uh, my number one is on <laughs> many, many lists as number one for a lot of people. Yeah, it's a, like I think on Film Spotting, three out of the four critics they had on, it was all number one, and uh, rightfully so because um, you know I, I'm I'm king introvert here. I don't I don't love parties, but. This made me want to go to a party. This made me want to dance, and I don't, I don't dance, <laughs> but yeah. it just made me want to hang out with a group of. Obviously, it's it plays differently at, at, at a very emotional time when we can't get together in groups and see a bunch of people all at once, um, you know. But even just hanging out one on one with people, I missed, and I don't get to do that to the extent that I used to. And um, it, it made me long for a time when, yes, you could just get together with a bunch of people, or you know once on a new year's eve i got together with four touring musicians and then it's like oh there's a house party over here let's go and we just go and we would go and we like dance to michael jackson and stuff and uh yeah. I, I this movie put me in a mindset of that but also had so much to say socio-politically and certainly with what's going on at the time and uh i i like i i haven't seen all of the small axe films yet i've only seen the first three and I've I've really liked them all, and but this one to me, it, it just it just hit on an, an emotional level, and obviously the, the sequence of the year involves um, 
that song silly games totally agree yeah i mean i usually have to consider a film for a while maybe rewatch a film like i i don't i don't fall in love with films easily i mean i like a lot of films but i don't i don't really love a lot of films right away um i just i don't know i'm, <laughs> I'm a little too jaded this was one i loved right away um you know like i knew before it was even over that it was not only the best film that i'd seen this year but one of the best films i've seen in the last 10 years and you know that's it's nice when that happens because it it doesn't happen a lot for me um and it's nice to see it resonate with so many other people and also that if you have amazon prime everyone has access to it like it's not some far off obscure hidden thing like you know an i olga hepnerova type situation where you know you hope that people can catch it one day in an art house <laughs> you know it's it's accessible and big and warm uh and you know i mean it it's i mean it didn't make my top 50 i'm not like that knee jerk <laughs> you know but it, it could it could wind up on a list like that one day for me i mean it was easily you know the film that i wanted to show everybody and in a year when i couldn't have anyone over <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? That's what I was thinking too. When it, when it was over, it was like, ah, oh, wouldn't it be great just to have, even just to have a few people over and watch this together. It's uh, yeah, it's just, and that, you know, and that final shot reminds me of days and confused. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like, a, it's a good hangout movie, you know, it is, it has a great soundtrack and, you know, I, I mean, we could, I mean, we could break it down for a long period of time probably, but yeah, it is a, uh, it is, just beautiful looking like it's an atmospheric film like it has a, a sense of mood time and place like it, production design is immaculate and it's funny because i don't think of steve mcqueen I mean, i've liked every steve mcqueen film that i've seen i really like shame a lot i wish more people remembered that one it seemed like it got overshadowed or you know maybe the sexuality was a little bit much for people but like i, I never thought of him as one of my favorite filmmakers and so it is kind of a nice surprise to see him make the best film of the year um you know, Have you seen the, all the other small axe films yet? I, ha- I haven't had time really, but I, I saw um, I saw two of them and uh, no two no, three of them rather. Um, and yeah, I I've liked everything that I've seen. Lovers Rock though was was uh, next level for me. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I'm looking forward to watching the other two. I think there's five yeah. total, right? Yeah. 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 Um, no. Yeah warmest most adamant recommendation i could make for a new film is is lovers rock and for your list bill we have to launch into another yearly tradition i i don't know how this happened um gosh it, maybe it's been a few years uh now well at least it's it, been a it couple. must, must well, be in 2018 i think it might have started well, it's funny because so. my first appearance on a podcast was you reading one of my top tens on Directors Club. And I always remember this because uh, uh, Patrick implying that I was crazy because I had a Hal Hartley film on there and you making a <laughs> grossed out sound because I had a Todd Salons movie on there. Like I've arrived. Uh, <laughs> and I don't even dislike Todd Salons that much, but... Well, it was it Dark been, Horse, which is yeah. not like one of the most popular movies of his, but I like it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think Patrick kind of caught up with it and liked it too. Um, but yeah, well, you'll, yeah. You're, you're guaranteed to have that sound if you have a Rob Zombie movie on your list. 
But, I've only um, had a Rob Zombie movie on my list once, okay. uh, and it's not this year. <laughs> Here's a, I'm going to do something different this time. Instead of just like acapella, uh, let's go, let's let's add an instrument this time. Oh, let's see. Another round. Ask anybody. Banana split. Bean pole. Beast clawing at straws. Beginning. Bloody nose, empty pockets. Born to be. Boys state. And city hall. Creams. America's only rock and roll magazine. Fauna. First cow. Fourteen. Ham on rye. I am thinking of ending things. Lovers rock. Mystify Michael Hutchins. The nest never, rarely, sometimes, always. The painter and the thief. Possessor. Premature. The salt of tears. And the sharks. Spontaneous. The stylist TFW no GF <laughs> Teddy time to the ends of the earth Tomaso the trouble with being born undying Villa Varilla I can't say that one for some reason <laughs> The Wild Goose Lake the Wolf House and the wolf of Snow Hollow. And finally, the woman who ran. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. That was a heck of a list. Um, you know, Possessor is one of those movies that I, I need to watch again because I, I don't know why. The first time I watched it, I was kind of like, eh. It didn't. It didn't grab me the way everybody loves that movie too. So yeah, I, I went into it really um, with low expectations because I just thought, oh, body horror from the son of David Cronenberg. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I thought it was really well made and really compelling and um, beautiful looking and interesting uh, in how it kind of resonates with Videodrome uh, sure. as far as sure. like the kind of programmed assassin kind of thing, but it takes it in such a different direction that, I mean, I wouldn't think that anyone would remake Videodrome, uh, but this feels like interesting companion to that film. Um, mm. And I just wasn't expecting, you know, I just thought, uh, you know, nepotism maybe put him in this position, which isn't really fair. And, uh, and I was happy to be proven wrong on that one. Yeah. I think when it was over, though, it was like, I think that's more of um, a, a disconnect for me, and I can understand why people love it, but maybe I'll watch it again sometime. Um, certainly, there are titles on here that I want to see. Like, I I keep seeing Bloody Nose Empty Pockets show up on a lot of lists. Yeah. No, I uh, I really like that one a lot. Um, I I don't know what to tell you that wouldn't serve as a spoiler as far as, like... Um I kind of hear, yeah, I kind of hear it, it walks a fine line between being fictional and 
documentary. And I know that this is a problem for some <clears throat> people, um, that they feel cheated that it isn't a documentary, um, but appears oh, to be one. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's really good, and uh, I think you'll like it too if you don't have that objection, which I know is a deal breaker for some because it feels like a documentary and positioned like one, but it's, it is acted. It is scripted. Yeah. And Ham on Rye looks like a movie I'll like. I think uh, you will like it. I mean, I don't want to oversell it to you, but I think that if you encountered that on a festival, it would probably be... It reminded me of... Um, this is not a horror film, but I, I some of the things I got out of It Follows, um, and it's not uh, quite that, but that's the thing I thought of. Um, it's funny, because I was thinking David Robert Mitchell when I saw the trailer. Yeah, like, I don't know if it was like a myth of American sleepover feel or something. But. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, that's it. That's a good comparison. It really does feel like one of his films to me more than anything else I could compare it to. But it doesn't. I mean, it is different from his films. But I mean, that's that would be a good point of comparison. Good. Um, yeah. Was there anything yeah. else you wanted to highlight before we move on to our all-time favorites? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think. Um, other music, uh, I think you might have skipped over with the song. Maybe I, or maybe you just did went I too fast. It? To I don't maybe know. Maybe I did. Oh, you're right. You know what? I didn't put that on the list. You're right. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, but that's that's a fun little uh, documentary that uh, I think is still on Amazon Prime, uh, included with it as of this. Uh, is that about moment. a record store? Yeah. Did you ever go there? Um, it that was like familiar. the coolest record store in New York City. Um, I must I have to- gone there. Yeah. I used to go there all the time um, in the late 90s when I worked in New York. Uh, but even when I didn't work in New York, it was like the one place where my friend James always wanted to go buy electronic music. And so, um, yeah, it was just surreal to see documentary, like be inside that store again. <laughs> um, but I think you'll like it. I, oh, I, yeah. No, I I went here with... Um... Elisa once when I visited. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah a yeah. long time ago. Long time ago. But still, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm looking at this and like, oh, God. Yeah, now I remember this place. It is definitely like Jim Nip <laughs> as a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised unless it has like fucking Jason Schwartzman in it going, I love records. <laughs> it does, does it have that too. <laughs> <laughs> of course it does. Of course it does. It has to have like Elijah Wood or somebody. No, Jason Schwartzman up. is in it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, Ugh, that guy and showing up in every music documentary ever. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I will say the sharks does not have shark attacks in it. It's a coming of age movie that is quite good. Um, mm. uh, I think, I think, um, like I think I said on the Bob Clark episode, uh, Tommaso is one of my favorites of the year. The Abel Ferrara film. Yes, um, I think, very good movie. Very good. Wild Goose Lake is a really good uh, thriller uh, that might not be in everyone's radar that I didn't see it on a lot of lists, but that's really good. Um, the Wolf of Snow Hollow was a really nice surprise for me because I, I, when it started, I'm like, okay, this is going to be like a too clever modern horror film. It ended up being quite funny and uh, in ways I was not expecting. Um, yes, agreed. And that uh, I need to see that director's other movie too. Thunder yeah, Road. me too. Yeah. Um, I did not grow up to be, I was not a, um, a big in excess person when I was a kid, but that Michael Hutchins documentary mystify, I think is one of the better 
music related really? documentaries mm, and i saw okay. a lot of them I, but i think that that one like i saw a lot of music documentaries last year that i liked as like you know like fast food movies like you know they 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 you know they're uh empty calories but they're you know they're nice in the moment but mystify actually feels like substantial as art maybe in a way that like um maybe uh not all of the you know bgs and beastie boys and the band and the swans and the go-go's and frank zappa like i mean some of them are better than others but i mean um that feels like i i learned something and it, it seemed like an interesting portrait of somebody that i mean i was aware of nxs on the radio as a kid but i wasn't i never owned an nxs record or anything yeah and um i, I know there are definite let me actually get my list up again but from letterboxd since i'm just now gonna post it um just a few titles really quickly uh that i think are worth your time even if they didn't make the top 25 uh baby teeth Mm. shit house which is a really interesting coming of age college movie that kind of reminded me of kicking and screaming a little bit uh, that's funny. It, that's what I wanted to see, and I I just never got a chance to to watch it. Really surprising. Really okay. well done. Uh, I think that guy's got a future ahead of him, uh, the okay. writer director, and he's really good in it. Uh, this movie called uh, blah, Alone, which you know, it's again like you could. There, there's so many revenge movies like revenge <laughs> where a woman you know is basically pursued by you know a cold-blooded serial killer of some kind and she has to escape him and whatever and so that premise has been done a million times for some reason this one really like it was like the hitcher to me all over okay. again only you know a woman being pursued and it's really unnerving at times but really effective um and uh, i was i was definitely not in the love category for Tenant, Promising Young Woman, uh, On the Rocks, and yeah, like those those are the ones like I think people are really praising a lot more as time has gone on, especially Promising Young Woman, which mm. I don't think, have you seen that yet? I haven't. I know Alexandra Heller Nicholas, that was her favorite film of the year, but- Oh, interesting. I, okay, I want to yeah. read, read about it then, because again, very divisive. I'm very much in the middle on it. Whereas I, I mean, most people are like, "Whoo, this is an incredible film," but I don't know why. There's just something about it that's still I'm, I'm wrestling with. It's one of Did those. Did you like it more or less than the Black Christmas of uh, recent <laughs> years? <laughs> that Black Christmas. I don't know why I like all these Black Christmas movies. I really don't. Like, I don't even think the two remakes are anything special. I just, I wasn't bored, and I was engaged by them, and I thought where they went was surprising each time. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I liked it. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they have something to say, certainly. And I just don't know if the execution was as effective for me personally, but it was a weird year yeah. <laughs> for a I lot mean, of reasons. The thing is with like these kind of lists in general, I feel like, um, you know, I, I need to live with a film for a while and rewatch it and talk about it and, yeah, uh, you know the, these kind of lists where you're cramming like dozens of films in a month, <laughs> you know, uh, to find the you know the the jewels that immediately announce themselves as your 
is your favorites for the moment and maybe, you know, for the rest of your life and maybe you forget about them in two years. Um, you know, it's always just a weird process putting these things together. I mean, I try to have a sense of humor about it, but it's, I, I think that if you made the list of your favorites from 2010 now, it'd probably be very different than the list you made at the time. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of which, um, you tell me, by the way, you tell me if you need a break at any point. Patrick and I did this, I think, at the very beginning of the show. Um, maybe when we after we did Cameron Crow and Rob Zombie, we did like a top ten, and that episode was actually lost for a while until uh, until Andrew James had it in his hard drive and was like, "Hey, that got deleted from the feed somehow. Here it is." Um, so that was like a, a lost bonus episode for a while, and then when Patrick and I were pretty much. Or at least Patrick was going to leave, I think. And it might have been for episode 100 where we just did a, um, was it episode 100? I don't know. Anyway, it's all getting confused. Um, but we did a, uh, we did a fav- fav- a top 50. We did our 50 favorite movies in 2015 or 2016. Uh, so it seems like every five years or so, I go to my letterbox list and I kind of revise this. Uh, and you know what I did this time? I just, I just fucking deleted it. I deleted, <laughs> I deleted it and I'm like, I'm just going to start from scratch. Um, see what comes to mind, see what still holds up, see what I consider favorites. Like, and as I was going through, you know, the movies that jump out at me, I realized I could make a list of about 200 more, um, easily. Yeah. Well, everybody that I talked to about this episode said that they couldn't do it. That they couldn't narrow it down to fifty, that it was just like a uh, like a cruel exercise for the cinephiles sure. that I talked to about this. And I, you know, I enter into this with the spirit of like, you know, this is this is a fun thing to do <laughs> for your show, but this is not like my fifty favorite films definitively, like some kind of serious thing. Like I think maybe the the top ten or five or whatever, like you know, would probably re- reasonably be my favorites today, but. Uh, this list is, you know, missing hundreds of films I love. Because <laughs> at one point on Letterboxd, didn't you have like a list of 400 movies or something? Like Four- that you consider, consider yeah, yeah. to be favorites? When, when I made a list of favorites, it was like some like 400 films or something crazy that was just like not of any use to anybody. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I, when I came up with a list of 50 for you, um, I then filled two sides of a loose leaf paper with directors only of films that like (laughs) are missing entirely from this list. And I made a rule for myself that I was only going to give each director one film so that like someone like that's actually hard for me. That's actually hard for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, there are definitely directors where I struggle with it because, you know, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them when we get to them. But I mean, it was a thing where, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this a lot because I, I, I told you before we started recording earlier that, um, you know, I, I wrote down how old I was at the first time I saw every one of these films. 
um, just to see as a test, like how much of this reflects who I was as a teenager or a 20 something. And a lot of it is films that I saw between the ages of 15 and 29. Um, You're probably right. Looking at my list. Like there, there are a few titles that are kind of brand new as a result of the podcast or just watching random things throughout the past 10 years. But I, I think the majority, yeah, that's very true. I mean, Teenage years is where I started reading books about directors and reading books like cult movies, Danny Perry and reading Roger Ebert, you know, weekly reviews. And, um, you know, where I went from being a kid that liked movies into quote unquote cinephilia and, you know, going to college and having film clubs and working in movie theaters and working in video stores and absorbing it like, you know, in that time of your life where you're like most open to having your mind blown all the time. I mean, that those are the films that really have stuck with me in a lot of cases. And it's funny because I experienced so much world cinema, you know, in the last, you know, uh, 20 years since then, um, you know, uh, going to festivals and working on Blu-rays and meeting all the, all of my favorite film writers, you know, over the course of doing supporting characters. And I see a lot of amazing things every year and, it just, I don't know, like, but very few of them wind up on a list like this. And I don't know if it's just um, nostalgia talking, because I, I, I tend to be a little bit, I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to I, I, there's not a lot of films from my childhood on this list. You know, like, I don't, uh, I don't know, like, I don't really want to, like, hold on to the past, but I just, I'm, I, I, as a test of myself, I was aware of that that trend and yeah how like a lot of it comes from films made between 1971 and 1984 you know like i have definitely like sweet spots and yeah i love a lot of world cinema but it's also very heavily american very heavily genre films (laughs) i think patrick mentioned patrick and i mentioned that last time when we did this is like yeah we do love foreign films don't get us wrong but (laughs) yeah majority of these are american because we are american well, yeah, but I mean, I mean, if I was asked to give a list of 50 French films, it'd be a lot easier. A list of 50 Japanese films. Like, I mean, you know, I, looking at my list, it's like there's no Westerns, there's no musicals, there's no martial arts films, there's no silent movies. And it's like that stuff is all great. You know, it's just, you know, it's just I only had 50 slots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I obviously I, I expanded my letterbox list to 100 because mm-hmm. I, that's what I do. <laughs> I always say, okay, it's going to be a top 50. No, actually, it's going to be a top 100. Um, and I'm leaving it as a top 100 um, in in kind of like conjunction with my uh, – the, the, basically the podcast that's responsible for Directors Club, Film Junk. They mm-hmm. just went and did a revision of their 100 favorite films. Each of the hosts did that. Um, and I'm keeping it at 100. Even though, like I said, there's, it could be an easily a top 300, of course. There's several titles where I'm like, I can't believe I'm leaving this off. Uh, but, yeah, like, it's arbitrary. And it, a lot of this is, you know, place and time. Um, like, d- did I recently rewatch this? Um, and s- in some cases, I'm sure there's going to be a title that you'll say that I'll be like, God damn it! Why didn't I remember that? Because that's happened to me before when other people are making lists. I'm like, yeah. oh, that title that's a, of course why didn't i it's because i didn't own it or i didn't log it for some reason there's so many factors that go into making a list and at the same time i acknowledge ranking art is completely silly um it's it's you can't say one movie's better than the other in some cases and i don't 
you know, even hold near and dear like, oh my God, this is the definitive top 50 of for me either, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, and there's things like like Satan Tango, Bellatar's seven and a half hour Hungarian <laughs> epic. One of the most memorable movie going experiences I've had as an adult, but I haven't seen it since because it's never, it had a fastest DVD. It's coming out restored on Blu-ray, I think in a couple of weeks, but um, like I wouldn't be able to talk in any way about why it moved me just it's just a memory i have but i mean does that belong on the top 50 i don't know i mean like there's there's so many examples of things like that where it's like i had you know a memorable experience with the film but it's not like a habitual rewatch type thing either and you know you know i i i return to so many coming of age movies or slasher movies or things that are like our comfort watches but i Mm -hmm. didn't want the list to be just overrun with the things that you put on when you have guests over, you know, is like, you know, and, but there's plenty of that too. I, I don't know. It's, it, it, I, I was finding myself that like the more I overthought it, the more <laughs> this became not so fun. And I thought, well, let's just, let me just put down 50 and I have a conversation with Jim and that will be the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Don't take it too seriously. You know, don't, don't become Charlie Kaufman in adaptation and just like start sweating over a typewriter over it. Uh, yeah. Cause that, yeah, it's, it, it is what it is. I mean, I, I look at this list and I'm like, well, clearly things like Groundhog Day, Midnight Run, Sneakers should all be on here because I've watched those movies probably more than most movies. Yeah. Uh, just because, like you mentioned, the comfort watches where you're just like having a bad day or you're feeling under the weather or something and you just pop on a favorite that you know practically by heart and you enjoy spending time with those people. Um, are they all time great movies? To some people, they might be. And to to you, they they are in just their their rewatchability. Yeah. But they didn't make the list either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In terms of all time great movies, I would say that my list wouldn't be confused for that. And yeah. uh, you yeah. know, there there are plenty of better films. I mean, you know, even things like like I you know, I will tell you, like Casablanca, It's a Wonderful Life, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like these films don't need me <laughs> to tell you how great they like everyone knows them. <laughs> And I like them as much as everybody else, but I just, I only had 50 slots. <laughs> of course. Yeah. No, 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 you know, no Citizen Kane. Yeah. No Casablanca. You know, there's, I, well, no Godfather, actually. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, there's, um, there's certainly directors like we mentioned that, hey, if you even want to read that list off, I'll let you. But <laughs> I'm just saying uh, yeah. there, there should be. There should be De Palma. There should be Cronenberg in my top fifty. They're just not there. They're lower down. David Cronenberg was the one that I le- and Ingmar Bergman were the two that are not on my list. That it really, I really agonized over it. <laughs> but I just, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I mean, I like them as much as anything on this list. It's just, you know, uh, and there's st- like you mentioned, there, there are still blind spots. I still need to see a lot of Bergman. I still need to see a lot of Tarkovsky. I still need there's- to see sneakers. <laughs> I've never seen sneakers. Oh my god, you haven't seen sneakers. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that 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 can happen at any point. And certainly uh if you mention a film on your list that is somewhere on my list, like even if it's in, you know, number one hundred or whatever, I'll I'll bring that up. But yeah, at the same time, what we do and kind of what we did last time, if memory serves, is as individuals we go through our fifty through twenty-five rather quickly. And then once we get to 25, we go back and forth. Okay. So I guess since it's my show, 
<laughs> I'll go first with my 50 through 25. Um, and again, it's just, this is like there, there's certainly titles even coming up on the lower end here that you would think should be in the top 20 or whatever. But at the same time, it's just these are all five star movies to be more or less, you know, and it's like I think there are at least maybe 50 more. Uh, and I, it, like I said, it's kind of crazy to try and just organize it all. Like it becomes one of those things, even with letterbox where I was like, I gave this many movies, five stars. I don't know if that's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> I was going back and changing some movie title, like, you know, some movies that I would give five stars. I'm like, eh, this is actually four and a half. No, this one's flawed four and a half. So it's like kind of this ridiculous process of like, this is actually just killing time. I'm not, this doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I don't know how many of these films are five star movies on mine. I mean, to me that, you know, doesn't even. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, even yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and ratings, all that stuff is silly. I just do it out of habit. I, I think it's one of those things where the reason why I do it is not because like I have a absolute hundred percent vested interest in ranking or rating art. It's just, I've been doing it for so long. Well, <laughs> That's like, to, it feels weird not to do it. Well, I talked to Justin DeClue about this on supporting characters because it does help you know, raise awareness of films that you like for people that, you know, if you rate something four stars or more, I mean, people might be more inclined to check it out. And this is help. This is helps the underdogs of cinema. I mean, this is a good reason to do it. I just, what I found was that like, um, I, it was changing how movies played for me when I was thinking about how I was going to talk about them or rate them for other people that I didn't know as I'm watching the movie. And it was just kind of, uh, affecting my enjoyment of just watching movies for pleasure <laughs> but yeah. maybe maybe i'll get out of that i mean i just was overthinking it a lot yeah and some people just use it as a a diary and they don't rank they just like i just watched this today that's it you know yeah and maybe I, i'll start doing that i just i just haven't <laughs> yeah i think it's more for the curious and certainly pe- there are people out there like once they become a fan of your podcast mm. they will follow you and or at least like go, hey, I want to know what you're watching. Oh, people <laughs> because follow like me. Your... Yeah, people follow me all the time, and I haven't updated it like really since like I think 2018. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and it has to be because of the podcast stuff. But it just I feel bad for them. I've had like two people write me like, "Are you going to ever update this?" I'm like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, don't feel pressure. That's for sure. Just do it when you want to do it. Do it if you, you feel inclined. Yeah, I, I really give props to Patrick for writing even just two sentences on every movie, because I I I don't know why like for me just like sitting down and disciplining myself to write about every single thing I've watched, it doesn't turn into a chore, but it's just it, I it's hard for me to articulate most of the time into well, words. Well, it's funny because like <laughs> I I wish that I had you know Patrick's discipline a, but b um, I forget a lot of the films that I see. Um, over yeah, time. even after yeah, even after like a day, and yeah, then like the next day, I'm like, oh, I yeah, I did watch that, but I don't remember every detail either. Yeah, like there's gonna be films that you talk about that I haven't seen them in a couple of years, and I won't have anything interesting to say about them. Not that I necessarily have anything interesting about any of these films, but maybe you know, I at least I at least know how I feel about them. But it's like like um, plots just go into thin air for me. Like, sure. You know, it's like, I remember moods and impressions. And I was thinking about that, looking at this list. A lot of times the films that I return to, uh, offer environments that I like to revisit. 
it's not even like the story because there's no suspense when you go back to it a second time. I mean, what's going to happen? Um, it's just, do you like the characters or do you like the environment? Cause it's usually one or the other. It's not always both. <laughs> I think you paraphrased Paul Thomas Anderson a little bit there because, um, there was a, a Q and a or an interview he had where he talked about, I don't ever remember plot. I just remember how I felt watching the movie or the actors and a gesture they made or the environments that they're in. And all that's true. I mean, maybe, I mean, I I think that's one of the criticisms Patrick has had about Paul Thomas Anderson movies is that he's not the strongest writer, or at least in terms of a story, A to B to C does it satisfyingly or, you know, I, I disagree with that, but but, but it's also I, hilarious that because I, I think that Patrick is you know like us a fan of Robert Altman who is not really someone that prioritizes plot. True. So yeah. I mean, but maybe just that gesture towards plot in Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't work for Patrick. I get it. I mean, you know, no, I do too. I do too. I definitely am not. You know, it's it's gotten to the point now where like obviously people know where we disagree. Uh, so. <laughs> it's a good place to start with my number 50, which is uh, Robert Zemeckis' Contact. Mm. And uh, it's a film that, again, my my own personal experience of it, my own personal narrative plays into why I love it so much. But I'm, I'm it, part of me is, puts it higher than I maybe normally would because I, I don't like this whole anti-Zemeckis click out there <laughs> where it's just like, Oh my God, he's so schmaltzy. Oh my God, his his song cues are terrible. Oh my God, he spells everything out. And sometimes that's okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, even even a movie that I don't, I'm not that crazy about, like Flight, where that all that is very apparent. Mm-hmm. There's so many things in that movie where I'm like rolling my eyes. But I'm mm-hmm. like Denzel rocks in this movie. I don't care. You know, yeah. Well, he's so, always good, though. Yeah, yeah. Of course, and it, and it's not a great movie, and Zemeckis has definitely had ups and downs, and I can acknowledge that. But to me, Contact is one of those. Um, everything comes together in a very satisfying way for me, and a lot of that has to do with Carl Sagan's sensibilities and what he believed in. Um, he believed that there is life out there, obviously. But he mostly believed in humanity and the fact that we should learn to connect here together on Earth. And I think that's what the ultimate message of that movie is to a degree. And I think that that disappoints people who want close encounters or a movie that's specifically about alien contact. Oh, yeah. I never even. Yeah, I I didn't know what the objections were. I actually re-rented it the other day because I knew it was going to be on your list. And I had only seen it once before. Um, and I wasn't sure if the reason that this film meant so much to you was because of the uh, father-child kind of dynamic. That's definitely to, there. Yeah, that's definitely um, there. Or the or the, the the philosophy behind it. it sounds like maybe a little bit of both. I just I like science versus religion, even though God, yes, I know this movie spells it out left and right. Like that judge at the end of this movie talking to Jodie Foster, the way he says, we have to take all what you're saying on faith. (laughs) Like the way he says it, I'm like, I can acknowledge how silly the execution of this is, but I find Jodie Foster's performance in this so moving and her conviction so strong. And just like, 
maybe it is because it's Jodie Foster and the fact like I can I can also acknowledge that the the romantic element here is weak. I can acknowledge that flaw. Yeah, Jodie Foster <laughs> works that role like a nine to five. I mean, she definitely puts <laughs> everything it's into so that good. character. Um, and you know, the Matthew McConaughey romantic plot. I, I, to me, it just, it just felt like, um, like they're not taking any chances in this being an uncommercial film that they're gonna throw this in because they want everything to be as broadly accessible as possible, even though they're. It's it is a film that is like foregrounding the philosophy the philosophy angle um, more than you know Close Encounters Alien Spectacle, um, you know I I, I I I'm not sure how I feel about kind of, I I don't feel like strongly one way or the other about it. I mean it's I I found it entertaining as I was watching it like I didn't go into it expecting to love it because I don't I remember like when I saw it the first time like I knew I was dating a girl that loved it and I'm like okay well I'll check it out but um, what's her number. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it to you off air, but okay. the, uh, you know, but you yeah, know, I, I, I think Robert Zemeckis is probably going to have his, you know, he'll have his day. Cause I, I think there was a retrospective on his work in New York at like a couple of years ago. And it, people, people come back around to directors like, that are popular entertainers. I mean, Spielberg went through that many times, <laughs> you know, as far as like falling in and out of fashion. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I definitely know some Zemeckis haters. I know some Zemeckis. Fans. Oh Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know so many, and it drives me nuts. Like, but I mean, I understand why. It's just like even even the walk and Marwin. Like, I think they're incredibly flawed movies, but they're interesting still. Yeah, the and maybe it's just because I'm a really, Ze- yeah. Maybe it's because I, I'm a Zemeckis fan that I find them interesting. But still, I think I think just doing any kind of big scale populist entertainment that isn't connected to a branded franchise is kind of interesting to me at this point just because everything feels like some pre-existing intellectual property commercial <laughs> and his stuff isn't usually that um, yeah so I, that's kind of something agree. i mean i mean granted, i think he's I mean, his a weird film- sub- his, i think he's a weird subversive dude and i know we had that conversation on the zemeckis episode with eric childress like i didn't i've I've always said that Forrest Gump to me is just a, a silly little fairy tale that I don't take seriously. Some people see it as this big political statement. Yeah. And Eric Childress found it to be a satire because he feels that Zemeckis is very subversive. And I never really considered it until, yeah, I think later down the road as I'm watching all of his work, I do think he's kind of weird and a subversive guy. And it's like, you know, even something like Back to the Future does have an incest element to it you know yes well i mean back to the future was the one where spike lee you know was upset because it was like the white fantasy of like white people inventing Mm -hmm. rock and roll like i mean everybody has like uh readings of his films as being more reactionary than they may or may not be i don't know i mean forrest gump i definitely subscribed to that um conservative reading of it for a long time i haven't seen it since the 90s but i remember in 94 it was kind of positioned against Pulp Fiction as like those were the two big Oscar and awards type films. Pulp Fiction being like the hipper ironic film and Forrest Gump being the uh, sincere, you know, earnest emotional film. And I know that Tarantino later, you know, kind of sided with Eric Childress as far as like seeing yeah. Forrest Gump as more satirical than a lot of people receive it to be. I haven't seen it in 
oh, you know, 20 so, so years. So I can't really speak to that. But I mean, when it was out, I mean, that was my memory of it was that I thought that there was something to the um, the reading that it was like offering this kind of conservative viewpoint. But maybe it won't play that way now. I don't know. But uh, that's how yeah, I when I first saw it. When I, when I first saw it, I was like 17 and didn't have the brain capacity, I guess, to really <laughs> see it that way. I just thought it was silly and kind of fun. Um, yeah, yeah. And just like how it incorporated all these little things into pop culture. And I never really thought of it as a statement kind of a movie until everybody started perceiving it that way years later. It's like, I really think that was like the dawn of the think piece where I was reading suddenly all these interpretations of Forrest Gump as being like, oh, man, this movie is really like, conservative and blah 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 and like i'm okay (laughs) i mean you can you can certainly read it that way you can read any movie any way you want well and there are plenty of films on my list that have been read as negative harmful movies (laughs) yeah so we'll talk about them i guess as we go but yeah no uh we won't talk about um we won't talk about all the movies from 50 to 25 the way we have with Contact. Um, <laughs> but it's just be because like episode. I'm really defensive of Zemeckis and I I I and again like there is personal bias. Maybe there's like, you know, an implant that he put into my brain inception style when I saw Back to the Future for me to basically like everything he does from that point forward. I haven't loved everything he's done from that point forward, but Contact is one of those that I will always love and always have an emotional response to and really do think it has some interesting things to say that are conversation stimulators with people uh, in ways that like not every mainstream kind of big budget science fiction movie does Uh, similarly to a movie coming up soon enough I'm sure yes but uh, number 49 for me is kind of like a successor to James L. Brooks and the things I love about his work, and that's Living Out Loud by Richard yeah. Lagravenez. I believe he direct wrote and directed this one. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, Holly Hunter is uh, like a goddess in every way. Like her acting in both this and broadcast news is among my favorite acting of all time. And I just, I love the idea of what this message, the message of this movie ultimately becomes is that it's okay to be single and alone. It's okay. You're going to get through it. You know, it's because most romantic comedies are about finding the one. And this one isn't that at all. It's really like, you're going to have connections with different people. You're going to have friendships with different people. And that's cool too. That's what's great about being alive. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I love this movie too, and I, 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 I was gonna try to rewatch it before we recorded because I, I know that you are a fan of it, but I just ran out of time. But yeah, I've seen it a couple times over the years, and it is one of my favorite Holly Hunter performances, and um, I guess a nice little sleeper that doesn't get nearly uh, as much attention as you know, uh, you know, something even like something like broadcast news, let alone you know her, like the piano or something. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like. Um... I think Colin Suter posted on his Facebook page. There's a slew of movies from the late eight or from the late nineties that got a a DVD release, but haven't been put out on Blu-ray. Certainly a lot of new line titles, but uh, living out loud, simple plan. There's, there's like a slew of movies. I'm like, why aren't these out on Blu-ray from this period? 
I mean, I, from what I understand, I mean, Warner Brothers might even be slowing down their Warner Archive line. Um, I'm hearing hmm. whispers of that. And so I don't know if that makes them more amenable to licensing things to the boutique labels. I mean, they do a little bit of that, but not a lot. I mean, I think they're licensing to Criterion and Arrow. Um, and so those kind of labels are cherry picking like certain kind of hip titles. Something like Living Out Loud I don't know, I mean, if they slow down their own Warner uh, archive line, how they would handle that one. I mean, maybe because Holly Hunter, it's, you know, critics-friendly film, but it's not like a, um, I mean, something like Crash, you know, which I know you and I disagree on its merits, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing because it has that kind of hip director thing will wind up through the boutique labels. But something like Living Out Loud, which is just, a you know, an enjoyable comedy drama. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that they're all thinking about things in terms of the streaming uh, now. And so a film like that could conceivably slip through the cracks. And uh, the next movie on my list mm. <clears throat> is um, one I discovered because I assigned it to our um, yearly uh, tradition of the Secret Santa project <laughs> where we have it on Still Watching the Skies where every year I believe it's um, it's – uh, five people all select a movie, Secret Santa style, and gift it to one another. And then we have to figure out who gave what to whom, mm. which is a lot of fun and something I look forward to. And this was a movie that I had been meaning to catch up with for, I don't know, maybe 10 years and finally got around to it. I wanted to watch it again before recording this so I can say a little bit more. But right now it sits at 48 with the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Oh yeah. Louis Benwell. I haven't seen that in a little while, but it's classic. That one really surprised me real. Like it was so weird and so surreal and so funny and just it's, like, yeah, really funny. Oh, I, I loved everything about it from scene to scene to scene. And I now want to invest more time into checking out his work i did see the one with the party where that they can't leave angel yeah 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 yeah. that one's great um almost feels like a run like a like a prelude to this yeah different way yeah totally i mean you and i talked about doing a director's club episode on him a long time ago and he's funny because you know he's got such distinct periods you know between the the salvador dali collaborations and then the mexican melodramas and then the the French films and uh, you know, Belle like du jour. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a variety of uh, you know, you I mean Los Olvidados and I mean uh, even go back to Unchen Andalou. Yeah. Um, he's one of the major figures. I mean, he's not on my list at all, but he's, I mean, he deserves every, uh, every accolade. <laughs> and uh, number 47, we're not going to say, hardly anything about because we talked about it for i don't know 45 minutes once that's paul schrader's blue collar oh yeah yeah and did a whole episode recently with sergio on it so i don't need to go and talk another 20 minutes about it but um it's a special film now more than ever um 46 is a movie that i always say like okay i don't know if this is my all-time favorite comedy or not but it's 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 right up there it's always going to be in my top 50 and that's David Wayne's wet hot American summer. Yeah. Um, there's just so many moments throughout that entire movie. Like nothing makes me laugh harder than, uh, Janine Garofalo and Joe Latrugio destroying an entire cabin at one point. 
uh, like just breaking the phone, breaking the lamp, uh, throwing things across the room and screaming at the top of their lungs. There's sort of a weird manic energy that uh, only David Wayne can do in ways that I feel are strangely sweet while being absurdist. And uh, pretty much everything he does has made me laugh. And I, I had the pleasure of telling him that once. And including on a, a recent film spotting trivia um, session where they get together on Zoom now and play trivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I told you about that. Yeah, I think I heard it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I still can't get over that actually happened. So um, Hot American Summer is probably my favorite comedy of all time. I think, I don't know. If th- there's definitely comedic elements to some other films on my list coming up, but straight like weird comedy that's that's it for me although i do appreciate a lot of other uh titles like walk hard step brothers um even burn after reading <laughs> which has crept up over time for me um but yeah in, ter- in terms of my brand of humor that's it right there in a nutshell for 90 minutes yeah, no, I, I, I think I, 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 I mostly associate David Wayne with you because you, you, you know, you make no uh, secret of your love of his comedies. I, I remember Wet Hot American Summer, uh, when it came out, I did like it. Um, but I, I don't really have a sense of his larger body work. Did he do um They Came Together? Yes. Yeah. So Which was some, great. Yeah, I've seen some of his films since then, but I think Wet Hot American Summer is the only one I've ever gone back to. Um. And yeah, I yeah. The only one I was disappointed in was when he tried to do like a biopic, which I believe was on Netflix. Uh, it was about the guy who created National Lampoon. Yeah, it wasn't. It's a stupid and futile gesture. I think that's what it was called. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I haven't I think seen so. that. Uh-huh. No, it's pretty blah. Um, I think it stars Will Forte as the guy who created National Lampoon. Okay. Yeah, no, but it wasn't very it. funny. And good. Um, number 45 is an obvious choice and one of those that you'd probably be expect to be higher. Again, maybe it's because I'm not as angsty as I used to be, but um, Pump Up the Volume by Alan Moyle. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't need to talk about that for 90 minutes either because I have many, many times. No, yeah. Uh, it's not on my list, but it's one I've seen more times than I can count. Uh, I, I really like it a lot. And uh, I showed it to somebody uh, only a couple months ago and they loved it Woo-hoo! too, so... Yeah, yeah. Right. amazing soundtrack too. Um, something I wish that would get re-released. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but uh, uh, anyway, number forty-four is uh, the killing of a Chinese bookie. Another that I wish I could have rewatched in time to confirm its placement. Yeah, I, my um, my list doesn't have John Cassavetes on it, even though um, that one is one that I. I mean, I love most of his films a lot, and uh, Minion Moskowitz was one that I. Uh, almost put on mine but um yeah no he's he's great and that's it that's i know that's the favorite film of uh dave Ryder, the guy that did the um from the neighborhood uh blue velvet podcast with me that's his favorite killing of chinese bookie yeah no it's i mean it's a masterpiece it's i i remember being so excited to hear your cassavetes episode of director's club hearing you guys discover his work uh in a in a you know formalized way was a lot of fun i agree um, another, another really good episode of ours was, uh, was the Wes Anderson episode. And I think Rushmore is still my favorite. Again, it's, it's number 43 here, but 
there, there, there are definite times where I'm watching. It could, you know, like the Royal Tenenbaums or Grand Budapest Hotel or Moonrise Kingdom, where I'm like, maybe this is my favorite. <laughs> As I'm watching them, just because I love them so much, and you know, again, he, there, there are definitely a few here and there that I'm not as strongly or passionate about, like Life Aquatic or Darjeeling Limited, but. Mm. Uh, Rushmore is what kickstarted it. It, it. it it was definitely like, I remember this was when I started to call in regularly to Nick DiGilio's show um, as, as you know, a, a film critic guest. And I remember him telling me before I saw this that this was going to be a game changer for me. He's like, you're going to see this and you're going to flip out. And he was right. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we might be talking about that one again. Number 42 is a movie we could also potentially be talking about again, because you and I agree, whereas uh, Patrick was probably going to throw, you know, vodka bottles against the wall and screaming, but it is Hal Hartley's Trust. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, there's, a, there's a run here of movies, I think, that you you love. And I Yeah, no, Trust is a, a very important film to me. I mean, Hal Hartley in general is, you know, one of the key filmmakers for me. I mean, I, everything he's made, I like. And, uh, you know, but, I, you know, it's definitely like a filmmaker, like, you know, that I, I associate like uh, his 90s heyday with my college years. And so it's, I mean, there's some nostalgia kind of value for sure, you know. Yes. Um, he, he, he's just like a key figure in that like nineties indie American indie film boom. Um, and weirdly, uh, you know, his cult following kind of survives, but I think because of how things are distributed and maybe because of the reception um, that his more recent films have gotten, he seems to be like, there's a generation that knows him. I don't know how many people are discovering him, you know, at this point, he doesn't have like, you know, he's not in the criterion collection or things like that, but um he should I think be. those I think those films hold up. Well, he controls a lot of it. And so a lot of them are available through his website. And so that's true. Yeah. The pros and cons of that is like he has control, he sees the money, but he does not have the um maybe the branding that Wes Anderson, you know, seemed to uh seek that out and has it in his deals that his films always go into the criterion collection after a certain amount of time. Same Jim Jarmish has that same kind of deal. Um you know, and that gets into like, you know, questions of like, you know, how important is that in terms of keeping your work in the public eye as far as like new people discovering it. But every time I've ever showed Hal Hartley to anyone, they've loved it. Um, Patrick has never been over to my house, but, you know, everybody that, that uh, ever comes over, trust is definitely one that's a good place to start. If people haven't seen any Hal Hartley movies because um, it is kind of got that uh, romantic comedy feeling to it um, as well as being like detached and quirky and Godardian. And you know, what's really interesting too, is I was thinking about how I discovered this movie was really at the onslaught of the indie boom movement, kind of um, around the time of Pulp Fiction and Clerks, because uh, it wasn't through Tarantino this time. It was through Kevin Smith who, um, you know, obviously sung the praises of slacker as being the reason why he made clerks but I also remember him saying, yeah, seeing Hal Hartley's uh, first two movies also made me want to become a director. And I had ne- never heard the name Hal Hartley before. So I went to my local mom and pop video store and saw that they had trust and I rented it. And uh, it's been a love fest kind of ever since. Thanks for to Kevin Smith. For me, it wasn't that way. I didn't like Hal Hartley at all. The first two films I saw 
because um, I started with Simple Men. I didn't like it. And then I got to <laughs> Amateur, and I didn't like it. And, you know, I, I thought it was too self-conscious and mannered and hip uh, in a way that I found, like, no way in. And then I saw Trust and loved it. And then I saw The Unbelievable Truth and loved it. And then I went back to Simple Men and Amateur and loved them. Like, it's, it's like they... Like I needed the key to those locks. <laughs> it, it, it's hard to explain. Like, I mean, like to get into the rhythm of what he was doing, which I think those films are hilarious. But, you know, my first impression was probably closer to what Patrick got out of them, which is like sure. that they were just too robotic or something. But um, I find them quite moving and quite funny. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'll back you up on trust being on the list. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, before before I don't I don't this is an unfair comparison, but you know, it comes to mind a little bit, but before there was like Zoe Deschanel, there was Adrian Shelley. Mm-hmm. Like I think I I think she's what she brings to the screen is a little is even more interesting, but at the same time, um a little little parallel between all the real girls and and her character and that and this, and it's and it's just uh, it, I'm so fucking angry <laughs> that she's gone. <laughs> like, I know we said that in the Hal Hartley episode, like the way Kurt Havyard said it was like really funny that it made us laugh. It was like, I'm so mad that she was killed. Oh, <laughs> and gosh, I'm like, it's so, line. so stupid that, uh, you know, it's like, cause she was, uh, she's obviously a, a very talented actress and a great screen presence. But then she started to make her own films like waitress and, uh, anyway, I don't want to get too angry. This is not about getting angry. I remember uh, um, she was interviewed in a piece on Hal Hartley, I think around the time of Amateur. And um, I remember her quote was something like, you know, they, they call me uh, part of the Hal Hartley stable of actors, but I say nay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 41, one of uh, a couple of films by this director that I don't need to talk about for a long period of time because we will be talking about it later, Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. I've heard of number, it. Yeah. Number 40 is uh, the only David Fincher movie on my list, and that's Zodiac. Yeah, Because um, I, I understand what it's like to be obsessed with something. Uh, yeah. A great ensemble. Uh, great, great use of location. Great uh, soundtrack. Um, what it has to say about obsession and certainly unresolved police cases like this it's remarkable work of art uh from a director who i i I struggle with a little bit here and there especially lately wasn't crazy about his latest film but this one's really special yeah i like that one a lot number 39 is um the more i watch it the more it's definitely my favorite christopher nolan movie uh interstellar and it's it's really hard because I do love Inception and I do love Memento. Um, and I know you're not the biggest Christopher Nolan fan, but there is a lot going on in this movie, very similarly to Contact, that um, that's that just moves me to no end while also being really just sort of killer escapism throughout. Uh, and I just... Um, I, I find a lot of real interesting parallels 
between the father-daughter relationship and this and my own relationship with my own dad because he like he is obviously he wasn't an astronaut or but he 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 would go out of town sometimes and I'd be like so disappointed that I wouldn't be able to spend time with him mm-hmm. and so like there's moments early on in the film that I recognize of being like oh dad don't go <laughs> and then there's um just the environmental aspect of the film too works for me uh just and, and certainly I'm endlessly interested in the idea of uh, space-time physics and the idea of a wormhole and like I think just the science fiction nature of this film on an intellectual level works for me but then we get to ultimately what it becomes about in the end and I think again similarly to contact disappoints people because it brings it back to the relationship to the idea of um, you know a family is what really keeps us together. It's like it's like what Anne Hathaway says. It's something. It's something about love, right? Yeah. <laughs> like she literally has this monologue that again you can roll your eyes at, and I understand if people do, but that's ultimately what it's about. And I think that's kind of you don't usually get that out of a Christopher Nolan movie. And I think this is one of the more emotional ones for me, anyway. Yeah, we, we've talked about Christopher Nolan recently, and uh, this is a film I, I barely remember. I, I picked up the Blu-ray recently for five bucks, so I will give it another try. I, I thought it might be on your list, and I was going to try to watch it again, but uh, I ran out of time. But uh, I remember certain images from it. I remember it being a, um, you know, a not too dumbed down spectacle film, and in, in you know, in a way that like I, I, I like the idea of Christopher Nolan <laughs> as a. As a uh, you know, as like a Ridley Scottish kind of, um, you know, spectacle movies for grownups kind of filmmaker. But yeah, uh, but I just, you know, I I saw it. I I remember liking it well enough, but I don't remember it. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Again, like it's one of those where, when people don't connect with it to the extent that I do, I understand. Um, but the next one I think is one of the greatest all-time love stories ever. And that's Wong Kar Wai's in the mood for love, mm. um, and another one I wish I could have watched again. Like a lot of these, I, I there was no time to, to actually sit down and rewatch all one hundred or fifty of my favorite movies. Obviously, but this is certainly one that I'm going to uh, go back to. I think aren't they all getting restored in some way? Like so... I feel like the music box <laughs> brought this up. <laughs> I so, should look this up. Yeah, it's controversial because... Oh, is it? Yes, because he's changing the aspect ratio on Fallen Angels, and part of Happy Together got destroyed in a fire, so it's like some huh. stuff is missing now, and um, I forget. Like, he, there's, a, there's a web... There's a web page you can find that has like a breakdown of the changes, but yeah, okay. the box set coming out will have, um, I think... Uh, what is it? Everything from Days of Being Wild. No, no. Everything from As Tears Go By through 2046, except for Ashes of Time, um, you know, will be included in this Criterion set. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll be talking about Wong Kar Wai again. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, I think In the Mood for Love is not too uh, drastically tampered with in his restoration of that one. And um, yeah, no, I, I've got more to say about it. <laughs> Um, number 37 is another one that's always been on my list since, I don't know, maybe I was 13. Evil Dead 2. Sure. Sam Raimi. I mean, it's 
you know, it's not on my list, but it was like a gigantic film to me as a kid, you know? Yep. <laughs> yep. I've talked about it a lot. Um, number yeah. 36 is Vertigo. Um, still my favorite Hitchcock movie. It's uh, it's it, it. Sometimes it's Rear Window, but most of the time it's Vertigo. Um, but yeah, yeah I, uh, I can, I, every time I watch this, I go, gosh, this is like, this is the foundation for so many of my favorite directors and my favorite films to come. Yeah, uh, we'll be talking about a film that has definitely been inspired by it. Um, maybe more than one. Um, but yeah, no, Vertigo I is funny. I surprised. Yeah, Vertigo is funny because, like, I mean, you know, that that became the the most acclaimed film of all time on that last Sight and Sound poll, like over uh, a couple of years ago now. And um, yeah, it's funny because I... I love Vertigo. I don't know if it's my favorite Hitchcock film, but I get that argument for sure. Um, I I do love it. Um, Another film about obsession and uh, longing and desire and misplaced (laughs) desire and just kind of like, uh, again, post Me Too. It's a creepy, he's a fucking creepy dude. Um, Like early on when I first saw it, I just... I, I knew he was, you know, traumatized or at least just unhealthy and certainly um, kind of an anti-hero in a way. Just not, not like a guy that you necessarily want to 100 percent sympathize with. No, uh, I think that's why it tanked at the time, because, yeah, yeah. it is it is a very uh, unlikable character, even though it's played by one of the more likable Hollywood actors of that period. I think that's what I find interesting about it. I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I find it interesting. Um Certainly the score and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, the lighting, like everything about it. It's, it's Hitchcock, you know? I mean, there, there are definite movies like Rear Window. Um, even to some degree, I like I like Strangers on a Train, Dial M. I like a lot of Hitchcock movies. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily, like, watch Vertigo on a yearly basis, whereas, like, I'm in the mood for, you know, Rope, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or something. Like, something something a little bit more fun and playful. Yeah. But, yeah. I uh I this one is really ooh really special. Um 35 another predictable one for me but it's uh Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Still yeah. my favorite. Still I I look forward to revisiting this ensemble. I think I pretty much have watched this once a year since it's come out. Maybe it's just because of the writing and just because of this great cast and their interactions together. It is a hangout movie that I never get tired of hanging out with all these people. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Quentin Tarantino doesn't have a film on my list, but that was the film that I, I mean, definitely thought about putting on there. I like every film of his, even the ones I like less, like The Hateful Eight, I kind of like. Jackie Brown, it's funny because it is... um, it, it, I forget if I've ever talked about this on a podcast or your podcast, but it, it feels like more and more like The Outlier... Uh, among his films because it's an adaptation and because it's um you know yeah, self-conscious right, sure. self-consciously mature in a way that i think tricked everybody because i can't tell if jackie brown was him growing up and then freaking out when his fan base didn't like it as much as reservoir dogs and pulp fiction <laughs> uh or if he just wanted to show critics that he could make some elegiac kind of one last score criminals kind of 
film like the kind Don Siegel would make in his like elder years, but make it now as a young man to show that he had those skills in his toolbox. You know, he already had that. Like, I I can't tell now if it was a stunt or a sincere, I mean, not a stunt, but like, like, uh, like, like, there's no way to top Pulp Fiction. So go underneath it, you know, in terms of like, you know, like have four rooms absorb your backlash and then make this, I don't know, because I think the only other one that really has a similar quality, and I know that you and I maybe don't agree entirely on this one, was the last one. Um, once upon a time in Hollywood. That's definitely a hangout movie at times, for sure. But it feels like um, there's like that kind of bittersweet, melancholy feeling to it, which I don't associate with Tarantino often because he seems in the post Jackie Brown films to be more about feel good revenge sagas. Um, and so I like them, but I also find them just a different kind of thing than Jackie Brown. And Jackie Brown is like his Ed Wood. <laughs> like it's like the film that people that don't normally like his stuff, they like that one. And that always makes me feel a little bit weird. Cause I like Tarantino's other movies, but. Um, oh, I do too, for sure. And but, even the last one, that's the thing is like, if it, if I guess if it didn't turn into a revenge movie, I would have loved it because it just seems so out of nowhere, even though it is a Tarantino movie. <laughs> like I, I kind of watched it going, I know we're going to get some sort of, you know, uh, not necessarily like revenge against history, but some sort of cathartic, violent moment. Yeah. Almost in the way, like I expected from a Coen brothers movie or something. Like I just expect that to happen. And the way it was done just didn't sit well with me at the time because I was enjoying pretty much everything else leading up to it. I actually yeah. really love the scenes between Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio just hanging out together. I mean, for me, that's my second favorite now, you know, and that's never really common for me to like, you know, a newer film from a director that I've been a fan of for, you know, 20 some odd years, you know, um, it's it usually takes me a while to to readjust the canon, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, well, I've uh, seen it three times and I've liked it more each time, but just not to the extent that I love, uh, you know, Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, and I think Inglorious Bastards might be my top three. Yeah, I mean, for a long time I was like his first three are my favorites, and then everything else I think is interesting. But um, yeah, no, I, I, Jackie Brown though is a special film, and uh, it is always kind of mystify me that Pam Greer still didn't have the opportunities that yeah. she should have had in the wake of that, the For way sure. that Robert Forrester did. But I mean, that just says a lot about Hollywood casting. At least she has that. For number 34, we have a director that I hope doesn't make a quiet place three. And that's Jeff Nichols with mm. take shelter. Um, yeah. 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 That's um, still one of my favorite acting performances of all time by Michael Shannon. You have a great supporting performance from Jessica Chastain and you have a movie about mental health and deterioration and questioning reality and all the things that I just have dealt with or know somebody who has dealt with. And if you know, it's, it's the ultimate experience and empathy with this character because he does some very selfish things and neglects his family. But at the same time, he thinks he's doing it for the, for for good intentions um, and just has a paranoia that might stem from uh, family history. We just don't know for sure. And it doesn't really spell it out until 
kind of the ending where he sort of comes to terms with the fact that he has a diagnosis now and people really sort of, I don't know why, have a very negative reaction to the final image, whereas I find it to be really moving and beautiful. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I am a fan of Jeff Nichols pretty much all around, but uh, this one is always going to be my favorite, I think. Yeah, it's the it's my favorite of what I've seen. I don't think did he do shotgun stories? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I think I've seen everything else. But um yeah, no, Take Shelter is definitely my favorite of his. And uh probably the the performance I most associate Michael Shannon with. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably right. Um 33 is Unforgiven by Clint Eastwood. Mm. And mm. um you know, it's kind of funny when I think about it when I think like, man, I've watched a lot of Anthony Mann and Howard Hawks and there's a lot of great Western directors out there for some reason. Anytime I go to, I, I, I put on unforgiven it's, it becomes my favorite Western and it's, but it's very simple. And it's just like a, another, it's another revenge movie. Really? Yeah. That's kind of what it comes down to, but I feel like it, it's so self-reflective in a way that I guess people can find indulgent uh, on the part of Eastwood of like him critiquing the old West and certainly how he, he was back in the old days with just being this relentless, you know, violent machine in a way. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, but like, I can honestly say the good, the bad and the ugly might be the greatest Western of all time. I just happen to love for unforgiven um, yeah. more. Um, and it was probably the first Western I ever saw. I think. I'm not sure which one the first one I saw was, but I mean, those are both great. I mean, they, you know, I mean, they, they're, they're uh, rightly thought of as classics. And uh, 32 is a movie that I was so close to watching last night. Um, but I was, I was a little tired, more tired than I expected to be because I really want to articulate a little bit more about why I love silent light as much as I do. Um, the, the problem is, is like exactly what you were saying. I don't remember <laughs> the plot very well. I just remember the imagery, the way I felt watching it. Um, it's certainly not a director whose work I've loved consistently. And it's, again, this is a surprisingly kind of divisive film, but um, it sort of echoes some of the work of Brisson or, or, or Dwyer or Dreyer mm-hmm. and, uh, I felt really, really moved by this movie and in a way that made me go, I do need to watch more Tarkovsky or Bergman Um, because yes, it is very slow, but there is just something enveloping um, about this film and the, the, the religious existentialist angle going on throughout that speaks to me uh, visually more than anything else. Um, It's a beautiful opening that you'll never forget certainly um and it has a lot to say and i can't even remember specifically everything um that went on in this movie to where i can say this is what this movie is about folks <laughs> yeah but, it's the same director who did um is it post tenebras lux i think yes I yeah and that one i remember being visually quite overwhelming but i don't I remember the narrative so well and i never have seen uh silent light uh, silent light i remember um when first performed came out uh, Paul Schrader mm, was booking yes. like they programmed a series of films that were inspirations for him or films that he, I just I think he thought like you know 
seemed to be in conversation with First Reformed, and that was one of the films that he uh, screened. I think at BAM, I can't remember. No, not BAM. Uh, I can't remember which theater it was. It wasn't BAM. But this is probably the one of the m- biggest slow burns on my list because it is very leisurely paced. So you have to like be prepared for it, and maybe that's why I haven't rewatched it in a while because it is one of those you have to be in the mood for. Yeah, I think Criterion might have that now, but I'm not They positive. should. But I think that they got a bunch of his films in a deal that, whether or not they do anything with them, they I know they've acquired a lot of stuff over the years and just haven't got. But yeah, I think that they have that. Speaking of leisurely paced, uh, number thirty-one is safe by Todd oh, Haynes. Yeah. Sure. Um, man, God, I love this director. I really do. His birthday yesterday. Oh, cool! Happy yeah. birthday, Todd. Uh, <laughs> make make some more movies for us. I think he's got a documentary, doesn't he, about Velvet Underground? Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I th- now, I think Todd Haynes him. is amazing, um, and Safe uh, isn't on my list, but it—I mean—it was in the list of shame outside the top fifty. <laughs> uh, no, Safe is a masterpiece. Um, I, you know, for a while it was almost kind of like I was comparing everything he did after that to Safe unfairly, and uh, some of his films after that grew on me a lot, especially Far from Heaven uh, and mm-hmm. Velvet Goldmine. Um, but yeah, Safe is—I mean. <sighs> It's 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 interesting because uh, there's a couple of films um uh, you know that I love that are art films that feel like horror films but aren't quite horror films and not even like those yeah. um, but I'm not even talking about um like the Barbarian Sound Studio the Witch kind of things I'm talking about like films that like have no genre element but just have that uncomfortable feeling that feels like the first half hour of a horror movie mm-hmm. uh, and safe has that in spades as far as like the the almost lynchian sense of menace in a, in a location but it's ambiguous as to what the threat is um and it's one of julianne moore's uh key you know roles uh and i, I don't know yeah I, I love safe a great deal it's one of those movies too watching during 2020's pandemic that I was worried about. <laughs> I was worried it was going to trigger a panic attack, really, because of, like, she she's driving down the highway at one point, kind of, like, choking on exhaust fumes, and, you know, she's going to the doctor and getting allergy tests, and there's just, like, a lot of medical stuff. Similarly, like, with Exorcist, when she's, when she's going, you know, getting the spinal tap um, and, like, getting all these medical tests done, like, because I've been through stuff like that and because of where we are, with this crazy virus going around something about safe. I was like, I keep wanting to rewatch it again because I know how much I love it and how I want to experience this dread again. But at the same time, I almost feel like we're experiencing some version of safe um, in reality right now. But you know, like we, I know we know what it is. I know we know it's a virus, but at the same time it's out there in the environment. We can't see it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean i was you know? thinking how we could have had halloween parties this year if everyone had the safe costume yeah you know could but... have <laughs> uh number 30 is a much much lighter fare with uh, a film that i don't need to talk too much about because i just talked about it for uh, a good hour on the last episode uh, and that's james l brooks's broadcast news um probably my favorite screenplay along with the movie coming up very shortly so. Yeah, I I don't have it on my list, but it's like a perfect movie for me. I mean, I I find it so satisfying. Um, Which he, includes the ending, right? 
<laughs> yeah, I don't have a problem with the ending. Um, and I know, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard you and Patrick discuss it. it. It's fine. I don't need films to be perfect either, you know. But I, I think, uh, I, you know, Albert Brooks, I love to death, and I don't have any Albert Brooks films on my list. But I like every one of them from real life through Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. Like I don't, there's not a film of his I don't enjoy. And uh, yeah, another comfort director. Like yeah, he should be on my list. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think. Wait, let me double check. Uh, Defending Your Life is number eighty-three uh, <laughs> on my list. Okay, so there. Yeah, I figured he was gonna, he would show up there some somewhere somehow. Yeah, but I I do love. God, do I love modern romance? Yes, yeah, yeah. Modern romance, I did almost put on my list, but uh, yeah, no. Broadcast news is kind of like uh, like the great nineteen like. Like, like screwball comedy. Yeah, well, but even of, like I even think of like Billy Wilder. Like I think it's of that sure. caliber. I mean, I I completely agree. Yeah, Preston Sturgis, Billy Wilder. Yeah, that yeah, no. in that in that league. Um, number twenty nine is uh, Peter Weir's Fearless. Um, very personal movie again about post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, almost dying. Um, near. I, I again probably top five favorite performances of all time with Jeff Bridges in this. Yeah. Um, and kind of, kind of one of those endings where I'm just like a complete wreck, uh, when it's over, uh, and a movie that will get you to love a segment of a U2 song <laughs> at one particular moment. Uh, but yeah, I, God, what a, what a, what a crazy movie when I think about it, when I think about, again, it sort of starts off like a horror movie with dread and tension and. That is the one thing I realized about a lot of Peter Weir's movies is there are like not necessarily Lynchian qualities, but the way he uses sound and sound design uh, to create like this horrific feeling within the environment that you're living in. Uh, he does that a lot and in ways that I mean, obviously, in something like Last Wave, it sort of fits the way, you know, things are ultimately ending up because of our destruction towards nature and things like that. But he does that here in Fearless in certain moments, especially early on, um, where he makes like the plane crash kind of like a horror movie. Uh, and it's just so enveloping and so incredibly emotional. And one of the better representations of therapy and group therapies in this movie, too. Uh, so I, I love everything about it. And I can't I can't say enough about how much I love Jeff Frisch's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I was gonna try to rewatch Fearless because I knew it was an you know a sure thing for your list. But I just ran out of time, but I remember liking it. Um, and I I know that when I did see it, uh, I came to it rather late. Um, and I knew even at that time that it was like a key film for you. So I think that probably informed my perception of it as like, oh, you know, this is this is a good film. It's an important film for Jim. But uh, I I I don't really remember it super well. Uh, just other than I remember thinking, oh, this. You know, I see why he likes it. <laughs> Number 28 is a movie that I wanted to rewatch, but I knew it was going to destroy me again. Um, and not in like the same way of Fearless. Just rattle me. Um, I believe it's going to be very high on your list. And we did a whole episode on the director, and it's also a, a key film for Mr. Elric Kane. So I don't think I need to say, you can probably guess what Number 28 is. Uh, is it um, House of a Thousand Corpses? I didn't think Elric liked that movie. Uh, no. No. Is it Possession? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wee, what a movie. Yeah, it's yeah, we'll talk about it. Okay, um number twenty seven is Billy Wilder's The Apartment, still my favorite Billy Wilder movie, and gosh, I think that's also been on my top thirty at least since I first saw it. I yeah. said this is a, this is a perfect romantic comedy in every single way. I no, I, I still can't yeah. still can't get over it. Any like anytime I see even just that whole sequence of uh, Shirley MacLaine's suicide attempt and the doctor coming in there and slapping her and him cooking spaghetti with a tennis racket and like I don't know, man. I don't know if it gets much better than that. Oh, is, is, is this is a side note? But is that what they're referencing in Almost Famous? <laughs> now that I think about it. With really? The, uh, oh, uh, oh, yeah. Because isn't there I, like a similar scene with Penny Lane in that movie? And I know that Cameron Crowe did a whole book without with uh, Billy Wilder. <laughs> so. Holy crap! I haven't. I've completely forgot about that. Yeah. Um, you should watch Almost Famous. That's that's a that's a nice movie. I like that movie. Yeah, it's, it is a nice. Movie. It's fine. I like it's it fine. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. But the apartment. Yeah. Is. I mean, I, I, it's also a great looking um, in terms of the black and white cinemascope mm-hmm. photography of it. It's one of his most beautiful looking movies. Yeah. Yeah, and and certainly one of the better movies about like you know being a drone in a in a like a giant corporate office and <laughs> moving up gradually and uh, Fred McMurray playing a despicable human being. Um, Twenty six, is this my favorite horror movie? It's right up there. In terms of like a straight crazy, um, I guess slasher style film but done very artfully uh the texas chainsaw massacre by toby hooper Mm. is uh is is becoming more and more the more i watch it an all-timer actually no it's not my favorite horror movie what am i talking about there's another one coming up after this so i will end it here at uh the texas chainsaw massacre at 26 and now you can go and do your 50 through 26 Okay, well, I don't have like a uh, in-depth analysis prepared for all of these, but um, Man, so... I just did it all off the cuff. Like, I barely have any. I have notes for like maybe three of these coming up because I don't know if people know about them. So, well, you know, I I I I, I guess uh, I can start by saying that it agonized me to leave off the ice storm and in a year of 13 moons and Kings of the road and Sullivan's travels and Volver and Minnie Moskowitz and crash and modern romance and Mouchette and Jackie Brown and late spring and sex lies and videotape and a bunch of others. But I oh yeah, sex start... lies and videotape for me too. Yeah. Good. Choice. Badlands, Tootsie, Cutter's way, Ganja and Hess, <laughs> uh, gremlins. But so I will start with um, one that I probably didn't need to include because everybody knows the Godfather, I think. But um, The Godfather is my 50. I just rewatched it again last week with a friend who had never seen it. And, um, you know, as far as like popular blockbuster type movies, I think for me, that's, you know, I mean, I had like a, um, a personal discovery angle with the rain people. And I had, uh, you know, a, a pretty str- uh, strong feeling about the conversation when I was younger. I still like it. And um you know, I, Godfather wasn't my favorite film of his when I was younger, but it's one that uh, I just find it satisfying on every level. It's And I don't normally go for epic length films, but that's one that I never mm-hmm. feel restless in. It feels like every scene is exciting, um, even when not very much is happening, because it, it looks so beautiful, um, like the use of shadow, um, the use of darkness. Uh, I, I just, you know, it's one that, I mean, it's the Godfather. It doesn't need my, 
you know, uh, uh, approval, but I, it's one I, I, I like um, enough to put it at number 50. Um, number 49 is one that um, is a childhood favorite. Uh, it's a film called Topper Returns from 1941, directed by Roy Del Ruth. And this is the second Ooh, I haven't sequel. seen this one. Okay. The second sequel to um, the film Topper. Um, uh, Topper Returns is... Um, it's like an old dark house mystery meets screwball comedy. It's got ghosts. It's got kind of jalloish murders. It's got some dated racial humor. Um, you know, it's 1940s broad comedy. Um, but uh, it's, you know, Topper was a film that uh, was one of the first films to be colorized back in the mid 80s. That and Way Out West, um, that Laurel and Hardy movie. And so my family had these two movies on videotape. And so I saw Topper that was actually my first exposure to Cary Grant. Hmm. Um, and I didn't know Cary Grant was the uh, male lead's name because I didn't know Cary was a, <laughs> could be a masculine name at the time. Um, but that was my first exposure to uh, one of my earliest old Hollywood films that I saw as a kid was, was Topper and Topper returns was um, uh, when Nickelodeon started running classic movies at night, uh, Nick at night, uh, back in the eighties and Topper uh, returns was yeah. something that used to play on that. And I remember taping it because it was a sequel to this movie Topper that my family had. And, um, I just find it enormously charming and fun. Um, and so that's one that just holds up for me. There's not a lot of films from my childhood on this list, but that's one I still really like. And if you like old screwball uh, you know, slapstick comedy and old dark house thrillers. Like, I mean, I don't have um, James Wales, the old dark house on here. And I don't have uh, William Castle's the house on haunted Hill on here, but I like films like that, that have like spooky old houses. And this was one that for sure. One that I like. Uh, number 48 is Martin George Romero's 1977 vampire movie with John. Oh yeah. Good choice. Um, yeah, I just, you know, it's like this melancholy character study. It's definitely a problematic hero, but uh, I don't have a problem with that. Um, Has that Blu-ray come out? Uh, they're working on it. Okay. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, Second Sight is working on it, and I know a bunch of people that are involved in that release, and Yay! it's going to be good. Um, but it's, I mean, George Romero has a lot of films I really like a lot. I, I mean, I really love Jack's wife, uh, season of the witch. Um, I, mm. I nearly put that on there. I mean, I, I Dawn of the dead and day of the dead night, living dead monkey shines night riders. I mean, a lot of his films I, uh, I, I love, um, Martin just, you know, uh, it was something I sought out because of Danny Perry's cult movies books. And, um, I just, I've always found it really quite moving as a, as a horror character study, a, it always works for people when I show it to them. And uh, I guess it's a little harder to see legitimately right now, but I'm sure it's easy to acquire a copy, uh, you know, in the meantime. But uh, yeah, Martin is, uh, is 48. Uh, 47 is Le Eclise, which is a um, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni film, 1962. Um, Another blind spot for me is this, this Antonioni. Yeah. Well, he's for me. Uh, so, I had seen Blow Up and I had seen La Ventura and I liked and respected them. Um, but when I was 28, when um, Criterion put out the DVD for La Cleese, and that was my first exposure to it. And I think what made me excited about it was that he uses location in a very interesting way to express 
an eerie sense of alienation. So even though it is kind of like this very deliberately low energy romance film, there's something very unsettling about it. Uh, it, it it's lit and framed like a, I don't want to say twilight zone, but it, but, but like a, there's a, a creepiness to it um, in the way that uh, like, modern architecture like like she'll like walk down the street and there'll be like this water tower that looks like a spacecraft like the <laughs> way that modern architecture is used to make the world seem weirder and it is kind of mannered and it is very slow and it is got a famously uh ambiguous ending that i think some distributors i think tried to trim it from the film because they just found it too disquieting and strange um I just always was haunted by it. And that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole with Antonioni. And I've liked every film I've seen of his. Um, I think he's oh. super consistent, but he's definitely not for everybody. I think I told Patrick that I thought most things he hated in modern art films probably come from either Antonioni or Godard. <laughs> um, and he yeah, did disagree right. with me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you can find the influence of Antonioni on Giallo films like The Birth of Crystal Plumage or Deep Red. Um, you can find the influence on things like The Conversation in a big way, the uh, the Coppola, since I just mentioned Coppola. Even things like Messiah of Evil are heavily influenced by Antonioni. And it's surprising to me that more horror doesn't draw from him because he makes things eerie without ever, even when he tried, like even something like Blow Up, which is ostensibly a thriller, you know, it's not really it's probably very dissatisfying as a thriller because it's not really about that. It's about that mood. Uh, I don't know. I just found his stuff really exciting. I, it, I just rewatched Lickleese. It still works for me. Um, it's on the Criterion channel. If you have access to that and ever want to sample it, I don't know that it's out on Blu-ray yet, but I like his stuff a lot. And I just, I don't know. I mean, that was one that I just had to include it. Um, 46. Um, I have Female Trouble, John Waters' movie with Divine, oh. Mink Stoll, Edith Massey, David Lockery. And uh, John Waters is a really important director to me. I sometimes uh, forget to include him on things like this because, I mean, his work was gigantic to me when I was a teenager in early 20s. I mean, I hosted screenings of this and Desperate Living at college. Um, I interviewed Mink Stoll uh, last year. Um yep. And uh, to see female trouble wasn't my favorite when I was, uh, you know, when I was younger, I think I got into him through desperate living pink flamingos. I saw first, but pink flamingos was like eraser head was for me. Like they were, it was like a, an object that you'd show kids on the playground. Like, look at this fucked up thing. It wasn't like something I even thought of as a movie. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Desperate living was the one that like made me realize, Oh my God, this is actually hilarious. And female trouble was actually hard to find when I, I had to go to New York to rent a tape of it. Um, but I think that might be the best John Waters movie for me. I mean, Serial Mom is like the more polished, you know, great John Waters movie. But um, Female yeah, that Trouble. One's, that one's my favorite. And I, I should watch this one again because it's been a long time. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to knock Serial Mom. Serial Mom is hilarious. But like Female Trouble, because it has David Lockery and Divine. Um, because David Lockery passed away after this one in Divine isn't uh, mm-hmm. in, you know, things after Hairspray. Uh, he passed away. But like, um, as far as like the best showcase for all the original Dreamlanders, uh, Female Trouble is is for me the best one. Um, it is 
I don't know, it's just really funny. And uh, it still works with an audience. If you ever get to see it on the big screen, it's still uh, shocking, and but not like in a, in a cringy way. Uh, so I, I really like that one a lot. Um, 45. So <laughs> I don't have any Alfred Hitchcock on my list, but I do have two directors that uh, were compared sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, to Hitchcock a lot early on in their careers. And so hmm. um, this one surprised me because, um, like I said, I'm only doing one film per director. And so Brian De Palma, I grew up with Carrie, you know, like a lot of people, but um, I became a fan when I saw Dressed to Kill. And Dressed to Kill was my favorite for a while and th- until I got to Sisters. And then hmm. Sisters became the one that, to me summed him up the best because it still had that connection to his kind of Greenwich village post protesty kind of De Niro era, but like also had enough of the Hitchcock thing that was like kind of a best of both worlds. But in recent years, I've come around to body double as my favorite oh, De Palma film. That's good. I like that <laughs> choice. Yeah. Yeah. Body double to me is so batshit crazy um, and yet kind of moving, kind of hilarious, kind of grotesque. I I really love it. And um, I was on a Projection Booth uh, episode about it. And I don't know if it was just that process or showing to other people that were like newbies to De Palma. And just um, like everything from like the P- Pino Dinaggio score mm-hmm. to the uh, the use of things like the Frankie goes to Hollywood segment. It's, it's just an unpredictable show showstopper kind of movie. And I think that, I mean, I like some De Palma films that followed that, but maybe that's where the golden age for me comes to an end. That's the last one that I love wholeheartedly. And then there are things after it, like the untouchables or raising Kane or femme fatale or whatever that I like them fine. But um, that to me, like, like when people didn't, connect with that one i don't know if he ever was quite the same um you know any but even that one is such a such a hilarious fuck you to everybody as far as like you know antagonizing people that think he rips off hitchcock by including so many hitchcock homages or antagonizing the people that thought that um dressed to kill was misogynistic by including outrageously like are they misogynist? Like the drilling, like it is, oh, it is, it is yeah. so, it is such a thumb up, you know, thumbing your nose to everybody kind of film, but it's also such a love letter to interesting locations in Los Angeles, like the buildings, the, 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 the hot dog stand, like all of the places that they go. Um, it's such a, uh, it's a great LA movie. Um, it's, I don't know. I, I think that, I mean, I get every, um, every resistance to De Palma, and I've met plenty of De Palma haters in my time, but that's that's one that I was surprised to find on my list, but there it is. And I'm equally surprised by number 44 because it's another one that I never thought of as, as my favorite Dario Argento movie. Because Dario Argento, I grew up with Suspiria and Deep Red, and then um, when Anchor Bay started putting out uh, his films on DVD uh, phenomena really kind of uh, took me by surprise. And um, that yeah. kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of like really giving him a second 
look because you know i grew up with pan and scan cut versions of you know some of his films like opera you know as terror at the opera like these things were not really that well treated before people like bill lustig started bringing them back into circulation in, in respectful treatment um and so you know I've, I've had different films as my favorite uh, Dario Argento movie, but I think now Tenebrae is is the one mm. that I I respond to the most. In in a, in a, it, it's hard to pick a favorite for him uh, for me, but that one it's like Body Double in that it's got this kind of sleek, energetic telling to it. Um, it was influenced by Possession in terms of the look of it, so it has like this very kind of cold clean look it's kind of a departure after the candy colored bava ish suspiria and inferno um it is very gory very playful with the camera movements and all these kind of outrageous set pieces like the the dog attack scene and like i don't know there's so many things about it that it just flies along and i always take for granted just how uh, much of a pleasure ride it is because it's not as classy as Deep Red or Burkus of Plumage or as um, visionary as uh, something like Suspiria or Inferno uh, or even as batshit as Phenomena. But I I don't know. For some reason, Tenebrae never doesn't fly by in a pleasurable way for me. And so I, I'm putting that at 44. I should watch that again for sure. And it's funny because... As you're saying all this about Argento, I just realized, man, I just recently did an episode on Fulci, and I proclaimed like The Beyond as being one of my new favorite movies, and I forgot all about it. Yeah, well, it's I funny. Love the Beyond so and Lucio much. Fulci, I love a lot, and I might even like more of his films than Argento, but I think at the same time, the 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 run of films that Argento had from Bird because of Plumage through opera or even up to trauma. Uh, if you leave out five days in Milan, which is like a kind of, um, kind of a, uh, an anomaly comedy type film. Um, I don't know. It's a pretty a remarkable run of films that <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I think he got kind of a, uh, <laughs> I think he got, you know, you guys are a little tough on, on Argento in that Fulci episode. And I, I you know, I, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but at the same time, I, I, I think Argento is, he, his, his later films are, are not as good. Um, I, I don't really hear a lot of um, uh, people defending that. I've, I've interviewed several people that wrote books on Argento and they all kind of come to that same conclusion that he's not been so consistent for a long time and whether that's true to do with inspiration or money or whatever i don't know but um but in his heyday he was uh as good as it gets with that type of film and uh so yeah i, I think um Fulci is not on my top 50 but i mean he's he's amazing and he did so many great films i just didn't have room <laughs> um 43 is the only film that I saw in recent years. Um, and it's funny because I talked about it on director's club. Um, and it's funny cause that, that was 2014 when it came out. It's Mia Hansen loves Eden. Oh and, yeah. And it's funny cause that year, my top four favorite films, any one of them could have been the number one film for me that year. Cause it's the year of Duke of Burgundy, Gaspar Noe's love, uh, 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 Hoha, the, uh, the 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 film um, 
Lissandro Alonso. Um, but uh, Eden, uh, I don't know, for some reason, it's one I always think about. Um, and Mia Hansen Love is one of my favorite like working directors now. I think she's one of the people I'm most excited whenever she has something new. I liked every one of her films so far. Uh, I don't know why Maya has never really had a proper release here. I don't know what her... Uh, what's going on with Bergman Island? I guess that's coming next. But um, Eden is, uh, you know, I don't even know that it's a better film than Things to Come or Goodbye First Love. Like it's it's definitely the more shallow film than like some of her other films. But it's, you know, this rise and fall of a DJ in the uh, French touch uh, wave of house music from the 90s. It's hmm. It's got um, Daft Punk are, are supporting uh, characters in the film because it's like, it, it kind Wait of, a minute! Do they wear their masks, their helmets? I can't tell you, oh, but um, but but it's but it's you know um, it's it's uh, I just I, I I like the immersion in that culture. I find it just very like pleasurable to return to. It's it's a film I have a really fond memory of the first time I saw it. It felt like not like a party, not like how you described the stop making sense crowds dancing in the aisles. It wasn't quite like that, but it's. I don't know. It's a film that I find really satisfying and one I always look forward to revisiting. Um, and it doesn't seem to get the same attention as something like things to come, which is a masterpiece. And probably if I'm ranking these in terms of art, probably a stronger film, but I, I really like Eden a lot. And so I got to see that one for sure. And it's funny. You mentioned this movie in the way you're describing it. I'm like, Oh fuck. I love 24 hour party people too. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Yeah. No, I love that one as well. It's also not on my list, but it's great. Yeah. Um, and since I was mentioning um, Argento a second ago, um, uh, number 42 is Shock, Mario Bava's final theatrical Ooh. film with Dario Nicolodi, uh, who we lost uh, last year. And that's one, I mean, wow, Mario, Bava, so Mario Bava was uh, a really phenomenal uh, director. Almost everything I've seen of his, I love to pieces. And Shock is kind of an anomaly in a way because it's, it's it feels so informed by you know uh the the next generation of italian genre filmmakers specifically people like dario argento um and it's also a kind of a torch passing film because lumberto bava his son uh was involved in the writing of it and Mm -hmm. um you know it's it, it kind of sets him up to start doing things like macabre and blade in the dark and the demons movies um it is since you mentioned uh repulsion earlier like one of those stories of women going mad in a house kind of thing. Um, I just find it kind of moving. I think that the score by Libra is one of my favorite soundtracks to a horror movie. I think it's... Um, yeah, that's very memorable. It's like a demented ice cream truck in some yeah. ways. <laughs> but even but even the... Um, the, the I, I use my favorite piece of music from it at the end of the Stephen Thrower uh, episode of Supporting Characters. Mm. Um, but it's... And I think I actually talk about the soundtrack on... Our friend Zach Batante's. Um, uh, That's right. When his episodes on horror music, um, there's a film jive podcast. But uh, I, you know, I find it. Uh, you know, I, I, I was trying not to overload my list with horror movies because I am I'm a pretty passionate horror movie fan. But this one just, uh, I like all of the uh, the jump scares in it. I love the atmosphere of it. I, uh, you know, and it doesn't have would I go to Mario Bava movies for in that it doesn't really have like 
crazy beautiful cinematography the way black sunday and black sabbath and blood and black lace and things like that like it's not like this it's 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 not unattractively shot but it's not like a film that calls attention to itself in terms of the beauty of it but it is um i don't know quite emotional film for me and uh i don't know i so that's that's when i put down uh, on my list um, and as far as women losing their mind, it's not all of my films have that, but this one also, um, <laughs> would apply to my 41, which is puzzle of a downfall child, which, um, is Jerry Schatzberg's first film as director stars Faye Dunaway as a uh, fashion model who's had a breakdown and she's recounting her life, uh, as a very unreliable narrator to oh, a, that's uh, right. You just did a commentary for this one, right? I did do a commentary okay. for this one. Yes. I should order this one right away. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's a really fascinating movie. Um, it kind of a late addition to my top 50 that I added this morning, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, it's, it's a film that I, I first saw it on YouTube. Um, it's, 2009 i think um there was a channel that had only two films on it and they're both on my list <laughs> and actually a little bit similar um but um i'll get to the other one later but puzzle of a downfall child has like this um kind of modern-ish i don't want to say nick rogue but like experimental-ish mm. editing pattern mm. it has I like a that great stuff. look has a great look to it has maybe Faye Dunaway's best performance. It has some like very black humor to it. Uh, it's heartbreaking, but it's also like Antonioni, like very chilly and removed in places. Um, I love Ingmar Bergman to death and it's probably sacrilegious to include this film, but not include any Bergman films on my top 50. But I think because I, I just have more of a personal history with this film now. I mean, I don't include every film that I've ever worked on a, um, a home video release of on my list, even though once I've worked, it's like a part of my life, you know? Uh, but this, this one is a really interesting sleeper film. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I've just got a, a like a long history with it now. Um, I'm ordering it right now. Well, I'll <laughs> reimburse you I'm, if you don't I, like I, it. I think you'll like I'm it. I'm sure I'm going to like it. It sounds like I will. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I, I didn't, share the interview because it wasn't really for the purposes of uh release but i did interview jerry schatzberg last year with daniel kramer who got us that gig um to the for the kino Lorber release and um jerry schatzberg did a lot of great films scarecrow panic and needle park um, oh yeah of course scarecrow is one i caught up with finally this year and uh yeah again if i was making a top 300 it'd probably be on there yeah <laughs> same I mean, it's, you know, he, he's somebody that gets overlooked and most of his films are good to great. So, uh, it's, it's definitely one that, you know, sense of discovery is a big factor for me. I think, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I, I can't help it. You know, like if, if, you know, it feels like I'm one of like a handful of people that know about a film, that's going to make a difference if it's a film I love, um, maybe makes, you know, I don't know if it makes me overrate things, but you know, it's. I'm human. Um, it definitely applies to number 40, I think, um, which you'll like the title, but it's Jim, the world's greatest. And Jim, oh, the is greatest. that the Coscarelli? Yes. Uh, Don Coscarelli and uh, Craig Mitchell uh, co-directed this when they were, I want to say 17 years old. They were, hmm. they were really young. Um, 
And this was a film that I got a bootleg tape at a horror convention. And I knew the name because um, Jim, the world's greatest and Kenny company were mentioned on the commentary track for the laser disc and later editions of a uh, phantasm, uh, you know, which oh. is a film that I love to pieces. And um, so I picked it up just like, cause I like coming of age films and I love phantasm and it really kind of struck me, you know, it's this story of a, of an adolescent who's like a good looking football player, popular, but there's like this troubling home life he has that it kind of haunts him. And he's kind of like detached from all of the, um, like he's kind of like the pink character in days confused, like the, the, the jock kind of like, hmm. you know, popular high school football player, but he's, he's not able to really enjoy it because he's got like a certain detachment because um, of, of, of a turbulent home life. And um, it has moments of eeriness that kind of foreshadow the horror films that Coscarelli would be famous for. It has a lot of the, um, the uh, supporting cast that you would find in something like Phantasm. Like Angus Scrim plays the father in it. Uh, Reggie Bannister has a small bit part in it. Um, and, you know, that film and Kenny and Company, the children's film that he made after, which could also be on my list if I wasn't being, you know, one one film uh, per director. Those films uh, really had a huge impact on me. I wrote my first um, Blu-ray booklet essay was on the, um, right. the, yeah. the uh, Jim the World's Greatest and Kenny and Company and how they um, inform and predict Phantasm. Um, I didn't write it for that. It just wound up like happily getting home there. Um, I actually wrote it for Mike White and it just never got published. And then um, someone passed it to Arrow and they used it. But, um, you know, those films I think are quite uh, touching and moving. And it's, it's sad because, because they're studio films by studios that have no interest in them. Uh, they've never really, I mean, Kenny and company creeped into DVD circulation for like a minute through anchor Bay um, but I think you can get it um, on a Blu-ray from Japan now, but Fox, it was bought by Disney. I just don't see Disney ever making a priority of putting Kenny and company back in circulation. And the Universal has never put out Jim the World's Greatest on any home media. So how one sees it, I guess there are bootlegs of it. I saw it on a bootleg that I think came from a cable screening of it. Um, I don't know that it's going to blow everyone away the way it did me, but if you like coming of age melodramas um like high school movies and you like phantasm it's i don't know it's an important film to me um probably should yeah, be I higher do, I, do, I do love phantasm so I yeah have, should probably I, catch up with this i would love you know for people to see that film and kenny and company i know brian sour's a big kenny and company fan um and kenny and company is more of a um it's 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 a lighter film in that it's dealing with you know like 12 year olds versus like teen angst, but it also deals with themes of death and loss that, you know, it's like a kid's film aimed at adults at like Halloween. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so you know, you probably already know if you're the target audience for something like that. Um, and this is three in a row of films that have like shitty home video histories, but number 39 <laughs> is played as it lays Frank Perry's adaptation of Joan Didion's novel of the same name. Um, this is a film I think you and I might have talked about when we talked about uh, famous uh, favorite actresses on the Laura Dern episode. <laughs> That's right. 
But um, yeah, Frank yeah. Perry was a director that at one time I thought about writing a book about because nobody had really paid much attention to him. The Swimmer mm-hmm. and Last Summer. And, you know, I think his career got kind of overshadowed by the um, the reception of Mommy Dearest. But he's, uh, yeah. he's kind of having a renaissance lately. Um, Die of a Mad Housewife and Ladybug. Ladybug just came out on Blu-ray. Um, Fun City Editions is putting out a new Blu-ray of um, Rancho Deluxe. It'll have a Nick Pinkerton commentary. Um, I know that Brian and Elric are, you know, keeping the swimmer in, in the conversation for people. But Plain As It Lays is kind of like Puzzle of a Downfall Child. It's a um, it's kind of a fragmented memory film, troubled woman protagonist. Um mm. Tuesday Weld is amazing in it. It's her and Anthony Perkins kind of reteaming after they had appeared in another movie I love that's not on my list, but uh, Pretty Poison, um, the Noel Black movie, which is really amazing. If you like Anthony Perkins from things like Psycho, you know, seek that one out. But um, uh, uh, Play It As It Lays is, um, I think it might be on YouTube now. It's never come out on home video to my knowledge. Um, I think there are rights problems because I've talked to labels about it, um, but it's um, Kim Morgan wrote a really great essay on it um, that will do a better job than I could do of explaining what makes it um, uh, incredible film. But it's it's it reminds me of what I like about things like Five Easy Pieces as far as like that thinking rebel dis- disaffected thing, but like a woman uh, taking on that kind of position in a narrative and it's a good, it's a great LA movie. It's a, um, it's a Hollywood movie. It's, I don't know. I, I, there's something kind of mysterious about it. I, I, I love the swimmer and last summer and other films of Frank Perry a great deal too. But I think because played as it lays gets overshadowed. So, uh, frequently, even people like Bretties and Alice that love Joan Didion, uh, as a writer seem to think that played as it lays, the film doesn't work. I, hmm. I disagree, but, um, it's one again. Sense of discovery is probably a factor, but uh, it's one I wish more people would see and um, would make a good double feature. Very sad double feature with Puzzle of a Downfall Child if you have access to both. Um, number thirty-eight is a film that I was really excited to hear you talk about on your William Friedkin episode. Uh, is Cruising? Um, Ooh. Yes. Yeah. The Notorious Cruising. Um, this is a film that I. I saw it for the first time in 2007, I think. Um, I rented the videotape of it, which is not the version you can get now, because I know William Friedkin has tinkered with it a couple of times. But I love it. I love every scene of it. I think it's a very scary, very atmospheric thriller. I think it's his best film, um, with all due respect to French Connection and Exorcist. I think that's my favorite thing he's done. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I understand why people were afraid of it at the time, you know, in terms of how it maybe at a time when homophobia was on the rise, even before things like AIDS, you know, to position the leather bar scene. And just for people who haven't seen it, it's about a series of murders happening in the leather bar underworld and Al Pacino as a, as a cop going undercover, um, to try to find the murderer, but it's not really about that so much. I mean, it's kind of ambiguous as who the killer even is <laughs> by design. Um, right. 
but it, you know, I love films that deal with like you know the seedier side of New York. I I think the the score is really fantastic. I like the use of uh, punkish music, and I would say only the Germs would fit my definition of punk. But um, you know, those kind of like new wave bands like Mink Deville, um, wonderful, energetic uh, film. Great use of character actors. Uh, you know. I don't have any Sydney Lumet films on my list, but it's like that lot of, you know, all the great faces of New York films. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I just find something kind of mysterious about it. I think it's got a very chilling kind of ending. I like, you know, I know Pacino never talks about it. I, I, I think at this point, um, you know, people have come around to cruising. It was a film that I didn't see for years growing up because I only heard that it was really bad, but I think, it is probably one of the most popular, if not the most, you know, Friedkin film among my various friends. But uh, yeah, I feel like Friedkin's really like, like two of his films that were kind of lost and buried initially upon release are now beloved uh, cruising and sorcerer. Yeah. Well, I want to say cruising was successful even though it was like very, very controversial to the point where like they couldn't use any of the sound because they were being protested every day on when they were shooting yeah. it. Sorcerer was a different story. <laughs> for uh, sure. Sorcerer for was, sure. A, was a bomb. Um, but I think cruising actually did okay commercially. It just, everyone, no, I think nobody actually talked about it because they were all embarrassed um, <laughs> by it. And um, certainly I think um, even like the, gay bar scenes in the police academy movies might be referencing cruising in some very unflattering way but uh i i think it's an endlessly fast watch it again because i was more in the middle on it but it's certainly one i i see a lot of value and merit and it's definitely gets under your skin (laughs) in ways that few movies do and freaking is just so good at that he's so good at creating these worlds and having having it be so visceral and intense and creepy and strange and uh but also hooking you in with a like a like maybe maybe a mystery uh, of course going on but just having some sort of maybe conventional element but done in an unconventional way yeah no it's i i i find it really fascinating and i every time i've shown it to somebody they've they've loved it so i I don't know. Arrow put out a really nice Blu-ray of it not too long ago, and um, it fortunately has one of the better commentary tracks that William Friedkin has done because he falls into narrating the on-screen action, if not given a moderator. <laughs> so, um, no, very interesting movie. And yeah, uh, I want to talk to. Uh, I, I kind of hope, especially after seeing um, Colwell, to interview Karen Allen sometime because yeah. uh, I'd like to talk to her about this film and couple others that she's been in obviously yeah i talked to her briefly about a film i love uh, actually two films i love neither of which are on my list sadly because i just didn't have the room with uh, the wanderers the philip kaufman gang movie and That's right. uh, split yeah. image the uh the, the movie about Ooh, cults with uh Peter Fonda. Yeah, yeah so good um what what number are we going up to we're going up to 26, 26. and stopping Okay, so 37 is from that you and I have talked about pretty recently, um, Black Christmas, Bob Clark's uh, great holiday slasher movie. Um, could have easily said Death Dream. It's just kind of a flip of the coin, you know, but... Uh, yeah, same here. I mean, they're both, they're both you know, perfect movies for me. Uh, Black Christmas is one of the 
scariest um, slasher movies still for me. I think um, just the atmosphere of it. uh, I like the characters. I think it's a very well-written movie. I think it's a really um, appealing ensemble. Um, uh, Lynn Griffith and um, Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey. Um, It's got humor to it that that does work for me, Um, but it, it has a sense of the cold that I really like. Um, I mean, you know, we people listen to the Bob Clark episode. If you want to hear us talk about that one more, but uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, great film. I, I never get tired of it. Um, another one that we've talked about on this podcast um, is my number 36 is uh, Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid um, Sam Ooh. Peck and Paws movie from 1973. Peck and Paws. Another one. I don't know why I don't have, <laughs> Ah, I, I was really bring expecting me to bring of, me the head of Alfredo Garcia to be on your oh list. That's surprising. Oh my gosh, what is wrong with my brain? I, have yeah. to, I might have to put it in the top 100 now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great movie too. I mean, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, I think it's just a great love letter to the character actors of Westerns and a great display of everything that made Peckinpah an interesting filmmaker. Um, it's got... Um, you know, a new Hollywood feeling, I guess, in the casting of people like Chris Christopherson and even Bob Dylan, you know, as far as like, they don't feel like um, John Wayne movie kind of actors. Um, But it's, it just has so many scenes that I think are beautiful. I mean, not even like the, the, the slim Pickens scene that we've talked about elsewhere, but like, uh, it's just more about friendship and compromise than about like the traditional, uh, tropes of a western i mean it's like you know the most reluctant chase movie <laughs> because it's just <laughs> friends that don't want to be on opposite sides of a conflict um but it's you know it has the violence it has the slow motion kind of things that you associate with peck and paw but it's i think it's his great film for me um i get why the wild it's bunch definitely be- a, it's definitely a great film yeah. I, I should watch that again it was it feels so long since we've done that episode yeah i guess it has been i mean Jeez. you know ride the high country uh the wild bunch straw dogs junior bonner um even the getaway i mean there's a lot of films that i have a lot of fondness for um that he's made um even the bad ones i kind of find interesting but the uh you know i mean peck and paw uh, I, I i would say that if you haven't seen a Sam Peckinpah film, you probably wouldn't start with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, but um, for me, that's that's my favorite. Um, number Great 30, choice. 35, um, not as beloved by everyone on Director's Club, but uh, you'll probably agree with me, uh, it'd be Mike Lee's Naked. Um, of course. Oh, man, another director that should be on my list. Although I think I like Another Year the best. I totally understand that, and you know, there's probably some nostalgia informing this. I mean, the thing with, with Naked was that I saw it by accident because I had read Roger Ebert's positive review of Sirens, a now forgotten <laughs> John Dugan, Dugan uh, comedy um, that, you know, had like this very kind of frank, refreshing approach to sexuality. And I was in the mood for something kind of like that. And so I miss. And I remember that he had given Naked four stars. And so for some reason, I conflated the two when Naked was in the new release section of the video store. And I'm like, okay, let's check this out. And it is not like Sirens. Um, but it is, uh, um, you know, it, 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 it bowled me over as far as like a, um, 
very funny film, a very grim film, uh, a film full of unforgettable characters and performances. I mean, David Thewlis, uh, I think, is... I mean, what it's like, it's like saying that, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is going, there will be blood. Like it's kind of goes without saying, it's like one of those performances yep. that just kind of marks a career. Um, I, Unforgettable I, in every way. Yes. Um, and I understand, I mean, the first time I remember showing it in college, I had a film club in college and I showed naked and there was a, that was the only one that ever had like a post screening discussion where like, is this film misogynistic? You know, yes or no. I mean, there, cause there was a fair amount of dissent, you know, and it, but it, but a good dialogue, it was respectful and, you know, it's, it is not an easy film. I mean, I, I think that it, it opens with a scene that, you know, will probably send some people, you know, like leaving the other room. And I think, you know, Mike Lee gets over, overlooked sometimes because he's one of those people like Pedro Almodovar that is so consistently great that you know he'll make films that just get overshadowed for like no good reason like All or Nothing or Career Girls um, so that for every film like Secrets and Lies that reaches a large audience there's an equally great film that people just don't know about like another year and um, I don't know I mean it's hard for me to pick a favorite Mike Lee film I just think that that film is so haunting the music is so beautiful. The look of it is so uh, incredibly like photographed and designed. Like it's easy to overlook the, the aesthetic qualities because it's such a character dialogue heavy film, but it's, it's something. I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it, it has a big cult following. I get why people wouldn't care for it. I get Patrick's objections. I think, you know, he's well within his right to, you know, feel like it has uh, real flaws. But for me, that is, you know, an important movie. And uh, mm-hmm. um, one that Patrick and I do agree on, so I keep invoking Patrick, was his show too, <laughs> um, is uh, Messiah of Evil, which I've done a Tracks of the Damned episode with him. Oh, on. yeah. And, That's such uh, a great movie. I love it to death and uh, did a projection booth on it too. And it's a film that gets richer for me over the years. I mean, I liked it the first time I saw it, but every time I've gone back to it again and again, I mean, for me, that's like my carnival of souls, the way it is for, for Patrick, as far as like a film that like, just that the, the feeling of it, the dreaminess of it. I, I, I mean, the more I get to know it um, through researching it for the projection booth or whatever, like the more I get excited by the use of pop art in it or the hmm. use of, um, paintings and murals you know to create environments i mentioned antonioni earlier and it's like the way environments are used to make it scary even when nothing is happening um i find it so striking um in a way that it is like the american you know suspiria or you know it is it is like the the equivalent to any great visually stylish italian horror film um i think that if it was more easy to see in a good version that's changing because the code red uh release you know put it out in cinemascope and then you know the pirating of it like you know that that transfer even if code red releases aren't uh, always easy to come by um that transfer then circulates on the gray gray market channels I, I think if it wound up coming out through someone like arrow i don't think criterion would ever touch it but like you know it, it I think as time goes by, more and more people will fall for it because it's one of a kind um, film. It has 
some great Hitchcockian set pieces, like the uh, a scene in the movie theater inspired by the birds, as far as like, um, you know, like great individual set piece, but the whole thing works um, in a way that, you know, it's a film that had a troubled production. Um, like they didn't really finish the film to the way that they wanted. And I think some of the ambiguity might be. That's what it felt like watching it. Yeah. But not in a bad way. Yeah. But I think that it, what you're left with is something um, pretty intriguing in its own way. And uh, mm-hmm. it feels I, like I, a dream. I want movies to feel like dreams. That's what I'm realizing more and more as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's dreamy, but it's also like, um, again, like the use of location, the use of color, mm-hmm. um, these things like, I don't know, uh, it, 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 it's kind of like a zombie movie. It's kind of like an Evil Dead pre- like predecessor and like the ways like, you know, uh, the, the, the father's recordings, you know, are used, yep, you know, yep, yep. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's a film that only uh, gets uh, more and more uh, important to me as I get older. I, it's one I've thought about doing something more with. I don't know if I will or not, but um, like maybe writing on it one day. I mean, it's I don't know. It, it's 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 one of my favorites. Um, Thirty three. Um, I had a hard time deciding what film noir to include and um I, this is probably one of the more obvious choices I could pick, but I have a real fondness for Out of the Past, Jacques Turner's movie. Yeah, that should be on my list too. That's one of my. That's probably one of my favorites as well. Yeah, good choice. I, I mean, that's one where I saw in Ithaca on the big screen for the first time uh, when I was an usher up there, like I think '97 maybe, and I remember just being so exhilarated by the hard-boiled dialogue of it for some reason it just really kind of excited me. And it's also got the great, um, you know, uh, Chioscuro kind of lighting that, that you'd associate with film. Noir. It's got a great Robert Mitchum, uh, you know, uh, central performance. Um, it's got some very funny, uh, some very funny dialogue. Kirk Douglas is, is, is fantastic as the villain in it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, if you if you like film noir, you probably already know this film. I mean, I was tempted to pick something like Nightmare Alley or The Red House or uh, some of the uh, you know more uh, less less uh, heralded f- films in the genre, but or you know whatever I don't know if you call it a genre or movement or whatever. But this, um, yeah, no. But out of the past is um, one of the greats, and uh, I, I never get tired of it. Um, also fairly progressive in matters of handling race for that period, which is mm-hmm. not, a, not a small thing. Um, 32 is the King of Marvin Gardens. Um, Bob oh, Rachelson's... yeah, you do love that one. I remember that coming up before. Yes, I do mm-hmm. love it. And I love Five Easy Pieces as well, and I nearly picked that, but there's something kind of mysterious about King of Marvin Gardens that I just... It was a film that I always used to put on the video store because I just liked hearing it. Um, hmm. It's Jack Nicholson kind of playing against tight Bruce Dern, getting to play the showier part, but they're both fantastic in it. Ellen Burstyn is amazing in it. Um, I, as a, uh, as a former New Jersey resident, like the use of Atlantic city as this kind of sad little town. There's like um, kind of a sad melancholy um Americana quality to it. And there's all sorts of odd set pieces of, it's a very unusual movie. Um, and I, yeah, I, one that uh, Pauline kale called an unqualified disaster. 
Yes. I just, I don't see that. I mean, again, this is my, a little bit like cruising where I think I was more in the middle on it. However, I see like if uh, rewatches, it might really help for me on this one. I think I'll, I'll grow to appreciate more and more about it. It's something. Yeah. I, I it's, it, you know, I didn't prepare notes for this, um, but it, it's just a film that I, I, I find I find something about it so moving, um, but yeah. in a way, but in a way that is not, um, like easily sentimental. Like there's something very chilly about it at the same time, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, and Nicholson, I don't think I have any other Jack Nicholson movies on here, but he's an actor that I almost always really appreciate in everything, especially that period of his career where everything he was doing was based on picking interesting directors, interesting projects. So, you know, I don't have Chinatown on here. I don't have the passenger on here. I don't have, um, Cuckoo's nest, Cuckoo's nest. I don't have carnal knowledge, but I mean, that whole, that whole era of his, uh, Hmm. filmography is filled with some really interesting movies. And, um, yeah, King of Marvin gardens. I, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's one that more people need to check out. It's part of a great, criterion box set of bbs films um, oh yeah yeah it's i don't know i i i, I could just as easily have said five ec pieces i mean that's an important film to me too but i just flipped a coin and went with king of marvin gardens um 31 is one that you've mentioned in the mood for love Wong car wise movie from 2000 um that's one where i gotta be honest the first time I saw it, I wasn't sure what to think of it because Yeah, same it, here. It I had fallen head over heels like a lot of people, uh, in love with Chunking Express. And then same. And then it was like I forget if there was a delay or what the deal was, but Fallen Angels and Happy Together seemed to arrive pretty close together in my memory of them. Um, and that was like oh, this guy is maybe the greatest director alive kind of feeling because Happy Together, especially, I would understand if people think that's his best film. It's really raw in a way that the restraint of In the Mood for Love might be a little too polite. You might want something that's a little bit more visceral. You know, Happy Together is is that. And um, Fallen Angels is, I can't, like, there's, they're, they're films that are... Uh, so stylish and uh, exuberant and in love with the form, but playful. And so In the Mood for Love isn't that, really. It is a very restrained, uh, gentle, sad, bleak encounter, you know, you know, uh, brief encounter kind of, um, you know, Age of Innocence, kind of like, oh, we shouldn't do this, you know, <laughs> kind of love story. And um, but it's there's something very comforting about it like it just sets a mood that i'm always <laughs> pleased mood. oh yeah 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 but I, it's it's a film that i'm always pleased to return to it but i almost didn't pick it because it's it's become part of the official you know world cinema canon in a way that like maybe it's overshadowing some equally amazing films like days of being wild that i think you know deserve to be talked about more um one kind of why is funny because i don't know if you weren't going to art films in the 90s if it really i, I have no idea what people like if new new viewers are discovering those films the way that you know you and i saw them at the time um but 
it was an amazingly exciting, you know, uh, thing, you know, to fall in love with those films. I have no idea, like, if they might be a little too cute or adolescent in terms of like, you know, the, the, the pop music choices and things that I don't really know or care. I mean, I think they all like just having a, you know, a nostalgia thing for me and um, in the mood for love, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that being, you know, uh, thought of as like one of the new classics of my lifetime, you know, as far as like things I remember when it was a limited release and now it's like, you know, spoken of in the same way that, you know, things like Vertigo or Tokyo story or Citizen Kane are, um, yeah, I, I know. I'm, I feel blessed in that regard to, you know, live at a time when a couple of movies, including the ones that have made the sight and sound list, like In the Mood for Love, are considered all-time great films. And yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I even really love 2046, the film that followed it, that, you know, had the impossible <laughs> task of trying to one-up it. And, uh, you know, that, again, there's... Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, there's just so many beautiful sequences in it i mean i don't know what happened you know after that i mean it seems to be You're supposed to have something coming out i think this next year or this year i don't know i think I mean, to me like after 2046 i haven't really been able to fall in love with anything else he's done which is i think i forget when the hand comes maybe that's the last thing but like um yeah like my blueberry nights and the ashes of time redux and the grandmaster like it's I mean, they're they're made by a skilled filmmaker, but um, that run of films, you know, he had early on, um, you know, I think time will be kind to them. Like, I think that they, oh yeah, for for someone that wants to fall in love with world cinema, they're like some of the most warm and accessible and beautiful movies ever made. Um, you know, and so I'm almost like sheepishly picking in the movie for love because it's become like the de facto Wong Kar Wai film. But um, if I'm honest, that's probably the one I return to the most for people that aren't even like necessarily like foreign film buffs, but I think they like a, uh, a good melancholy romance and, you know, people always respond to it. I love those. <laughs> yes. I understand melancholy romance yes. pretty, pretty well. So yeah, that's no. one of the better examples. I, I, I think it's, you know, I, what more needs to be said about that one. It's a great film. Um, number 30 on my list is not a romance uh and it's another horror movie that i've also done a tracks of the damned episode on is alice sweet alice alfred souls uh slasher movie uh shot in patterson new jersey where my grandfather used to work i just heard patrick applauding <laughs> in chicago here he i mean applauding really loud again like i was not i mean trying to overload my list with horror movies but alice sweet alice is a film that is really important to me um i i like that it's set in a town that I kind of remember as a kid. Um, I love things like Don't Look Now, and it has like that rogue kind of feel in places. Also a little bit of the Italian feeling. Um, it's scary. It's movingly acted. It's kind of, uh, you know, great offbeat kind of supporting characters like the, the landlord. It's just... <laughs> It's just a perfect movie of its type. I mean, I think that it belongs in the same conversation with things like Black Christmas as far as like films that are better than um, the slasher movies that follow Halloween. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy that Arrow was able to work out a, a way to put that out with a new transfer taken from, you know, the original negative because that was something I talked to Alfred Soule about on Patrick's Tracks of the Damned podcast. I interviewed Alfred Soul for that. And 
he made it sound like it was a no, you know, no chance of it because it was just like at a deadlock between he had the rights of the film and they had the negative, you know, and they couldn't seem to work it out. But it is available finally in a good looking version. But uh, that's just one of the great horror movies. And um, so you know, good. So yeah. good. I just showed it to somebody a few months ago and they, it blew them away. It's it works. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it, but um you know, I think Kayla Janice or somebody can probably explain the ideas behind it better than I can. I just, I just think it's scary and, and uh, captivating. Um, number 29 is a much sillier movie, but I can't help it. It is uh, Purple Rain, Albert Magnoli's, <laughs> um, you know, rock musical that made Prince a superstar. Um, this is probably... Yeah, you're the biggest Prince fan I know, I think. Yeah. I, 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 you know there's a lot of competition for the title in the world, but I am one of the biggest that I know personally. Um, yeah, no purple rain. You know, <laughs> it, it's a very silly movie. It's a very misogynistic movie. It is a very trashy movie. I don't care. Uh, I, I can watch it anytime. I think once I had my pupils dilated at the optometrist, I watched purple rain. It still played just as well. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and some of it is the music, but it's also that, that Minneapolis location. It feels very cold. It feels very, um, I, I, I don't know. There's some, there's something about the atmosphere of it. I responded. I, I probably will overuse the word atmosphere to describe half of these movies, but, um, I, I like Prince as an actor. I like, you know, the performance footage of it. I, I, I don't know. It's maybe it's a, it's a, it's not even a film that I really grew up with. I mean, I I saw it once when I was maybe 10 or 11, and my mother had tried to uh, hide all of the R-rated material like by pausing or stopping it when it was on HBO or something. So I saw like this real mangled version of it, but I still learned the word motherfucker through it, um, which I didn't know what motherfucker meant for the longest time <laughs> because in the film, Prince calls his father a motherfucker and his father is beating up his mother. So I thought it had something to do with beating up of mothers. <laughs> um, so, you know, it took me till later on to figure out what it was actually saying there. But um, it's not the I, only movie where a son says that to his father because um, my dad, he, uh -huh. he edited out all the swear words from Christine <laughs> and at one point Keith Gordon's character calls his dad a motherfucker and I'm just like oh yeah that's uh I could I, I, it took me a long time to know what the word was and now I know so yeah but, yeah I yeah. mean I mean you know I I talked about Purple Rain a little bit on the Great Albums podcast where we talk about the album soundtrack um you know talk about the movie a little bit there I mean it's it's probably one of the sillier movies on my list, but it wouldn't be an honest list if I you know picked something classier than Purple Rain. It's just a film that I can put on any time, and um, you know it it was a forbidden fruit type of film when I was a kid. I mean, you know, not in the way that a later film on my list was, but uh, you know, it's a film that when I was a kid, it was rated R. I wanted to see it. There was no way I was going to be allowed to see it. I think I was seven, <laughs> and. Um, you know, it's I don't have a lot of 80s movies like, you know, on my list. I mean, I love Back to the Future and Ghostbusters and Gremlins and things like that. But, but um, you know, Purple Rain means something else to me. I don't know. Um, Talk about one of the all time great uh, uh, concert films, Sign of the Times. Right. Sure. The, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, 
well, that's a whole other conversation. Sure. <laughs> but, but, but Purple Rain is a film that means a lot to me. And, uh, you know, if that's going to be on my list over The Conformist, I'm sorry. I'm a bad cinephile sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, The Conformist, another one I love, but it didn't make the list. Perfect movie, but yep. I only had 50. Um, number 28 is Over the Edge, Jonathan Kaplan's Teen Rebellion Ooh. movie. Um, I can watch it anytime. It's, you know, endlessly entertaining. I've, anytime I show it to anyone, they fall in love with it. I know that it has a big cult following. Mike did an amazing projection booth episode on it once. Um, Heather Drain, I think, is on that one too. Um, but it's it's a story of, um, you know, uh, rebellious kids in a small town. It's the film that gave the world Matt Dillon. Um, has a great rock and roll soundtrack of Van Halen and Cheap Trick and the Ramones and the Cars. That probably is why it's not, you know, more prevalent on home video. Although it had a DVD released at Warner Brothers, but I don't know. I've, I, I, I've heard rumors of people trying to get it for the Blu-ray market. That's all I can say. Um, but it's, it's one of the great movies. It's one of the great movies about teenagers. Um, I don't even know if there's a better movie about teenagers um, in a way, uh, but it was mislabeled as a horror movie when it came out belatedly uh, at the time the warriors had, you know, some violent kind of uh, audience reactions. And so films with a gang ish theme or gang theme, like uh, the wanderers Boulevard nights and over the edge all had their distributions, uh, you know, compromised. And so over the edge, didn't really get the push. It could have been a huge movie. I, 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 it's one yeah, of the I'm great. I'm surprised it wasn't. I'm really surprised. And it was an influence on all sorts of things. I mean, people For that sure. write teenage films like Cameron Crowe, they know Over the Edge. I mean, even um, the right one of the writers of Over the Edge, uh, Tim Hunter, made Rivers Edge, one of my favorite films when I was a teenager. Uh, it's not on my list, but just because I didn't have the room. Um, but as far as like teen alienation. Um, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fun and it's funny. And, um, you know, I mean, if you haven't seen it and you like coming of age films, it's one of the best you'll ever see. Um, so that's my number 28, 27 again with teen alienation is, um, the Beaver trilogy, Trent Harris's movie. Uh, Oh yeah. You were on a projection booth for that, right? I was, I was great. Yeah, that's a film that um, I had a history with a segment of it because um, the so the Beaver trilogy, if you haven't seen it, is is a film built out of three short films. One is a documentary about this local character named Groovin Gary, um, who was trying to get coverage for his local talent show. And uh, Trent Harris came out to film him. And uh, he, the guy's talent was uh, impersonations. And he did a performance of a, uh, as Olivia Newton-John. And it's kind of positioned as a... Um, it's like slightly like you're, you're... You might be laughing at him. You might not be. But it's such a sincere thing. Um, <laughs> and I think that that had real negative repercussions for that young man and this kind of haunted Trent Harris. And then he made this shot on video version of it with Sean Penn as the character, um, which I don't know if that ever even got released at the time, but then he shot it again on 35 millimeter with Crispin Glover playing that character. And I saw that version as the Orkley oh, yeah. kid. 
Um, if you've ever gotten an email from me, um, you might know that's where the Orkley comes from. Um, but the Orkley Kid was a film that I saw in college because um, River's Edge had turned me into a Crispin Glover fanatic when I was a um, college student. I think, well, well, even high school probably. But like, I mean, because George McFly in Back to the Future, I knew that character. But I think um, when you see him in River's Edge, then it becomes like, oh no, there's something very unusual uh, and captivating about him as a performer, at least then i i mean i I can't say that every crispin glover performance is that and in and in a way almost kind of became a shame that he became maybe typecast as just doing odd supporting parts and things but um but he's rarely moving in the orkley kid and so beaver trilogy was something that i was fascinated with because to see a documentary that is the real person of a film that you've seen many times is really surreal. Cause I saw the Orkley kid so many times. I hosted a screening of it in college. Um, I bought, I actually bought it off Trent Harris, you know, um, and it actually was no better quality than the version I had taped off of Kim's video. It was just like a <laughs> dub of a dub. Um, but I don't know, there's something, you know, challenging about it. And, you know, the way that Orkley kid positions it, it almost makes it seem like, um, that it's about somebody that like, this is their secret world to dress, like dress up in their private life, like living Newton John. I have no idea if that was really how Richard Griffiths lived or not. It doesn't really matter. Um, but he's even more compelling than Crispin Glover playing that character. Like he's so warm and earnest and weird that it becomes kind of like Errol Morris territory where you both feel mm-hmm. affection, but also a little bit discomfort because you don't know how you're supposed to feel. And the Crispin Glover version of it makes it into almost a heroic character. But I, I don't know. It's it's an endlessly fascinating, uh, moving, uh, you know, when the Sean Penn one is, you know, tolerable, but it's kind of like this, you know, gap between these two amazing short films. But it's a film that I think you can get it directly from Trent Harris. It may or may not come and go from YouTube and places like that. But um, I don't know. That's 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 one that really uh, is an important film to me. And I, I I was lucky enough to do a projection booth episode on that. And um, and, the, and the documentary is really really interesting too. The part or, four. Yeah, the the uh, Beaver trilogy part four is is. Uh, really moving. Yeah, no, I yeah. those those films need to be more widely seen. Um, so yeah, that's why it's on my list. Um, and twenty six complete polar opposite uh, is Juice, Ernest Dickerson's uh, oh, really? thriller. Yes, shit, I um, haven't seen that since I rented it when I was younger. It's been I, a long time. I need to see that again. I love Juice to death, and uh, hmm. that's a film I first saw in high school. Um, and I just love the the way it kind of captures that world. Uh, New York hip hop, the DJ culture, um, the friendships. Like it's almost kind of in coolie high territory until it yeah. kind of morphs into a thriller. And then it's a pretty good thriller. Um, you get why Tupac Shakur became a movie star. You get why, um, you know, it became a successful film for Ernest Dickerson, who was like at that time best known as like the secret ingredient to all the good Spike Lee movies. He was the cameraman on everything from She's Gotta Have It up through Malcolm X. 
And, um, you know, it has tricks that he might have picked up in those years, but it also, I don't know, it's never boring. It's, 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 a, it's a live, you know, kind of movie. And, uh, you know, because it's a genre movie, uh, it, I think it sometimes gets forgotten about. I mean, even compared to things like Boys in the Hood, which are a much more uh, somber message movies. And, and, you know, that it kind of got swept up in that uh, wave of like, uh, you know, hood movies that I think kind of like New Jack City. Hanging right with the homeboys. Yes. <laughs> I think and, that came uh, out straight, a year earlier. Straight yeah. out of Brooklyn. And uh, I think Menace of Society kind of capped that. No pun oh, intended. Right. Yeah. You know, um, you know, that wave of films, but they were all, you know, very, very energetic, lively, compelling movies. And I think they've, they've held up very well. I think Juice gets overshadowed by Boys in the Hood and Menace Society, but it's my favorite of that wave of films. Um, I also like the Bomb Squad soundtrack to it, the, um, the production team that were behind all the um, public anime records of that period. Um, it's, I don't know. It's just one I've always had a lot of affection for, and so that is my 26. Ernest Dickerson, yeah, he's an interesting director. I know Sergio actually interviewed him fairly recently, and uh, it might have been for Demon Knight. I think they were showing that, uh, which I really like, actually. Yeah, uh, I like Bones. I just saw that for the first time. Recently. I need to watch that, too. Yeah, because yeah, um, I interviewed Ashley Blackwell, who was um, you know involved with that uh horror noir documentary and so i was checking out some films that were uh by people or you know uh, either um interviewed or uh you know the films were featured in that documentary and uh yeah no it's funny i you never would think that he would kind of become a genre movie guy but you know i mean ernest eckerson is kind of more associated with horror i guess yeah uh, juice isn't really quite that although i did mention it on the fade to black commentary for vinegar syndrome, because that both that and fade to black make use of white heat in real obvious ways as a way to predict psychosis in the main character. Mm. I think I'll watch juice tonight. I haven't seen it maybe since the mid nineties. It's so. great. It you'll, you'll have a great time with it. <laughs> yeah. I need something not necessarily light, but just something I haven't seen in a long time. Like I want, I was actually thinking of watching deep cover, since I haven't seen that in a very long time, and I love that. I haven't one too. seen Deep Cover in a long time either, but uh, I, 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 think I remember. I'm like, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for juice. <laughs> you should, yeah, no. Um, let's take a quick bathroom break, and then we'll do our the rest of our list. Number 25 for me is, <laughs> I guess I didn't, I didn't necessarily like sit down to plan this, but, um, it has 25 in the title. Oh, that's my funny. favorite Spike Lee movie. Yeah, no, I know that you love that movie. Yeah, no, that's a great movie. Yeah. Um, 
I th- do the right thing is definitely lower on the list. Uh, I think it's in the 60s, but um, I tend to go back to this one and feel all the feelings you can possibly imagine. It seems to sum up what everybody was feeling at the time that uh, this movie came out. It was almost like shocking in how you know, if it's like 9-11 happens and a year later this movie comes out or something, right? Like, yeah. like it's just, it's all fresh to maybe to the point of discomfort for some people. And certainly one of the more memorable screening experiences of my life where I couldn't contain myself after the mirror sequence. I was just like applauding and all the critics around me, including... You know, people like Ebert were like, "Who's that guy? What's what's his deal? What's going on? Why is he why is he reacting like this?" I'm like, "It's it's just, I just I hadn't seen anybody do something like that." Even though you know, it's an echo of the kind of filmmaking he's in. You know, he's employed with uh, "Do the Right Thing" of just having people look at the camera or yell or say you know racial slurs. But I think it was just done at that time in that way. It really got to me. It still gets to me. Uh, it's just like everything that makes Philip Seymour Hoffman great is in this. Everything that makes Edward Norton great is in this. Yeah. And uh, ev- the score, the just the, the final uh, dream sequence of sorts, um, you know, including Brian Cox's father character in here. So there's just like layer upon layer upon layer uh, as to why this movie I think is important and special and f- probably always be my favorite Spike Lee movie and and the most emotional I get watching a Spike Lee movie, although obviously Do the Right Thing is a very close runner-up in terms of favorites, but I had to go with 25th Hour. I had to go with my heart and yeah, on this yeah. one. I would not uh, think that I was talking to Jim Laskowski if any other Spike Lee film... You know, was on there, but Twenty Fifth Hour was not because I know that that is. I always think about that story with you clapping in the critic screening. Um, yeah, no, I, Spike Lee. I don't have any Spike Lee films on my list, but I, you know, really love Spike Lee movies, and um, I really struggled over like what to include. I just because my favorites of his are films that I find also to be flawed films. Like I, I mean, Do the Right Thing in Malcolm X and things like that. You know, are are great films but the ones i go back to the most are jungle fever bamboozled uh get on the bus interesting <laughs> um like films that i can pick apart if if you know if i if i have to get picky but even things like four little girls i think or uh uh when the levees break uh oh or, yeah he's you know, great at documentaries i mean for sure. he has so many films that i find moving i, I it was actually you know not black klansman or uh, the Five Bloods or the David Byrne film that really uh, moved me the most for his recent years. It was actually that She's Gotta Have It television show he did. Um, uh, I should see that. Uh, I think that's, that's like quietly the major work of the recent Spike Lee renaissance um, because I think he, you know, I don't, you know, Spike Lee writing women characters was something that was always a little bit dodgy in the in the early days. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. Um, but he got um, uh, outside writers, uh, women to 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 write, uh, you know, for that show. And I think that it it kind of re um, 
re you know revisits that material or that territory in like a very fresh way a much older and wiser spike lee kind of way in a way that like i mean i like the righteous anger of the black Klansman kind of spike lee but i think you know for people that you know casually follow his career that's one that maybe more people need to check out if they're fans but don't see everything um 25th hour i remember really liking but i haven't seen it in a little while so i but um my my memory of it is a positive one it better be and a film my 25 is much less critically acclaimed uh film but it would be sleepaway camp 1983 oh, slasher wow. movie from robert hiltzik um Again, like I can watch most early 80s slasher movies. I could do a top 50 slasher movie list with no problem. Uh, Sleepaway Camp, though, is my favorite summer camp slasher movie, more than any Friday 13th movie, more than The Burning, more than Mad Men. Um, and, you know, that ending is, you know, the thing that made it like a uh, thing you showed kids on the playground type of movie. Like if you want to freak people out, show Sleepaway Camp, that ending will definitely um make a an impression on them mm-hmm. but in watching it many times you know to see people's reactions to the ending i found that all of it really uh, absorbs me it's very mean-spirited it's one of the only ones where children are in danger and or killed <laughs> you know like it's the, it's one of the only summer camp slash movies where they're like there are kids at the camp getting killed <laughs> like little kids <laughs> um it's weird like there's like characters like the aunt martha character that like come out of like almost like a john waters kind of tone there is unsavory elements like you know near pedophile kind of menacing like it's it's definitely got an uglier side to it than something like friday the 13th um it's not the scariest movie unless you find the ending scary which it's definitely and you know one of a kind kind of ending but it's like i don't know i grew up in new jersey going to sleepaway camps like that i mean the camp that i went to was literally on the other side of the water from crystal lake in the first friday 13th movie oh my god yeah because i went to um camp mason and camp um what was it? Uh, camp Nobi Bosco was on the other side of the water. I didn't believe the kids in the camp. They were, oh, the those canoes are from the camp from Feather Team. I'm like, whatever. But they were. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that East Coast camp feel that I like. I mean, there's just, it reminds me of my childhood uh, without <laughs> the murders. Um, I just I just find it very funny, very quirky. Um you know, it's got some horrible filmmaking in it. Like there's a very fake mustache, you know, there's all sorts of like weird mistakes <laughs> to it. Uh, some very short speedos, some very, you know, hilarious kind of retorts to things, a very long softball game. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I can watch it anytime. Everyone I've ever shown it to has loved it. Uh, and it's funny because that was a film I felt like I had some ownership of it in the pre-internet era, you know, as far as like I would show it to people, people didn't know it. Um, and it's weird. Cause like I saw Sleepaway camp two first. So I thought it was going to be much campier and just like, you know, you know, boobs and metal kind of shit. And it's like legitimately weird. <laughs> in a, in it a, is. In it a, is. In a way that like, it makes it kind of a unique uh, thing. And so that is, you know, you mentioned something that does, 
it's kind of frustrating but also wonderful at the same time that like in high school and maybe early on into college years i was a rock star of cinema uh in terms of recommendations and like random weird things that only i had seen that i would show to people or tell people about something like after hours uh and now because of the freaking internet and fucking podcasts everywhere i i just look at look at like you know the guys from pure cinema they know everything and there's so many podcasts out there that like oh yeah that obscure movie that nobody else has ever heard of before I, i love it i've seen it 20 times I don't feel as special anymore. <laughs> it's well, just funny how I realized that like back in the video store days where there was no internet and I would just have to like rent something, take it home, watch it, and then tell all my friends about it or have them over to come, come over and watch it. It's like now everybody knows about Sleepaway Camp or Blood Diner or, you know, any number of weird, obscure movies that you th- you thought you were the champion of you know, and the funny, only one. It's funny because, like, you know, we didn't grow up in the age of social media. And so I sometimes wonder if I would have liked it better being able to find all the other Sleepaway Camp fans all over the world when yeah. I was 15 years old or if the pressure of having to be on 24 hours a day you know of like social media would have like made me insane at that age i don't know because you know social pressures are such a different thing when you're a kid um before you have some kind of detachment from it i think it's making me crazy now but uh, you know i think but but that but at that age i can't even i mean yeah it makes people miserable at all ages but i think you know when you're still kind of figuring out who you are as a person there's a weird digression but like you know everything that like yeah i i do i do wonder at the same time like you know, you wouldn't, uh, you would be able to find all the kids into that weird thing right away. Mm-hmm. But it's like you, at one point you were the leader or you were the discoverer of all these things. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was like a, a sense of power or a sense of like knowledge that nobody else had besides you that made you kind of special and kind of cool. And I don't have to say that we're not special and cool now, because yeah. we are, but I'm just saying... Cooler than ever, really. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> you know, raking in the bucks here. Yeah, but, well, um, I, think, I think, you know, what I see, when I see film fandom and uh, online, and I see how people get so territorial and protective of those discoveries, that's the side <laughs> of it that I find a little bit un- sad. Um, yeah. Because well, I do I, see I, that, too. It, with grown-ups, it's really kind of... Uh, it, it's bewildering. I mean, I, I, you know, something like Sleepaway Camp. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it, 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 it has a website and fans. And you know, I, I've actually never met anyone. For all the people I've met involved in films over the years, I've never met anyone involved with Sleepaway Camp. Even when, you know, people like Felissa Rose show up at horror conventions, it just, it just has never happened. But um, I don't know. It, it's, it's nice though because uh, that's a, that's a special little film. I mean, for all its flaws, I, I think it's, um, it's nice that it, it became part of the canon. It, it seems to be happening more and more with films. Some of which we'll be talking about, I guess, as our list, you know, go up to the, to the number one. I mean, there's definitely a few films that will come up that I never knew anyone that liked that film, you know, at one point now it's like, you know, uh, word of mouth uh, has, has worked in the favor of some of these films. Yeah, there's definitely one coming up at number 16 that I felt like I had discovered at a very weird time that I'll 
talk about when we get to it. But for number 24, it's a movie I was going to watch again last night so I could have it fresh in my head. Uh, but I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast at all. And that's uh, Je t'aime, Je t'aime. No, a, you uh, have not. It's a... Alan Renee film. Yes. Um, a very... Trim- like this. It's about a breakup and it's about time travel. So right there, there you go. That's all you need. You need the, if you just put that combination in the movie, I'm likely to be on board. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a these these scientists are trying to determine whether their time machine has worked because they've just been using mice for a while. So they try a human guinea pig named Claude, who uh, well we find out at the beginning of the film, uh, you know, may, may have attempted or yeah, attempted suicide, and it's. Uh, it's crazy. So the, these the the scientists want to send him back a year for just exactly one minute, and he gets basically unstuck in time. Something happens with the machine, of course. Something goes wrong, and he is reliving various moments and fragments of his life in a very fractured way. That um, it's it, it's it's surprising to say that you know Eternal Sunshine is is definitely in the lower. Uh, part of my list it's it's in the top 100 of course but this film feels like it was light years ahead of that concept in a way of like jumping around in your memory yeah well I want to say I don't know that I really heard of it I mean I knew who Alan Renee was from Hiroshima Mon Amour and last year at Marion Bad and some of his earlier movies but I don't think I heard about this one until Eternal Sunshine of the spotless mind came out. I want to say Jonathan Rosenbaum made the connection. That would make sense. Yeah. But anyone who knows me knows I have like an interest in like the neuroscientific or time travel or physics Mm -hmm. memory. And this is kind of a messy representation of all those things mixed in because it does, it's a puzzle and it's not a satisfying conclusion and not everything is spelled out. You don't really know why he does what he does or why they broke up. It's just, you revisit the highs and lows of a relationship all over the place. And sometimes you go back and forth and you're getting really caught up in one uh, particular scene and then it jumps and cuts away. And uh, yeah, I just, it's, it's, I think also something like, you know, blue Valentine took that idea uh, and ran with it in a very successful way. Also, you know, in the boat lower half of my top 100, but it's a great film about relationships. It's a great film about memory. It's a great film about time travel. <laughs> it's like all the things that I'm fascinated by. Although I will say it's more of a narrative experiment than something like you're going to walk away with and understand everything that happened. That, that makes sense. I, I don't think I've ever seen the entire thing. I have the Blu-ray, um, but I don't think I've ever seen the entire film. Um, and so you'll be watching Juice and I'll be watching that. <laughs> Yay! Both start with the letter J. Yes. <laughs> um, so my 24 is um, is Gates of Heaven, uh, Errol Morris's debut oh. feature about pet cemeteries and the people that go to them and the people that run them. And Good this show. was something I saw, I want to say 2001. And I paid $50 for a used videotape of it that um, I forget if this one came from Hawaii. I forget. I, it was something I had to look for for a long time because Roger Ebert was always going on about how great it was. 
And it was one of those films where I used to watch it all the time because um, it wasn't really like there was anything offensive in it. So it was always just on in the video store. Like it just, it was so funny and sad uh, at the same time. And um, I, I, I just, I, I'm not a pet owner. Um, I grew up with, you know, my family's always had dogs. So I, I, I have some connection to that, but it's just like as a, um, you know, a portrait of America and like obsessive behavior and <laughs> business and loss. And I don't know. I don't even find it like I'm not even laughing at anybody in that movie, really. I mean, maybe a little little bits of humor to it. But I, I find it like very thought provoking and uh, sweet in a very uh, strange way. I, I, I mean, I like other Errol Morris films that are a little bit flashier, but there's something very appealing about the lo-fi aesthetic of the early films that in uh, Vernon, Florida, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. Cause I was thinking about this, like there's, I didn't cheat with this list and, you know, try to argue for the Decalogue being a film or the up series being a film, you know, but the up series was another one that I considered for this. Cause it's just one of the most moving cinematic things I've ever experienced um, that Michael Apted series, but again, that'd be a cheat. Um, Gates of Heaven kind of hits a similar note as far as like just uh, documentaries I I can put on and just you know feel uh, feel some kind of way about you know feel some kind of way about humanity in a way that I don't I like but um, yeah I, I don't know I meant to rewatch it to have some more fresh thoughts on it but uh, I think it's on the Criterion channel I know that they put out the Blu-ray for that um, but yeah that's my twenty should have watched I should have watched that too I'm kind of ashamed that Errol Morris isn't on my list because he should be. And that's definitely a film that I love. Um, he and I share a birthday. Oh, that's cool. And, yeah. you know, I think, I don't know how this next one sort of snuck up and became my favorite documentary, but um, I think it, a lot of it does come down to a, a visceral, emotional response to something. And, uh, you, you you know you're doing something pretty powerful when you can basically uh, make a documentary that winds up becoming my number one over a Paul Thomas Anderson movie with Phantom Thread. <laughs> and uh, this one is called The Work, which is number 23. And it's a film that I still think about all the time because I have never seen the kind of primal reactions to uh loss and grief and depression (laughs) the way these these men respond uh in a group setting in this uh in Folsom prison and they basically experience group therapy together uh and the things that they reveal about their lives and themselves I've never seen men get this vulnerable before to where it's just like it was, it was almost like this transference, you know, like these primal crying sessions between men empathically found their way into me. And I was crying along with them. And just like, uh, I, I didn't think I would care or I didn't think, you know, I would feel this moved by, you know, spending time with convicts, you know, it's not something you're prepared for. And yet it shows the power of therapy and group therapy and, what feeling a sense of community does for those who have felt really isolated 
and live with their mistakes for so long and have felt like shit for so long. It's almost like what Salons does in Happiness by making me tear up over the actions of a pedophile, you know? <laughs> right. It's right. like I'm I'm like I'm mad that I'm kind of that's kind of happening that somebody did that because I just I I don't want to like convicts and pedophiles. They're just to me I I fall under the category of somewhat wanting to demonize them and for their actions and for the horrible things they've done and there are men in this film that have raped and done horrible things and yet you're experiencing their humanity through this this incredible process of group therapy which is all the film is it's just a bunch of group therapy sessions uh and you know these men sort of stepping out of their comfort zones and forcing themselves to see you know these prisoners in different ways Mm. that uh it reveals a really positive side of something because I can't stand our prison system and it's horrible, but it allows for something like this to actually happen in some cases. You know, it's the same with them getting an education or whatever, but it's, it's, it's rehabilitation in a way that you've never seen before. Uh, and you may not be as moved or blown away by it the way I was, but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely become my favorite documentary and someone who's, studied psychology and all that stuff. It sort of speaks to the positive side of what can happen when you're honest and open with, with a group of people. Yeah. I, I've never seen that or I don't even know if I've heard of it. So I, I will definitely seek it out though. It sounds like something. I Prepare yourself. Like. Yeah. <laughs> it's heavy. Yeah, no, I, it sounds, it sounds great. I, I will try to see it very soon. Um, my number 23 um, was really hard to pick which film um, uh, from this director who uh, is probably the most controversial person on the list, which is Woody Allen. Um, I'm, dun, dun, dun. I'm going with Manhattan, but uh, it could have been Annie Hall. It could have been Hannah and Her Sisters. It could have been Purple Rose of Cairo. Crimes um, and Misdemeanors. Crimes and Misdemeanors. I think... You know, that run of films from Take the Money and Run through Sweet and Lowdown, which is like 30 years of films, a film Whew. a year. Uh, I like nearly all of them a great deal. Uh, I like a few films after that, but that particular run of films, I think, is just full of treasures. I think um, the reason I chose Manhattan, which is probably the one that if you hate Woody Allen, is easiest to uh, get upset about because it's you know he, he plays a character that's dating a high school girl in it and this definitely like points towards future scandal um, you know I think there's I mean Annie Hall uh, was the film that made me a fan of his um, and that one is just a very funny uh, playful romantic uh, film and Manhattan has a little bit of that feeling but it also has some of the seriousness of his dramas it also is the most beautiful looking film of his, um, even more than the Vittorio Storaro films he's been doing in recent years, which are like insane looking. <laughs> um, you know, I, I love, I love Manhattan, the city. I like, I like those parts of New York and those Woody Allen films, um, you know, capture a fantasy version of that city. It's not really, I don't think an accurate <laughs> vision of the, of anything, but as a place of like, privileged cultured people talking about music and books and conversation i i find it pleasant to be in that environment i get why that was always an off-putting aspect of them even before people found woody allen the person uh 
troubling character. Uh, I think there was just something about that world I always found really appealing as a place to visit in the movies. And Manhattan, the the movie, uh, is the most inviting environment that he captures on film as far as like that cinemascope black and white photography that uh that use of shadow i mean we mentioned the godfather earlier and you know this is gordon willis at the peak of his abilities um i don't know there's something uh that's always kind of struck me about it even though i think there's problems with it you know i think um i find the ending uh, you know a little trite (laughs) but uh yeah yeah but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's it, when I put it on, it's just a, it's you know, comforting film, uh, and most of his films from that run of films, I would say that about. I mean, Stardust Memories, I like Interiors, even the ones that were not popular, Zelig, um, you know, uh, it's just uh, Sweet and Low Down with Sean Penn. I mean, I, you know, that's another movie that needs a proper release, doesn't it? I, I yeah, I've seen it forever. Yeah, I mean. You know, it's funny. I worked on an MGM title um, for, uh, you know, home video. And a friend of mine did a commentary for it. And they actually made them remove references to Woody Allen on the commentary. Um, And MGM distributes uh, Manhattan and Annie Hall and all these Woody Allen films. They make millions of them. But it's, you know, it's just where we are now. It's not even... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know the, the, the they get squeamish about even that um and I, you know I, that's that's fair. i you know i'm not i'm not here to tell people you know you know what to think on you know directors like woody allen and roman polanski or whatever but like you know for me i mean that's the, the those films uh you know and i've talked to a lot of people that like woody allen was a gateway auteur for a lot of writers i mean that was a, that was somebody where you could really um get a sense of a writer director and a consistent set of themes an evolution of style. Um, you know, I used to think that he would be remembered as one of the great American filmmakers. I don't even know if he'll be canceled completely, you know, over time, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's that's- interesting that his films still, still got kind of, kind of a release. I think, uh, at least the rainy day in New York one did. I know he had yeah. one called fest Rif- Rifkin's festival. Yeah. Was supposed to come out, but, yeah, I, I'm sure I, it eventually. I, I wish will. I was. I wish I was more excited about new Woody Allen movies now. But it's, I mean, it's Rainy Day in New yeah. York is a pretty bad movie. I, I, you know, I've met defenders of it. I think that they are confusing their, you know, support for him legally or whatever with you know art, you know, because <laughs> I, I don't see how people could think that's a good movie. But maybe you know, maybe it grows on you. I don't know. But like, um, yeah, I, I think Manhattan. Uh, just you know if i had to pick one that you know i i changed my pick on that one throughout the day i mean it could be annie hall if we talk in a few hours but uh you know that's that that series of films i i I can't uh i can't discount them they're important to me i'll call you at like three in the morning and ask you are you sure are you sure it's uh manhattan nope now it's love and death now oh okay well, it, I can understand that, and Woody Allen is the director that should be on my list, but uh, I don't know. Maybe just the enthusiasm has kind of died out, but I understand why he's a respected auteur and has contributed so many great films, especially early on, to the world of cinema. And there wouldn't be... I mean, I think Annie Hall is a ridiculous influence on so many romantic comedies to come. I mean, it might be the most influential romantic comedy of our lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I think you may be right. 
I mean, you don't even have to get to when Harry met Sally, you know, and the influence of that. Um, but I mean, even things like, you know, uh, even things like Hal Hartley, even things like Whit Stillman, even things, you know, mm-hmm. like Kevin Smith. I mean, all sorts of things you could trace to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, kicking and Screaming. Yes. Another one that I love. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 crazy. There's just uh, we're getting we're getting to some titles that I've definitely brought up on the show in the past about how much I love them and I won't go on and on and on about them. Uh, but certainly it, it is difficult for me to choose a definitive Kelly Reichardt film for my number 22 here. But mm-hmm. uh, I had to go with Wendy and Lucy because I, I have a cat. <laughs> I know what it's like to build a bond with, with an animal, but uh, when people ask me about some of my favorite performances, I do tend to go to like, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee in Georgia or Julianne Moore in Safe. But there's 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 something about the subtle grace and humanism that Michelle Williams brings to this character and also was probably the first time I was genuinely surprised by what she can do um, mm. because... I think before that, I really dis- dismissed her as the Dawson's Creek girl and really didn't expect her to evolve in the way that she has. Uh, I'm sure there are other films that what? before this that what? are... I'm trying to think the Baxter, where that falls. Because I know that you're a big fan of the Baxter. I, I do. I mean, she's charming. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, that isn't, it, that isn't Winnie and Lucy for sure. Yeah, so when I saw this movie, and especially after having gone on a road trip where I am literally sleeping in my car, uh, you know, just save some money here and there. I didn't want to get like, you know, a motel room all the time, or there were some cases where I was a little shy to ask if I could sleep on a couch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understood a little bit about what this character is going through, although I've never done what they what they're doing and making an extreme life change. Uh, but you know, it's about not having the financial means to do what you want to do. And it includes getting your car fixed, which is something that I think everybody who has ever owned a car, (laughs) when, you know, when you take it in, when you see that check engine light and you take it in and you find out it's going to cost like, you know, $500 or $1,500, you're like, how the hell am I going to be able to afford this? You know, uh, but it's you know it's a, it's it's really about how you know poverty is a condition of circumstance and you know it's not just it's not about like oh this person is poor it's just the, the what they're going through at that time is is has has caused them to run out of means and you should be empathic as opposed to judgmental towards that person uh and I mean, again, like I, th- I think she, I don't think she always intends to make these, you know, statements about capitalism or whatever. But it's sort of, it's it's sort of there. Um, I mean, it's more about economic hardship and certainly about the bond that you have with a pet. But also, there's that creepy sequence that I think really holds true about the fear women face in a world of men, where she's trying to sleep outside alone in the woods, yeah. and you don't know what's about to happen. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 I know the scene you're talking about. 
So there's just, I just think that there's a lot going on in this film that really I respond to more than uh, all of her other films. And Michelle Williams is just a national treasure. (laughs) I just think she's incredible in everything. And this was the first indication to me, at least that she's one of my favorite act, if not my favorite actress of all time. Did you, um, did you not think that with Brokeback Mountain? I thought that was a a good supporting (laughs) performance. Yeah. Not like, I mean, I know she was nominated for it and everything, but not not to yeah. the I mean, degree that here. I mean, she yeah. carries the whole movie here, so it's, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wendy and Lucy, I mean, to me, feels like um, like an American indie kind of, and I don't know if this is like, I don't know if I've ever read any reviews of Wendy and Lucy, so I don't know if this is like an obvious comparison or not, but it reminded me of um, Umberto D and Bicycle Thieves and... Um, mm. Also, uh, Vagabond, the, uh, the yeah, Vada yeah. Movie. another movie I love. Yep. Yeah. Um, felt like that, that same kind of like neo realist, um, you know, commenting on the life, you know, the life of a, of a, you know, a poor person, you know, kind of the, the economic situations that she gets into is, I don't know. I mean, that's a film that I think might be my favorite Kelly Rockard film as well. Um, as far as Michelle Williams, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think. I think she really is heartbreaking in Manchester by the Sea, and uh, oh. so that's oh. that might be the performance of hers. That I, I have not seen the uh, the the Fosse Verdon um, uh, thing, and uh, so I don't know. I mean, she's yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, she's 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 had like an interesting post Dawson's Creek career, you know, definitely paid her dues in some smaller films to work her way into, um, you know, working with the bigger filmmakers, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting, um, she takes chances, which is good. Yes, exactly. Um, and in ways that really are surprising. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I continue, I continue to be excited about whatever she does. So, I think there's a couple more movies. No, there's at least one more where she's in. I think. I yeah. I think I can guess what it is, but we'll see. Um, okay. But um, she is not in my uh, number twenty-two, which is the Decline of Western Civilization Part Two: The Metal Years. Ooh, yeah. Penelope Spheris's documentary on the uh, glam metal scene of Los Angeles. Um, this is a film that. Um, probably one of the you know in terms of like my history with it i think i was 12 when i saw it the first time um you know i it's and it's changed for me what it means because when i was a kid i was a heavy metal kid when i saw this movie and so it was just exciting to see megadeth in a movie when i was (laughs) you know that age and to see um you know i mean it was like you know very funny to me um, to see, you know, some of the uh, uh, kind of like Ozzy Osbourne making the scrambled eggs in the morning and things like that. But, you know, it's as I get older and like have a detachment from that whole heavy metal thing, um, it's about people trying to become famous. Um, you know, it's about stardom. It's and it's it it catches like this wave of aspiring rock stars that without exception failed at that other than i mean think vixen had a a moment of glory but uh you know all these all these musicians that are interviewed in it um 
you know, we're s- struggling and I, I, they didn't achieve the rock star dream, but everybody that was famous at the time in it is still famous. <laughs> it's weird. Like, cause you know, a lot of them had TV shows like Gene Simmons or Ozzy Osbourne and they had documentaries like Lemmy before he passed away or the people like Alice Cooper, <laughs> um, <laughs> Even uh, Megadeth got more famous afterwards. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to think what to say about it. It's, you know, D- Penelope Spheres' early films all dealing with punk rock like um, Suburbia and Decline of Western Civilization, the original film, uh, meant a lot to me in college. But um, And they still do mean a lot to me. But um, The Metal Years, it's just so funny and so sad. Um, I think about, I mean, the famous sequence with Chris Holmes from Wasp in the pool. Um, do you know the, have you, have you seen Decline too? Uh, in a lot, not in a long time, but I, I, I am familiar with it. Yeah. I, it's just, um, this great, hilarious, weird set piece of self-loathing while he's like drunk in the swimming pool while his mother sits by and he's just, you know, he goes from kind of like the boasting about groupies and you know the excesses into like just revealing just how much he hates himself and it's a really odd captivating moment that kind of throws a cold bucket of ice water on all these rock star (laughs) dreams um i don't know there's something uh that is always you know i can watch it anytime i would love i would pay a lot of money to see a sequel with everybody that's involved in it now looking back on it i did meet chris holmes once and he was nice about it because i did talk to him about it at a convention once um but yeah i i I don't know if i have too much more say other than it's just a film that i always return to and uh i i I wrote about it for a book that will hopefully one day come out but it was years ago that i wrote this so who knows (laughs) um you know if you'll ever see the light of day (laughs) That's a great choice. One that I should revisit because it's been a long time. But um, yeah, no, I th- we're getting into some titles that there's no reason to go on and on about them because you know what they are. You know why they're great. And if for some reason you don't understand why they're on a list of favorites, then, you know, you might be cuckoo. So, uh, you know, you can always send me an email, Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com and say, you know, something like, I don't think John Carpenter's The Thing is that great. And I'll certainly read it, but I I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Everybody has, it's all subjective. Everybody has their own taste. and But it's one of those things too, where like there are some titles coming up where, um, yeah, the number 21 is The Thing by mm-hmm. John Carpenter. And if you don't love it, I'm not sure, you know, uh, we can get along. <laughs> I mean, the, the there's thing- just some titles where I, yeah, I kind of go, this to me is one of the all-time great horror films about paranoia and, you know, in a claustrophobic contained setting with all very memorable character actors interacting together that um, I don't I don't know if it gets much better than, you know, what John Carpenter did with this film. It really, it just, it's an unbelievable experience. And every time I see it, I go, that's a perfect movie. The end. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, The Thing was the first R-rated movie I saw, actually, um, at Disney World as a family vacation when um, it was a new-ish film. It was like the in 
room like hotel like motel kind of movie selection <laughs> so that's how i first saw it it really scared me uh a big you know a, a great deal i forget how old i was it was like 1983 so um yeah i mean what do you say about the thing you know it's masterpiece it, it is not my favorite john carpenter movie that is coming i up. understand i but, understand uh, but i would never kind of get into a debate with somebody about why the thing isn't his best movie because i i think for you know it might be his scariest movie i i, I certainly can see that argument uh, it's you know it's the best marriage of him having lots of money and still being really inspired as a filmmaker mm-hmm. um i mean most of my favorite john carpenter movies he was working with a lot less resources and that's the best marriage of like universal's budget and carpenter uh at the height of his powers so yeah no i mean the thing is great it's it, it I, I don't even know that there's that many detractors now there was a lot at the time i think now it's kind of won that battle it's probably his most popular movie well, we're, yeah. we're in top two. <laughs> but I got to say, John Carpenter, well, we'll talk about him more in a bit, I guess. But, you know, um, I love that he's alive to see himself turned yeah. into the Hitchcock while he's alive to enjoy it. Um, Agreed. You know, because he, you know, I mentioned Argento and I mentioned, you know, non-genre, but Woody Allen. But like, in terms of people that had like, a long run of consistently great work. John Carpenter is like, no, there's no peer for the American genre filmmakers of that generation. Like he's the best one. I know. I want him to make more movies, but maybe he's done and that's fine too. I think he might be done, but it's, you know, and you know, not that the ward and um, ghosts of Mars and vampires were, (laughs) you know, suggesting that he was still, uh, you know, making the, the the greatest work of his career, but I think people would be really excited if he ever did make another film. But you yeah, know. kind of like kind of like uh, you know someone like Joe Dante, where I'm just like, if they're done, that's cool. But I I would love it if they continued working because I they're two of my favorite directors. So. I mean, David Cronenberg, same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what's your number twenty one? Number twenty one is Out of the Blue. By Dennis Hopper, 1980. Uh, Trouble. I still need to watch this. Yeah. yeah. Why have you put this on my list? Yeah. Um, there is a, a restor- you know, restoration that happened recently that um, I don't know when it's coming out on Blu-ray, but um, you know, it's one of my favorite films. It gets better for me uh, every time I watch it. Linda Manns. It's one of her great. It's her. Like it's one of the great young uh, uh, woman performances of that, you know, really for me, just period. I mean, I love her in that movie. I mean, you might know her as the um, the little girl from Days of Heaven, or if you know the ah, Wanderers. Ah, yes, okay. She's a little gang deb in the Wanderers, and she later shows up in things like the game and Gummo. But I think Out of the Blue is her is her uh, pinnacle. You know, that's, that's, her, that's her key performance. And that's also the best film by a mile that Dennis Hopper directed uh, as, hmm. you know, you know, and I like some of his other movies, but that's, there's no contest. And it's, um, I think with Dennis Hopper is, uh, there was a stretch of time between uh, Easy Rider and Last Movie through the, um, 
the the sober years in 86 with Hoosiers and Blue Velvet and River's Edge and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Like there was that stretch of time where he was a full-blown alcoholic and, you know, really taken down by his uh, excesses. And he shows up in great films like Apocalypse Now or Tracks or... Um, what's another one I'm trying to think of American friend of vendors movie Ooh, um, yeah. where he has like this haunted quality about him. Um, you know, you, you, he's, he's overcoming personal demons to be there, <laughs> you know, um, and out of the blue seems to tap into that the best as far as like the use of him as an actor. Look, I don't know that he's ever more, I mean, he's scarier in things like blue velvet, um, but he's never more heartbreaking than he is in out of the blue. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I mentioned over the edge and this is a lot less playful and fun. Like this is a much more harrowing movie, but, um, not worse for it. I think it, it's, you know, kind of a lost American classic in a way. I, I, it's one of the great new Hollywood films that kind of didn't really like find its audience at the time. I mean, distribution was kind of a little bit uh spotty for it and it kind of i found it on home video i it was in the cult section of a video store in new jersey and i didn't even know notice that it was the girl from the wanderers because she's got a little memorable supporting part as peewee in the wanderers which is a film that i wish was on my list i just ran out of room but um but she's so captivating um you know uh I, I don't want to spoil any scenes in it. It's definitely grim. So if you don't like uh, films that go in dark places, it's not a film to seek out. But uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely one I think you would like if you ever get to see it. Um, I'm it, finding it um, it's in ways that I can't say, but I'm <laughs> finding it um, right now. And also it looks like it, yeah, it's kind of one of those out of print dvds yeah it had a um it had a dvd through anchor bay that had a commentary by dennis hopper it's it's kind of in and out of circulation i mean it, it has a cult following that only continues to grow i know chloe seven i think is a big fan of that movie um ah, i can see yeah i can i can understand why i mean maybe looking at just the cover and sort of what the film is about but also it's just what a weird career of directing this guy had because God, I can't stand that backdraft. Is it not backdraft? <laughs> the, uh, it was called backtrack or something, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. also known as catch fire, which I, mm-hmm. that movie was awful to me. I've I don't never know. seen it. Uh, I, I know that that was kind of not like, uh, his director's cut. <laughs> Let's say. Yeah, it's, but I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I it's I think what sucks too about that movie is that was the first experience I ever had of I believe Jodie Foster saying that you know she wasn't supposed to be like the shot of her nude coming out of the shower wasn't supposed to be in the movie, but mm. of course they put it in there anyway, and so she was really unhappy about that. Uh, but it's that that whole movie is a mess, but it has one of the greatest like casts of supporting character actors that you'll ever see yeah um so it's i i it's really interesting i mean i like easy rider i like the last movie i i like the hot spot for what it is you know i mean there, he, he's, <laughs> you know, there's there's a uh but i mean his whole career i mean you know 
from Rebel Without a Cause and Giant to Easy Rider to Apocalypse Now to like Blue Velvet to like True Romance. Like it's such an interesting body of work. I mean, he touches so many different, you know, waves of American film. Um, like yeah, there's no yeah. other career like equivalent to that one. And um, I mean, he's in a ton of dreadful films. I mean, he just had to keep working, but um, you know, out of the blue, he's definitely near the very top of his body of work and you know better than most i you know i'll take that over apocalypse now i'll take that over you know easy rider i'll take it over a lot of films that you know are you know famous for a reason but uh yeah no it's it's and whenever it does finally show up on blu-ray it's you know that cult is only going to grow bigger speaking of the color blue Mm. uh number 20 on my list is punch drunk love ah and it's uh, there's a lot of blue, a lot, a lot of a lot of use of colors in general in that movie. But um, I don't again, like you know, people who know me, people who've listened to the show, Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite director, and this uh, this is uh, the first of two movies <laughs> on my list that he's made, and they've become my two favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies over time. As much as I love everything else, uh, yeah. You know, we'll this one I got him again. <laughs> I go back to yeah, time and time again, and I don't need to tell you why I love Punch Drunk Love because you know it, you've seen it, and uh, it's just one of those films that I'll always revisit and find so much to love about it. Um, especially, yeah, this was definitely one of those periods too where I just became so hyper aware of sound design and score and what they can do to, um, highlight specific moments and even just the beginning i remember sitting in the music box theater for the premiere he was supposed to be there but he got sick yeah. and um that first the, the the first truck turning over accident was so loud because like it was so quiet and then all of a sudden that truck the in, <laughs> it made the speakers like distort and sound way too loud and i think he purposely did that i think he purposely turned that accident way up in the mix and that's when i sort of realized oh these things that you do like that those little touches are deliberate and weird and unexpected and that's how you that's how you get your audience on edge (laughs) because you just don't know what's coming and that's kind of what adam sandler's character goes through throughout the rest of this movie is like weird crazy things like that that you just never know when they're coming yeah, I, I love that movie, too. I saw it four times in the theater, uh, once with uh, one of the stars of Wendy and Lucy, actually. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, his career is one of the most unpredictable <laughs> of, of, of contemporary directors, as far as I never really know what what each one's going to be. He's definitely not a uh, someone that kind of does variations on a on a theme. <laughs> The way that... I have no idea what Soggy Bottom is. I have no clue what that movie is going to be at all. And that's yeah. kind of what the, what I'm so excited about. Because is it going to be a weird, surrealist, quirky comedy thing the way that he does? And it's still melancholy? Or I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, and that's fine. It's like the same thing with The Master when that was being talked about. Like, I have no idea what this is going to be. <laughs> so yeah. I had a friend, that's exciting to me. I had a friend that hated Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. Um, you know, we used to always get into discussions about it. 
Um, but he loved Adam Sandler's early comedies. And I remember we, one of the times I saw Punch Drunk Love was with him and he liked it a lot. So it's, you know, um, you know, I I wish he made more films that were like two hours and contemporary, you know, I mean, like, you know, he's kind of like Tarantino, like everything's got to be an an epic and often period setting. Those are great too. But I, I I think that, um, you know, there was something nice about the concise, eccentric nature of punch drunk love and i think that that was also kind of surprising that he was not working with that batch of actors that i associated with i mean philip seymour hoffman and, and louis guzman you know returned from the ensembles but um you know it was it was surprising to me that you didn't have john c Riley and people like that anymore in his universe but uh no it's 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 a lovely movie and uh yeah, I'm sure Paul Thomas Anderson would know the film that I'm going to say next very well because my number twenty is Nashville. Never heard of it. Well, with Robert Altman, you know, was definitely one of the directors when I was trying to, you know, hold myself to a one film per director rule. Robert Altman is definitely one of the more challenging for me because um, mm-hmm. in recent years I've been uh thinking california split is my go-to answer but i love three women and i love nashville i love mckay mrs miller love long goodbye um he'll come up again yeah and nashville i think at the current moment i think i just find the music soothing (laughs) i i think that's why i'm putting it today instead of i mean i elliot gould is so amazing in the uh long goodbye and california split and Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall are so uh, otherworldly, <laughs> you know, and three women. I mean, I, you know, I did a, uh, gosh, how long was that episode of Directors Club? Like, I know we recorded for seven hours, but it was at least four and Good a half. Good Lord. We talked for a long time that day. <laughs> but I, I've gone, I've gone on and on about Robert Altman on, on, on an other incarnation of Directors Club. <laughs> but, um, you know, Nashville, I think I just picked it today because it's, just overflowing with scenes that I think are uh, amazing. I, 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 I don't know, like if most people listen to the show like this would probably know Nashville, it's, you know, musical ensemble comedy drama. Um, I don't know. I mean, what to say about it that I haven't already said uh, on that other episode, but it's, it's what I'm picking today, but it'll be California split tonight. <laughs> yeah, that can happen. That definitely can happen with a filmmaker who's made so many masterpieces and, you know, again, McCabe, Mrs. Miller could have been on here. You know, there's so many. There's just, we'll get to one though. Yeah. Uh, at number 19, it's my new favorite Coen Brothers movie. Can you guess what it is? It's one that Patrick doesn't seem to think is that great. Is it Inside Lewin Davis? It is. That's my favorite of theirs too. <laughs> um, it's become that way. I mean, it's like, I love, I love Barton Fink. I love No Country, Burn After Reading, Serious Man. I mean, there's so many. I would have thought Raising Arizona would be your pick, actually. Uh, You know, we watched it, uh, Patrick and Regina and I watched that for New Year's Eve last year, the 2019, going into 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, you know, I don't love this movie as much as I thought I did, surprisingly. I do do love it, but not to the point of the way I do about other Coen Brothers movies. Mm -hmm. So it, it went down. Whereas I'm surprised by that. However, uh, and then again, I do love Blood Simple too, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, but there's something 
personal um, about Inside Lewin Davis. And I remember Sergio's criticism of the film was, I think the reason why all these film critics love it is because they could see themselves in this film. It's like, you know, these, these struggling artists who never really got anywhere because, you know, uh, other, other writers have gone on to succeed where they haven't and, and things like that. I don't know if I entirely agree. I, I, I guess I can see that to, to, to some degree, but I also, um, I also just feel for this character, even though he is an asshole and does very selfish things throughout, including abandoning a cat, which I would never do. Um, and it's very upsetting at one point, but it's, it's just really, uh, it's an, it's kind of an enigma in the way that a lot of great Coen brothers movies are. And yet it's really funny. It's really sad. It's really weird. The whole, you know, road trip with John Goodman is, is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it has a lot to say about folk music and that scene. Uh, and certainly one of my all time favorite endings just because, <laughs> just because it's like, um, yeah, you, you can, you can, you can be an amazing talent, but it's just not your time. It's not, it's just not going to happen for you. Whereas for this other guy who just came on right after you or whatever, <laughs> it's, it's his time. Like it's, he, he's going to connect with people and you're not. And that's just, that's just the sad reality of it. And also the scene with his father. It's like, yeah, yeah. you can play this most beautiful song and have it mean so much and have it, you know, basically be dedicated to him for very loving reasons. But in the end, um, sorry, human nature, <laughs> like things, something like that is going to happen to you down the road, you know, like death is creeping around the corner in some way or another, or at least the end of your life. And I just think this movie is chock full of very memorable scenes and a lot of quotable dialogue. And also one of my favorite musical moments with the please Mr. Kennedy song. <laughs> so, uh, it's, as time has gone on and the more I've rewatched this, the more it's, really become everything I love about the Coen brothers in one film. And God, Oscar Isaac is so good. I'm really pissed that he didn't get more accolades at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, you know, I mentioned purple rain earlier and the, uh, the climactic performance Isaac, uh, Oscar Isaac has in inside Lewin Davis. I, I kind of would compare them as far as like the uh, emotional climax of the films seem to be. Yeah you know, similar to me. And, and, and it is like, like, as, you know, with, as with Nashville, I mean, the fact that I find some of the music, so much of the music in it soothing, um, does matter when you were visiting a film. I mean, you know, uh, I think that definitely gives it a, a leg up that, uh, you know, other people might prefer the soundtrack of something like, Oh brother, where art thou? But, um, for me, this is the, the best musical, you know, film of theirs. Um, and, and totally I agree. I know from putting my list together that I seem to have some kind of um, connection to films that like express the cold. Well, I don't know what that's about. Maybe it's an East coast thing, but uh, you know uh, this is a film that feels chilly to me um, in the environment that it's set in. Um, it's a perfect winter movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like when he's stepping in that slush and everything, it's like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I know what that's like. I remember it was cold the night that, yeah, I saw it in Philly. I want to say it opened around Christmas time. Um, and uh we're in the winter months it was definitely like an award season type kind of thing and yeah no i i mean the coen brothers 
are not on my list. Um, but I like, you know, I think I like all of their films to some extent. Um, you know, maybe not Intolerable Cruelty or The Lady Killers, but I haven't seen them since they came out. But they're yeah, always I'm with you there. They're yeah. they're always interesting, you know, and always like um, films that seem to improve on rewatch, which is why I never know what to think when I first see them because I almost never like them when they come out. I've been saying this about yeah, I think I've said this on the podcast. Like, expect to rewatch Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Coen Brothers movies before your final you know, declaration on where you stand with them. Time with Wes Anderson too. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that that's, that's true as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And speaking of Anderson, um, <gasps> my number 19 is Magnolia, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film and still easily my favorite thing he's done. Although I love Boogie Nights a lot too. Too long. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Of course I love it. Of course. Yeah. No, Magnolia. I mean, I don't know. I, I did a, um, on the now playing network, I did a, uh, fresh perspective episode on this one. <laughs> um, y- you know, I, I think it's just the, the open hearted, exuberant, messy, emotional, you mm-hmm. know, like he's given all the, uh, he's given all the money, all the actors, all the power to make this crazy Los Angeles, like tribute to his dad. <laughs> kind of like it's it's such a weird indulgent movie but it is funny and moving um i i feel like i have a limited vocabulary for how to describe my favorite films but you know it's it's a it's you know i when it came out in 99 it didn't actually reach where I lived until 2000. So I didn't even think of it as a 1999 film because I think it played New York, but then it didn't reach where I was living in Jersey until uh, January or February. I can't remember. But so it became my favorite film of 99, like the following year, if that makes any sense. Like I, when I would make my little top 10 list that year, Magnolia wasn't even on it because I didn't even know to anticipate it. I mean, I liked Boogie Nights and Hard Eight, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't expecting Paul Thomas Anderson to become the guy, you know? Um, and then I saw it in the theater and it just, I remember just my jaw on the floor, like, you know, that like whole opening sequence with Ricky Jay and all the coincidences and just like, what, mm. what is going on here? And then it just goes into that weird black comedy sequence of like the police investigation of a disturbance. And then it just rushes through like all of these strands of narrative, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, William H. Macy and uh, all of all these great faces, you know, given like these juicy parts to play. And it's like, you know, I, I grew up loving shortcuts. I mean, I, in another life shortcuts could have been on this list. Um, you know, it reminded me of that, but also, a much sweeter film than that. And I like all of the cryptic, you know, Kubrickian kind of Paul Thomas Anderson movies that come later, but I kind of miss this Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, and I don't know, you know, if it's just, you know, you can only be that vulnerable once, you know, before you, you know, start making things like the master, which everybody is arguing about in the lobby. But uh, I mean, for me, this is like, you know, I like everything else he's made, but it, it it's not quite the same thing. Um, and I think about that 90s indie post-pulp fiction 
uh, time with rose-colored glasses because I remember the excitement of things like Happiness coming out or, you know, you know Buffalo 66 or Henry Fool or, you know, like it, it seemed like all the time there was something to talk about, to argue about. I mean, 1999 was, and I've said this, you know, on other podcasts, was um, the most exciting year I ever had going to the movies and not because the films were all great. Um, there's a book just about 1999 being this amazing year for movies. I'm like, well, I don't agree with a lot of these points, <laughs> but I mean, for me, it was like the year of, um, the Blair Witch Project phenomenon, the Sixth Sense phenomenon, uh, the first new Star Wars film, the final Kubrick film, the um, Matrix, the Matrix, which, you don't love, which I don't but, like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but like new directors, like, you know, like, you know, rising indie people like david o russell has three kings and then you where being john malkovich comes out and you know you had the straight store you had you know um uh fight club you had uh bringing out the dead you know, i mean i don't know like even things like existence that maybe not like well any of you and i have talked about that like but it was just kind of like you know or all about my mother um I, I don't know it was just a very like it just felt like uh, all these different exciting things to talk about uh, kept coming and even if you didn't like dogma you wanted to see it because the church was so mad about it you know <laughs> um it was just a, a pretty uh, exciting time i mean granted i was like 22 or whatever so it's like you know it, it also is like you know a young person's kind of perspective on it but um magnolia seemed to kind of swallow it all up when that finally came to new jersey as far as like the big statement <laughs> i mean and really big <laughs> Um, it seemed like the perfect movie to end the decade with. Yeah. Just like let the ro- let the frogs rain <laughs> on the year two thousand. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, that was a pivotal moment in my movie going experience. Obviously, Boogie Nights two was, and uh, then when I saw Magnolia in the same theater and everybody in the audience hated it, I stood up and applauded <laughs> at the end, and they didn't like that I was doing that, but. I said, I don't care. I think this is a masterpiece and you're all crazy. It's definitely the longest <laughs> film I saw twice in its initial theatrical run. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like, come on, filmmakers, do take chances. Do things like, yeah, do things like you're doing in this movie because I, I am here for them. I'm here for the surprises. I'm here for the weirdness. Uh, I'm yeah. here for takes that are probably too long, but I don't care. Well, what was that? Uh, what was that um, under the silver lake or the, uh, yeah, exactly. That's a movie too, that I think is very flawed and I can, I, I, I can openly admit to that, but it excited me because I didn't know what was coming and it was weird. And I, you know, I couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was trying to say. And I like that. It's, you know, there's a lot of things going on in that movie that just appeal to me um, in similar ways that we'll talk about with another Paul Thomas Anderson movie. (laughs) That okay. we'll get to later. Yes. Um, number 18. Oh, boy. Um, favorite Francis Ford Coppola movie still is The Conversation with uh, my favorite Gene Hackman performance. Yeah. Right, ne- right next to Night Moves. Like, they're both kind of neck and neck. But uh, That'd be the same I, for me with him, yeah. Yeah. I Again, I've talked about this one on the Francis Ford Coppola episode. Uh, in, in, a very, in a very good way, I should say. Because I was pretty happy with what I ultimately came down to saying about it but uh you know it's just one of those great paranoid thrillers of the 70s that um 
I don't know. Again, change the way I look at film in terms of sound and certainly uh, performance with with what he goes through and how it envelops him and kind of you start to feel what he's feeling and uh, you just you're just questioning reality in in different ways and I think that this is just one of those great uh, experiences that I, whenever I go back to it and feel that anxiety that he's feeling, it doesn't feel like, like it's a bad anxiety. It's like, I, I get to experience what he's going through in, in a fascinating way that again, feels like transference. Uh, and the, one of the, one of the all time great endings again with him just destroying his apartment. Yeah, no, I mean, the conversation is, you know, one of the great films of the 70s. I, I completely agree. I think um, I was on a podcast, um, a newer podcast called Cult Movies Podcast based on the Danny Perry books. And um, I was on the first Oh, episode. I didn't know that was out there. I should, yeah, I'll, I'll subscribe to that then. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, I was on the first episode talking about The Rain People, um, the uh, right. Coppola film from 69. And um, I was thinking about how had that film been a huge hit and the conversation, which was what he wanted to make after that, but he had to make some film about the mafia instead. Um, you know, uh, had those films been as big as the Godfather movies, you know, he might've had a career closer to what his daughter achieved as far as making modest personal films. Um, I mean, not that all of them are modest with Sophia Coppola because you have things like Marie Antoinette, but like, you know, trying to make more films that were character studies, um, if he had his own kind of control over his career, but he, you know, he was a, he was a big, <laughs> a big spender, big risk taker. And he had to do a lot of things just to keep the lights on. <laughs> uh, but you know, the conversation and the rain people are, you know, definitely films. I always recommend to people if they only know him from uh, the Godfather trilogy and apocalypse now and the outsiders and his, uh, you know, his more popular successes. Um, it's the, it's my favorite Gene Hackman performance. Uh, like a lot of people, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my number 18, uh, speaking of risk taking, um, is, uh, Vivre sa vie, my life to live Jean-Luc Godard, 1962. Oh, Patrick's favorite movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I, I think, uh, yeah, no, I, I know he, he it's, uh, it doesn't surprise me that he hates Godard. I mean, I see, people badmouth Godard all the time. Um, you know, uh, people even like Tarantino, like say they outgrew Godard and people like Roger Ebert, like they, they, he, Godard is an easy punching bag for a lot of people. And he, he's, he always feels like the Morrissey of art films to me. Like he's always, <laughs> he's always feels like one weird off statement away from being like, you know, totally banished from uh, the arts, but it doesn't, you know, Godard, you know, I, I there are so many great Godard films, uh, but the one that I like the best easily is is Viva Sa Vie, My Life to Live. Um, and I haven't seen that many, but I've seen like three or four, and this one is my favorite too. So yeah, there's a I lot mean, more I need to see, but I it's like I own Contempt, and I haven't seen that. There's there's he's definitely a blind spot again. I mean, I had to warm up to Godard because I saw Contempt first, and I didn't quite understand it. And then I saw Breathless, and I appreciated it in bits and pieces, but I don't think mm. it was until I saw My Life to Live and Masculine, Feminine, and Weekend that it started to kind of cohere for me. And then I went back to those films and, and appreciated them more. I think, um, 
But I mean, you can find the DNA for Hal Hartley in the 80s Godard. You can find interesting oh, things yeah. happening all throughout that career. It's not just that he was good from Breathless to Weekend and then it's like, you know. Aren't there direct homages to Godard like the dancing in Simple Men? And Pulp Fiction. Like, are those... The- <laughs> What was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Simple Man is a reference to uh, to Godard. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And and the haircut uh, that Uma Thurman has in Pulp Fiction is a, a, sure. a, a, in a Carina. Um, you know, Viva Savi is, you know, one of those sad art films about young women. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of them out there, like Vagabond or Fat Girl or Goodbye, First Love, Mouchette, Rosetta, uh, Iolga Hepnerova, <laughs> you know, Wendy and Lucy, you could say, um, you know, that, um, you know, are these kind of heartbreaking character study films. And this one is a little different because it's it's um, it's super self-conscious cinema. Like it uses all sorts of devices to discourage your attachment, like that, you know, whether it be having entire scenes play out on the back of their heads or having the music kind of, <laughs> you know, come in and out of it, like, um, you know, odd choices. Um, but it's, but it's playful. It's heartbreaking. Um, it's often blatantly philosophical. Like there's like a 10 minute scene where her just talking to a philosopher. <laughs> it's it, anything, which I love. Of course, anything can happen in it. Um, you know, there's this sequence where her character goes to see the the dryer Passion of Joan of Arc in the theater, and it's just, it, it it's it, you know, it almost kind of defies you know, this like even like it's just like a striking, uh, striking image. You know, just her face. Um, you know, I, I think. Um, like it, 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 it almost feels documentary like in places. I know that Godard said that it's a lot of first takes and that if it was, if there was a second take, they didn't usually use it, but it, it, it's too crisply photographed to really feel like a documentary per se. Um, but it's, it's one of those films, like the best parts of the French new wave films to me feel like, um, you just never know where they're going and they feel like people that are excited <laughs> to be making films, and trying out things. And sometimes the experiment kind of, I think what David Lynch, um, what Roger Ebert said about David Lynch was like, you know, experiment shatters the test tubes. Um, like that will definitely happen with Godard, you know, movies, but this one, you know, is just always whether or not Godard intends it the most emotionally moving film for me. Um, and sometimes his attitude towards women can be a little chauvinistic seeming, but Anna Karina is like too charismatic and uh, too like too involving Stunning. to <laughs> it, 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 it's 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 like it doesn't even like he can't even like make her just an idea like she becomes too much of a person just because she brings that yeah. character to life in a way that like even his over intellectualizing of it it doesn't get in the way of that it which can happen with some of his movies but I don't know. I, I think that if you're scared off by Godard, that's a good one to try out. And if it's too much for you, it's not going to get any easier. Like he's definitely a challenging filmmaker. I think that these days he's kind of fallen out of fashion in like popular film circles, but you know, I don't know that, that, that body work is full of so many interesting influential gems. I mean, he's influenced on so many people that we've talked Clearly. about today. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's, that's one 
I rewatched it again this morning to make sure I still felt like it belonged on the list. And it's like, yeah, no, this still, this still works. <laughs> yeah. I should have rewatched that one too. I'm, I'm definitely a fan. It's been a long time. Yeah. But yeah, I remember going to see that at the music box with Patrick and just like hearing him squirm in his seat throughout most of it and just like, go, I was like, I'm into this. I, it's so unpredictable. I have no idea where it's going and that's what I love about it. And you know, she's such a charismatic screen presence. How can you not be taken? Uh, but also just, it felt, it felt new. It felt like, a, you know, like similar to even the first time I saw Punch Drunk Love. I have no idea what's happening, where it's going, why it's do, making these choices. But I'm on board the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, the, I, I like... Um... I, I like uh, the fact that like you know you can have scenes that are just like her playing <laughs> pinball, but then she'd also be like <laughs> in a cafe and like someone just comes in like from a bloody gun battle, but it doesn't feel like a stunt. Like it feels like this is just like a a chaotic world that she lives in. Um, and you know it, all the prostitute metaphor thing. You know it it doesn't feel too heavy handed to me. And maybe at the time that wasn't really like an overdone trope, but it's like. <laughs> It's not sentimental in the way that, like, maybe something like Knights of Cabiria is with Fellini, or even, um, like, it's not like Last Exit to Brooklyn, which feels like almost punchingly cruel. Like, it's just, it's just matter of fact about itself. And I don't know. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's a really, uh, you know, it's a really good film. Um, a film that another film that Patrick doesn't like, that I'm pretty sure you like, that, um, is also one of the very best films I've ever seen about relationships and most accurately reflects a couple experiences I've had with relationships directly to the point where I was concerned that, you know, maybe somehow David Gordon Green tapped into my brain and just, you know, figured out how to tell my, my own uh, life story in certain regards, even though I wasn't nearly... I wasn't I was certainly wasn't the Paul Schneider character in um You're being too modest. All the real girls. Yeah. <laughs> Number 17 is All the Real Girls by David Gordon Green, a movie I've talked about quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, that's my that favorite I, film of his by far. Yeah. yeah. I again, a movie that's like there's weird things throughout that movie that I kind of go what? What? what are they doing in this bowling alley? Like just standing in the middle of a lane. Like some of the choices again are just so out there that it's, it, it, it makes me miss this David Gordon green. Um, this, the, the, the undertow, all the real girls, George Washington, uh, snow angels, David Gordon green is by far my favorite, you know? Same. Yeah. There's just, there's just something about his movies early on that did feel influenced by Terrence Malick, but also had a heart and soul all its own. Yeah. Um, and, and as I've said, I think previously about this film, the, the two things that have happened in my life early on, uh, when I was first developing crushes were, uh, falling in love with my, my best friend's sister, uh, younger sister. She's like a couple years younger. And, uh, 
then also having a relationship where somebody goes to a party that I don't go to and they, they sleep with the person there and then they come back and they tell me that they love me. <laughs> so it's like, it's so weird to watch this movie because I'm basically reliving uh, a couple of things that have happened to me directly to the point where I'm just kind of a wreck uh, watching this movie and also laughing a lot and also really loving the um, the relationship between Paul Schneider and uh, Shea Wiggum as yeah. uh, their friends like the, the the kind of friendship they have in here is really really interesting and Patricia Clarkson uh, yeah. the only time I really like Danny McBride is in this movie yeah um, does he play bust ass yeah yeah, yeah I. I've never found her in the film, so I don't know if she got cut or what, but Bustass's cousin is played by this actress, Tracy Dinwiddie, that I used to know in North Carolina. I did yoga with her once, <laughs> but I've oh, never weird. found her in the huh. movie, so I don't know if she's in it or not. But um, yeah, I remember the first time I saw all the real girls in Montclair, uh, New Jersey, and the couple in the lobby were like uh talking about they had just gotten out of it and like uh it was something like next time i'm picking the movie like they didn't like it and so i'm like <laughs> okay uh, so i go into it and you know i remember just that first scene and like that weird dialogue that they have it's so believably cute like in a way that like it doesn't feel like um i, I mean i guess to some ears it might seem like scripted in a way that's like distracting because it's such strange cutesy dialogue but to me that feels like i know people that talk like that <laughs> like, um that that's the thing i think about when i think about early david gordon green is that dialogue not even like the look of it or the malik isms it's that that weird writing he had then um yeah you know and recently it, recently somebody tweeted this really funny tweet of like if you were born between the ages of uh 1979 and 1990 or something like that then you've obviously had a crush on zoe deschanel and then of course i tweeted back at him but i was born in 1978 um <laughs> and honestly you know when i saw all the real girls i'm like well this is she's kind of playing you know my dream girl in some weird way and yet she is being quirky and she is being i wouldn't say a manic pixie dream girl but certainly uh you know, kind of just kind of quirky and weird and different and interesting, but also full of layers. And that scene where she talks about the origin of her scars is really powerful. And it set me up for, you know, whereas like someone like Michelle Williams only continues to get better and better and better. Uh, unfortunately, Zoe Deschanel just became a caricature of herself <laughs> in like that show that she's on with the new girl. And yeah, I'm the queen of quirky now. And now I just don't really care for her. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah, she, so, she, she found her, she found her niche. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cruel industry for everyone trying to get that ingenue part. I mean, you know, we could probably both name dozens of actresses that had like that three or four year period. And then it's like, you know, you better hope there's higher non-television. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's true. And eh, it's, but at least this performance exists and Paul Schneider is great. Uh, I, I don't, it's funny because like the, the next movie that I'll get to in my number 14, I once had a dream that there was a remake of it with the, with those two starring in it. And I was like, I wish I could write that. That would be great. Not now, but back yeah. in the, all the real girls days where they, Really, like both of them, I thought were pretty, pretty great. Um, 
Yeah. So I haven't seen it in a little while, but I, I remember being really fond of it. I've seen it a couple of times. It's It's been a while. I mean, I any any film with like Sparkle Horse and Le Bradford on the soundtrack definitely puts Please. me back in a very specific <laughs> time of my life. Because I mean, I, I think it came out right after I left North Carolina. And so it had a little bit of that North Carolina feel for me. And so that also meant something to me. Um, but yeah, no, it's a sweet little movie. And I, I, I think it's still like, George Washington, I liked it, but I was always a little bit, I don't know, there always seemed to be something like vaguely stuntish about it to me. And Undertow, I like, but it, you know, if I want to watch Night of the Hunter, I'll watch Night of the Hunter. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Coming up, coming up. I figured it was. Yeah, I, uh, but I mean, yeah. but I like I like his early films, and I, I always wondered if like, you know, Halloween you know, or whatever kind of more commercial project he did if they felt like those early movies, what people would do. Did you see he's supposed to be doing a sequel to The Exorcist? I'm like, come on. Yeah, well, he was attached I don't... to Suspiria for a long time, too. I just, yeah, I don't which know. Which I would have been interested in anyway, just because I can't imagine that. But at the same time, that Suspiria remake really surprised me, too. But um, this is, yeah. No, David Gordon Green, if you're, if you're listening to this, just, yeah, go back to your roots. Maybe just for a movie or two. Go back to your roots. He probably will. I don't know. I, mean, I hope I, so. I think um, yeah, some, some, some directors, they, they have their personal film period and then they get into, uh, you know, paying, paying off mortgages. <laughs> not that he's not making personal films out of Halloween or Exorcist part, whatever, you know, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, it definitely felt like, um, you know, when he started getting into the Apatow orbit, it seemed to be, you know, he seemed to be a different kind of filmmaker after that. So do you think we can get through it? Our top 15 in an hour. I, can I wonder try. if that's possible. Well, I think, I'll, I think so. I'll, Cause I'm, I actually ordered food to get here at like five fifteen. Well, I'll keep these short. I, this one is uh, my number 17. Uh, it's a little film called Jaws. Um, directed by <laughs> former uh, television directors. I think his second theatrical feature uh steven spielberg um i don't know what you need to say about this one other than that it's you know the only film of his i really considered for this list even though i like a lot of his movies uh and i definitely grew up in an era where spielberg felt like a studio (laughs) as more as much as a filmmaker i mean as far as like the (laughs) influence on films aimed at my generation uh you know especially like people that liked horror and comedy and spectacle i mean you know he was a you know household name like no other filmmaker until even more than tarantino i would say um but yeah jaws you know i think because it's the one that has all the hangout character stuff as well as the spectacle um right on brother that's that's kind of what i like about it you know um like it's it's funny. Um, it looks great. It's got some really great horror sequences in it. I always forget that the horror really is over after the, like, what, 45-minute mark, and then it becomes like an adventure movie and a comedy about masculine behavior. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, what to say, you know, everyone listening to this knows Jaws and whether or not they like it or not. It's coming up. Mm-hmm. It's, it, again, like, it's it's... It is hard to choose a favorite Spielberg movie, but that's the one I keep going back to and saying it's perfect. Um, but, you know, I do have a place in my heart for things like E.T. and Close Encounters and Raiders. And there's there's more yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I I keep going back to as well that I love. But 
Yeah, I like Jurassic Park. I mean, I like a lot of his movies. I just, Jaws is a different thing for me. Um, and another director whose movies I really like is Gus Van Sant. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really hard. Like, his first two movies, again, it's you could flip a coin. But I'm going with My Own Private Idaho because I had never seen anything like it. And it was, what was I, 12 or 13 when this came out on video? I basically watched it. So I was, my parents were going through a rough time and it, it was looking like they were going to get divorced. And so I stayed with my aunt in Chicago and she had to go to work. Uh, and so like early in the morning, I'd uh, stop and get a little breakfast and then walk over to the blockbuster that was uh, close to our house. And I went in there and I, I saw, oh, I like, I really like River Phoenix, especially in Stand By Me. I like everything that guy does. So I'm going to watch, I'm going to check out whatever this movie is. I never heard of it, but I'll check it out. And then I took it home and I watch it. And then, you know, <laughs> that opening scene happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? What's, you know, and I'd never heard of Midnight Cowboy at that point or anything. And I, I, it was my first exposure to any sort of gay cinema. And, it, you know, like... I think mine, it, too. It, I, I just... I had never seen anything like this movie. Uh, the Shakespearean dialogue. Just some of the, the magazine covers talking uh, to the camera. Like, there were things in this that formally I'd, I'd, I had no idea how to interpret it. I was incredibly moved by the fire camp uh, sequence, uh, mm-hmm. just where he's talking about, you know, being loved. And I think he completely improvised that, if I'm not mistaken, or at least along those lines. Uh, and it became my favorite River Phoenix performance. And I think to this day, it is still my favorite uh, River Phoenix performance. But it sort of exposed me early on to things like surrealism and uh just like lynchian touches oh. and it felt very dreamlike <laughs> and of course and of course you mm-hmm. know it's it, it it is dreamlike and it's about narcolepsy too <laughs> i was gonna say that udo kier scene is like very in I, dreams. <laughs> you're so right about that um yeah i you know it's a loose adaptation of i think henry the fourth and it's again people can perceive this as a mess and i understand that and it's like tonally it's just weird and fascinating and interesting and the 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 way those sex scenes are shot like still photos um just like i i'd never seen anything like it i still find myself incredibly moved by it and uh it's it's i think it's river phoenix gives me one of my favorite performances ever in this movie and i love everything about it and the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. And I think it's uh, responsible for me having a very open mind towards all kinds of movies. Because when you see something like this at 13, all bets are off. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I, I you know, I had a very similar kind of uh, relationship with it, too. Because, um, you know, I, I sometimes forget that, you know, Gus Van Sant was a pretty important pre-Tarantino indie filmmaker for me. For as, sure. For, as far as Drugstore Cowboy. Uh, someone, I'm sure you have at least one pedantic listener that will want it mentioned that My Own Private Idaho is his third feature because Malanoche <gasps> comes oh, right before yeah, those you know, yes, more famous yes. ones. But um, yeah, no, those those films were uh, yeah equally important to me. I mean, my first movie poster, I think, was Drugstore Cowboy. 
Um, you know, mm. I, I think um, I haven't seen uh, either one in a while. I actually had them out to show somebody because um, I was trying to explain, you know, these films uh, to a friend of mine who hadn't grown up with them. But uh, yeah, no, Gus Van Sant, weird career. Um, <laughs> Very weird. You know, and there's certainly some lows in there with like Sea of Trees and Cowgirls Get the Blues. Yeah, he's done a few films I've just never even seen. But, um, you know, I saw um, one of his more recent ones. Is it uh, Don't Worry, He uh, Won't Get Far on Foot? And it's like, you know, this kind of. I really liked it. Yeah, yeah, I liked it, too. I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything other than that title. I'm like, OK, well. Um, but yeah, no, he's... And it's interesting just to find him working with Joaquin Phoenix that time. You know, so it's a, yeah, well, just interesting. Well, like he, he's always him. chose really good actors. Yeah, well, to die for is films. where I first even became aware of uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I don't think because I didn't That's see right. Space Camp. That's right. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that those films. Yeah, I remember people like questioning whether or not all the Shakespearean dialogue worked in uh, Miami Prevent, Idaho. But I don't know. Now it's like. I, I just think people accept those chances and you know, it's such a risky, you know, film that, uh, you know, I think people will be so relieved if something like that came along now and took chances with movie stars in that way. I, I think, you know, other than river's edge, that's my favorite thing Keanu Reeves has ever done. Um, you know, and that's yeah. for me. I also like, yeah, I also like scanner darkly too. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not saying he's got, you know, no, I mean, I like Keanu Reeves more often than not, but I mean, those, yeah. those are my, uh, those are my favorites of his. And, and if uh, you can find it out there, even though I, I can't stand James Franco, he did this oh recontextualization <laughs> of the unused footage from this movie. Is it my own private, my own private river? Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't great, but there's a sequence where River Phoenix is walking through a supermarket, that might be one of my favorite things I've ever seen. Um, it's just like it, but you know, again, it would have fit perfectly in the movie. Uh, and it, but it's it somehow it's just like it's beautiful to see more River, River Phoenix because we lost him way too soon. Yeah, I and remember. There's just something special about that moment he to was, me. He was the first celebrity death that I remember, like in my high school years, like that I remember people talking about in high school, like in class. Yeah, uh, River Phoenix and then Kurt Cobain were like the first two that really hit me. Yeah, Kurt Cobain was like I, I want to say, the summer. Like, was it over the summer? Yeah, I think it was April or May. I can't I remember. I, I remember being in a car. And it felt like summer vacation, but maybe it was like just the end of that school year. But yeah, no, um, I, I feel like running on empty is my other favorite river Phoenix, uh, performance. Is of a, course, which is one yeah, that I, that's a movie that could have been on my list too. Same. Yeah. Um, my number 16, uh, is a film that I probably talked about way too many times at this point is possession on uh, Jezuaski's 1981, film um i saw it as a teenager in the u.s edit version um yeah which is a much more incoherent <laughs> film um <laughs> but um i think i started really falling in love with it when i was 23 when the uh european the full-length version came out on dvd um and i had met a guy in uh college that was his favorite movie um and uh, i remember thinking oh really yeah. that film with isabella johnny and sam like i remember it being like 
one of those unforgettably weird horror films. But I, I, you know, um, I didn't start looking at it more deeply until I saw the longer version and then listening to the commentary track where it became apparent that it wasn't just a, um, a film designed to shock people, but was actually like an incredibly personal uh, story and a political film as well. Um, that there was mm. these other things that were being disguised in a monster movie of the, you know, Cronenberg kind of, you know, uh, monster body horror type, whatever. Like it, 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 you could connect it to things that, you know, I had, you know, I could, I could make sense of it like superficially to other things I'd seen, but it was a lot more intricate than I think I thought uh, on first viewing. It's also the film that introduced me to Andrzej Zhuavsky's one of a kind uh, cinematic style, as far as like the camera work, the performances, um, the anything can happen kind of uh, thing, but like very controlled in a way that like, say the French new wave films we were talking about earlier are not. Um, th- this is like a, a technically very skilled uh, director. And, you know, I'm almost kind of, uh, I was reluctant almost to put possession on here just because I love all of his what? other films. And, you know, the fact that this one needs my, uh, you know, singing its praises less maybe than the third part of the night or Shamanka or La- more Brock or uh, most important things to love or, you know, uh, fidelity, like almost everything, every film he's made, I really like, you know, from Cos- like third part of the night up through Cosmos, the devil uh, on Silver Globe, like he's one of the great directors, but you know, because a lot of those films didn't get really great distribution at the time. And then they started coming out in really deluxe editions through a small label called Mondo, uh, Mondo Vision. So they, like a lot of people still don't even know that Possession had a Blu-ray or that, you know, things like Shamanka even came out here. Um, I've seen, uh, I've attended two different retrospectives of his work in New York. Um, one that was like a miniature retrospective right when he passed away. And then one in Brooklyn that was like, he was supposed to be at both of them. Um, he, he passed away right before the, um, the second one happened. I, I mm. should have met him, but I did not meet him. Um, but I did, you know, I, lend, I, I did wind up befriending the guy that was on the commentary tracks with him. Daniel Bird was the first guest on supporting characters. Um, but I mean, he, his films connect so many of my, friends you know like as far as like i have a lot of really uh brilliant friends that have done podcasts and done writing about his work um that you know to limit it to possession i'm a little reluctant to do because i know that by far is his most uh famous film in america not the least because english language and people know those those actors sam neill is and you know everyone has seen him in something um you know but you know, that particular film, like it's connected me to so many different people that I, I kind of have to put possession, you know, on the list at the top. You know, I would have been shocked if it wasn't on your list. I would have been like, wait a second. Am I living in an alternate universe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it would have only been just to give a, a, a shine a spotlight on some of the other ones. But, you know, we've talked on um, Director's Club. About yeah, we did a whole episode. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah. But that is that is my number 16. Okay, and number fifteen, for God's sake, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna talk about this one, at all, because um, it's after hours, and good lord, how much have I talked about after hours on on, not just uh, favorite films of all time episodes, but on the Scorsese episode, and 
my my goal is to do a, I think I'll just do a commentary like I did with Last Starfighter. I'm just going to talk about After Hours um, as it plays sometime because well. I can and I will and I shall and I would be honored to and <laughs> I can't b- get over how great it is. It's it's one of the ultimate gym movies, as Patrick says. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it was my favorite Scorsese movie when I was a teenager and uh, I, I really, uh, you know, I mean, it's not on my list, but only because there's a different Scorsese film, but it's, I mean, the perfect movie. Um, my friend Sam Deegan, who does not like Scorsese movies, like did like that one when I showed it to her. <laughs> um, so it, it can win over even, you know, non, uh, non fans of, uh, old Marty. Um, and it's very uh, interesting to me when people don't like Goodfellas. I've heard that. And she it's might certainly, like it. I don't know. She doesn't like taxi driver and some of his other, and she really does not like the DiCaprio era, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but. Um, yeah, no, no, but yeah, After Hours is great. I'm glad I got to see it on the big screen with you. Uh, of course, that was pretty amazing. Yes. And had I known like the connection, I don't think I'd seen Chilly Scenes of Winter by that point, but I think you, did you go up to them and talk to you? I you, did. I, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's right. You must have, I would have thought, but yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, I've, I've accosted many people involved in that film. I, I sadly never got to... Uh, do that do that to Joan Micklin Silver herself, but yes, uh, I did go up to both Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn at that screen. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. But yeah, it was that was that was a great time and whew, what a memorable weekend of being able to see one of your favorite movies and then getting to meet your favorite director. Yes, uh, no, I, I I know how to I know how to you know show people a good time in New York. Um, yeah, my uh, my number fifteen. And I was 15 when I saw it the first time, I think, maybe even younger, uh, was Fast Times Ridgemont High, Amy Heckerling. Mm. Uh, this is the only Cameron movie on Crump. your list so far that I actually don't really like. That's well, the only, only one so far at all. Well, yeah, I, I, I uh, hope one day it grows on you. But this is uh, one of my comfort films. Uh, it's a film that changed uh, for me because when I was a kid, I probably responded to the comedy uh, as much, if not more so. And as I got older and became really kind of fascinated with the career of Jennifer Jason Lee, I think her storyline, which is more dramatic uh, and tragic um, in, in places, not well, tragic, maybe, overstate, but like definitely like the melancholy undercurrent to fast times, which kind of distinguishes it from uh, the teen sex comedies that we've talked about on the Bob Clark episode, for example. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, like from the moment the Go Go's We Got the Beat comes in under the Universal logo to the American Graffiti style closing uh, segment, it's, I mean, I can put it on any time. It always makes me feel better. Um, and so that's my number 15. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those, I'll, I don't know why it never clicked with me as much as I'd hoped it would. Uh, but uh, well, I think I'll, I told you off the record that it might come back into circulation through a, a certain boutique label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I but we'll I'll see. I'll give it another look. I'll give it another look sometime. Obviously, I love Jennifer Jason Lee, but um, hmm. yeah. Hmm. I still don't like the fact that like he says you got to listen to um Led Zeppelin four and then plays Cashmere from Physical Graffiti. Yeah. Yeah, that's Cameron Crowe of all people. 
too should have should have recognized that. And I think what now the excuse is like, well, he was too dumb. He didn't know. <laughs> well, I think music clearance it was a very uh, tricky, yeah, yeah, yeah. tricky thing. I, I don't know. I, know so. I mean, that, I, that I have those like weird moments, like with high fidelity. There's things in that too where I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Well, you know, <laughs> do you know who one of the directors that was offered that film was that uh, passed on it because he said it just wasn't his material? It was uh, David Lynch? <laughs> what? <laughs> he was coming off of a razor head, and uh, yeah, Cameron Crowe, what? you know, yeah, I mean, he, he was offered Return of the Jedi, he was offered a lot of things that... Uh, That's true. That's true. Manhunter. But yeah, the... Um, yeah. Ooh, Manhunter would have been cool. Yeah. Well, that's another one I love. Jeez. Um, number 14 is probably one of the earliest examples of the Lovers on the Run movie that um, one of my all-time favorite directors, oh. Nicholas Ray... Uh, and this is They Live by Night yeah, yeah, yeah. with Fran, Far, Far, blah, Farley Granger and Kathy O'Donnell, who, God, should have had a glorious career based on this film. Uh, and I think she her, I, she died pretty young, like in her 40s. But also she sort of I, I like she she, you know, she worked with William Wyler, obviously, early on with the best years of our lives. Another blind spot. Um, oh, it's great. But but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's, this movie to me just like surprised me by how dark it gets. It's like an early example of kind of a noir, but it also, it's a, you know, a bank heist movie. It's a love story and all these things just mesh really well together. Um, and you know, I love so many Nicholas Ray movies. Uh, yeah. This one to me just fit perfectly and just, you know, it's 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 ninety minutes. It's it's really one of those just like Bonnie and Clyde stories, kind of, but really done expertly and with two performances that uh, are for the ages. Like every time I see them, and I like this is a power couple to me. And for some reason, I had a dream of Paul Schneider and Zoe Deschanel starring in a remake of this. And yet, I know Robert Altman <laughs> made a remake of this. That yes. I've never seen. Oh, it's great. Thieves, uh, yeah. Thieves Like Us. Yeah. I, I should see that because I love the original so much. It's, it's kind of crazy. Different. <laughs> but, I bet. But uh, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely, uh, you know, one of the, the, the hidden gems of his 70s run. Um, yeah. I It's funny. I used to, I was looking for uh, They Live By Night for years because it used to be kind of hard to see it. And I was always finding they drive by night. And I was like, like I was doing a double take. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, man. But eventually I did see it. Um, and Nicholas it's out Ray- on Criterion, people. You, yes. can, you can get pick it up. It's worth your time. Yeah, I definitely thought about a couple of Nicholas Ray films for the list. I mean, I love Rebel Without a Cause and Bigger Than Life. And, um, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, he's, he's an interesting... Uh, Johnny I, Guitar, too, after seeing it on the big screen, kind of... It's it's there. It's like in the other top one hundred. Yeah, in a lonely <laughs> place is another one too. Yeah, God. Yeah, he's good. It's so uh, good. So many good films. Um, we don't have to talk at length about my number fourteen because I don't know what more to say about Taxi Driver. Um, I I thought about 
I thought long and hard about Mean Streets because I love, Ooh. love, 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 love Mean Streets. And I could just as easily talk about that. I mean, I like Mean Streets more as much as anything I've talked about on this podcast. But, um, you know, and, and I really love After Hours. I really love King of Comedy. Um, you know, th- there's plenty of great Martin Scorsese movies. But I think, you know, and, and this is also the only appearance of Paul Schrader because I think of this as a Paul Schrader movie in many respects. It's very much like his, oh, yeah you know, DNA, you know, for all the things like Light Sleeper, you know, the American Gigolo, all these things that come later. I mean, Taxi Driver's where that kind of starts. And, um, but, you know, I think, I think it's just, I mean, it's, it's a film that's been talked to death. I mean, it's controversial for different reasons. People will always have, you know, discussions, you know, pro and con about Taxi Driver. And I think it's just a film I always feel comfortable returning to. I love the the vision of hell that is New York and the style of it. And I love the performances in it. I think it's a very quirky, funny, uh, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I like, you know, every, every, everything about it works for me. And, uh, you know, I know that Paul Schrader has dismissed it as a rich piece of juvenilia. I, I have friends huh. like my friend, Sam Deegan, who would agree with him, um, you know, and there, and when I see films that draw upon its influence, whether it be things like, you know, even drive that I like, you know, um, I can see that and I can see how, you know, it is the ultimate, you know, teen angstification of the death wish kind of vigilante film. Like I understand and yeah, the, the troubled Vietnam vet trope and all these things. Like I, I get all the complaints and, you know, the complicated vision of race that it depicts. I get all these complaints, um, you know, whether or not you get into like, you know, celebration of incels and the Joker arguments and, you know, the, all the controversies Ugh. about fate, you know, fate to black gets into it too. Um, you know, taxi driver, I feel like it kind of withstands all of it just because it's so well made on every, uh, level. Um, I like everyone in the cast. Albert Brooks is, you know, it's my only Albert Brooks film on here, but, uh, yeah, Everyone listening to this already knows next Taxi Driver. I don't know what more to really say about it, but you know, it's one I've seen a million times, and I'll probably see it a million more times. You know, when we're done here, I got to get off and figure out what where is my Fade to Black Blu-ray. Like I ordered that a long time ago. It's slow uh, shipping. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, yeah, I've been wanting to see it, and it, it hasn't it, gotten here. It'll get there. It's just, okay. Uh, the the uh, post office uh, has had a tough year. You are right about that. Uh, number 13 is another one I wanted to watch again. It's a movie that feels like a dream, and it is uh, Robert Allman's Three Women, which yeah. uh, I, I, any, anytime I think about it, I get I get like chills in a good way. But uh, I it, again, like I think if I'd watched it again last night, I'd have a ton of things to say about it. Um, but also, we've been talking for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to lose my voice. But um, yeah, yeah, and I'm just kind of like you know people you know probably from the past, and certainly Robert Altman's episodes, and I'm pretty sure Patrick and I have talked about it. Uh, and it's an enigma, and it's something that I think about and adore, and wish there were more movies like this. And there are, there, there are, are to some degree. I think there's probably yeah. one coming up later on our conversation. But you're probably um, right. Yeah, the. Um, I, you know, and it's funny because, like, I mentioned Jim the World's Greatest earlier, and I saw Three Women the same way. Um, <laughs> it was a film that I had read about in, um, what was it? It was 
uh, alternate Oscars, I think, or cult movie stars, or both. The Danny Perry books. He he wrote about Shelley Duvall in this film and uh, Sissy Spacek, and um, I, I would see images from. I was like, what is it? But it was never on home video until um, I found this bootleg tape of it at a horror convention, and um, you know just in terms of personal discovery, it was like, Oh my God, it's like, like having a film as good as three women that like nobody knew felt like such buried treasure. Um, you know, I mean, anyone, anyone actress award at can like Roger Ebert liked it. Like it wasn't like totally unknown, but it, it kind of fell into uh, kind of complete obscurity in the eighties. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I put my bootleg tape into the video store, uh, like system, um, my uh, video store in North Carolina because I, I I bought it and I, I ran that store and, and um, I used to tell people it's like the Fleetwood Mac rumors version of Mulholland Drive. I have no idea what that even means, <laughs> but it just you know it just seemed to work and people always liked it and um, it's one of those films like I know we've talked about Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia that was like mystified people at the time. Uh, and those now, are my favorite kind of movies, apparently, and, like and, the ones that mystify you. And now they seem like more popular than films that were you know, modest successes in their day. Like, I think more people know these films today because of Blu-ray and, uh, you know, uh, just because they, they fall into some kind of weird cult, one of a kind territory. And like, it. like I bet 10, 20 years from now, people will talk about she dies tomorrow. The way we're talking about three women, because it's, it mystified so many, including me, especially on a first viewing. And I'm not saying it's like in the same ballpark, uh, but I just feel like movies like that, that don't really like weird things happen and they don't, they're never explained or people turn into other people or like just, just random things sometimes that don't seem to make sense on a first viewing will reward it, You'll be rewarded with future viewings. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, no, but I, three I, women is one of those that first time I saw him like, well, that was weird. And then. Second time, like, oh, that's a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I said Nashville, and I could switch it to uh, California Split, but I could just easily say Three Women. I mean, it's, you know, perfect movie and, and one of a kind. I mean, for, for whatever it uh, owes to, like, persona or, you know, things like, you know, that uh, fall into that kind of personality theft kind of, like, dream horror kind of territory, it's 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 got too much of like the weird humor of Altman to like really feel like straight horror. Like it's just an interesting movie. Like, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I think we've, we've, we've covered that one, but, uh, my number Mm -hmm. 13 is, um, speaking of films that you love, uh, is the last house on the left. Wes Craven's 1972 Ah! debut feature. Um, I've talked about this. Oh, I, underst- I understand why you love it. So I've talked about this in plenty of places. I talk about it on the Blu-ray. Um, I, it's it was the film I was forbidden to see growing up, and I sought it out and became obsessed with it. And the David Shulkin book on the making of it kind of only fueled uh, that obsession. And uh, yeah, I, it became a thing where tracking down the most complete version of it became a, a pastime and seeing old films that were ripoffs of it and kind of that fascination with the exploitation movie world and the, the marketing of the film and even how that would inform things like Friday the 13th, uh, 
and uh, the hills have eyes you know which i had um also a, a very strong connection with um I, you know i i mean the last Us and left is you know really deeply important film to me even before i got you know a chance to talk about it with amanda reyes on the arrow release of it um you know i, I it's it's not a film that everyone I know likes. In fact, a lot of people I know think it's a bad movie. Um, my parents now own a copy because of uh, they saw it on a on a date and were so repelled by it that uh, when I got into horror movies as a teenager, that was the one film I was told I couldn't see. Even when I was getting into other R-rated movies, they were like, no, but not that one. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's not for everybody, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And Again, it, like I've talked about my quibbles with that one before as well, but I understand. Yeah. It's, a, it's an important movie for its time, and I, I definitely understand why you love it. Uh, for me, another horror film that I would rather just, you know, I'm just going to point you into the direction of Patrick Rapole because of his love for the film, and that's uh, Carnival of Souls is number sure. 12 and uh, uh again a singular work of art unlike any other and you know we've talked about this one before and certainly he has many times and he's done a tracks of the damned episode commentary on the film which i highly recommend um again like when she's walking around and nobody's listening to her it, to, to me like that's one of the best examples of what it feels like to feel disconnected and depressed in the world and uh it's, it's 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 just eerie. Like the whole movie is eerie, and the way she's treated by men is 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 is, is ugh, kind of kind of heartbreaking and sad, and still relevant. And I don't know. I I I find myself incredibly moved by a movie that uh, you know most people just go, oh, it's pretty spooky and weird. But I think it's a whole lot more than that. And I'm glad Patrick feels the same way. Yeah, I I agree with both of you. I mean. Carnival Souls. I showed it to somebody a month ago, and uh, yeah, no, it's. I mean, it's it's perfect, you know, for for uh, the film that it is. I I don't know if I have a whole lot to add about it, other than that, you know, it's 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 kind of like a great Twilight Zone if uh, Jean Cocteau and Bergman yeah. helped, you know, <laughs> direct it. <laughs> I don't know, um, and I like uh, a lot of films that rip it off too, but uh, yeah, Carnival Souls is great. Um, keep it going keep it going we all right got it. we got we this. got it we got it so my number 12 is only angels have wings uh howard hawks 1939 um howard hawks oh that's a great one man howard i hawks, haven't seen that in a while howard hawks for me is the best or at least my favorite old hollywood studio system director i i had a really hard time narrowing it down when the guy made his Girl Friday and Rio Bravo and El Dorado and The Big Sleep and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and uh, so many, uh, even things like Scarface that are, aren't like in my top, you know, I, I like them. Um, but yeah, uh, Only Angels Have Wings is uh, Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. Uh, it It's um, set in the, uh, it's a little Casablanca-ish. I know Patrick mentioned that in the letterbox review he did, yeah. but, like, but it's a... Um, it's like a Western in that it like seems like there's like one like location where strangers come from out of town and congregate. Like it's a hangout movie in the way that something like Rio Bravo El Dorado would be. But it's also got that, that kind of quippy banter that you would find in things like his girl Friday or, um, 
you know, uh, like, yeah, well, not so much as like bringing up baby, but like, you know, like his, 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 uh, you know, the smart patter of his, his comedies. And it's got, you know, Gene Arthur, I, I love to death in the, um, the Frank Capra films that she was doing. And, uh, and this is, I think the only thing that she did with Hawks, but it's, uh, it's great. And Cary Grant, I mean, he's a little stern in this, like it's a stern character, but it's, I don't know. I, it all works for me. It's, it, it's got the suspense element to it too, that, um, I don't know to what extent he directed the thing, which was one of my favorite films as a kid, the, um, the fifties version. Um, I know that he's all over that. Um, and it has like an it has an aspect of, like the vibe of it reminds me of the thing, which was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Um, hmm. I know some people call it the thing from another world, but like that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Um, I actually prefer it to the Carpenter version, but like, um, Ooh. But, but, um, you know, this doesn't have the, the genre movie thing about it, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's everything about it. I love, uh, I like the musical sequence in it at the beginning. Um, I think, um, who's that critic you guys were always talking about on here. Mike D'Angelo. It's Mike D'Angelo's favorite too, I think. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, if you like any of the Howard Hawks films you have seen, if you're into classic Hollywood, this is maybe, um, a little bit less famous than, um, you know, uh, like his girl Friday or Rio Bravo, but it's, I think it's equal to any of the films that come later. And, um, I think it's on the, I forget if it's on the criterion channel right now. Cause of a Cary Grant thing is there's a Blu-ray out for it, but yeah, yeah, that's number 12. yeah it is available there. I think. Yeah. I'm going to watch it. It's been a long time since I've seen it and I know I loved it, but it's been a long time. It's great. Yes, it is. And number 11 is a great movie that again, probably should be higher. Uh, I've been hesitant to watch it again for obvious reasons. That would be Shane Carruth's Upstream Color. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, one of the best movies about shared trauma that I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, it's identity and flux sort of crisis film and you kind of experience a growing relationship between these two characters that, uh, you know, may or may not uh, self-destruct in, in, in various ways, but they also, you know, form this kind of a, a connection to the outside world and the environment. Uh, you know, the last 20 minutes, there's not a word of dialogue spoken. And it's got one of the most incredible scores you will ever hear in your life. But um, it's it's hard for me to talk about the movie now. And certainly the fact that, uh, you know, there was going to be a conversation about the movie with the filmmaker. And that will not ever happen now. And that sucks for a lot of reasons. But also the fact that, you know, there are accusations against him that I tend to believe. And that sucks. And certainly if you've seen his Twitter feed uh earlier this year you really become upset and disappointed but i'm not also not going to deny in the same way that you did with uh woody allen's manhattan that it's an important and very special film for me and i think it's a it's a, it's a true work of art that there's there's nothing ever like it and i don't know if there ever will be and like patrick i'm a huge fan of elliptical editing and just the way this film flows, like a stream of consciousness, is pretty remarkable. So, 
upstream color maybe should be higher, but right now it's at number 11. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I haven't seen it in a while and I, I don't have anything really to add to it. I knew it was going to be on your list, but I just, it's actually because of the way that Caruth controls it, not an easy film to just see right now, I think. Um, although I know it just came out on Blu-ray with primer through Arrow video. So that's interesting. Yeah. Maybe I will check it out at some point again. I mean, I thought both of those films from him were compelling and, uh, kind of outside of what else everything else that was going on in indie film in, felt like um mm-hmm. but um yeah i haven't seen it in a while and he definitely seems like a complicated person <laughs> yes um my number 11 is uh one that you've already mentioned uh but is rushmore wes anderson's 1998 film um, and this was not a film that i liked on the first viewing um uh i i thought it was um I don't know. I, maybe the same way with like Hal Hartley. I, I think I was I, just going to say that. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I just I, thought it was I like a little that. bit too, too self-impressed maybe with the, with the British invasion soundtrack and things. I just, and I didn't immediately warm up to Max Fisher as the protagonist. And so I didn't hate it, but I, I definitely wasn't part of its initial, you know, uh, jubilant uh, reception. I think I was more of an election person at the time, <laughs> but um, you know, I—that's a film that I, 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 I I've since kind of come around on, and I actually like um, all of Wes Anderson's movies, even um, even the Darjeeling Limited and Life Aquatic. I, I, I think um, they all get better for me on repeat viewing. Um, I think uh, he's. You know, I, I I know people that really hate his stuff for a variety of reasons. I don't think, uh, and I certainly you know understand if people feel like some kind of way about every film of his winding up in the Criterion Collection. Um, but you know, it doesn't, and it, none of that really matters. I mean, it's it's a um, that film, in particular Rushmore. Um, it's for me, it's like because it's the last film that seems somewhat grounded in the real world, but it has the budget to be like the widescreen uh, organized frame Wes Anderson that we know, you know, going forward, but it has a little bit of that feet on the ground feeling of bottle rocket, which I also really mm-hmm, like. And mm-hmm. I kind of, I miss that Wes Anderson a little bit, the bottle rocket. Cause I think when, by the time you get to Royal Tenenbaums, which I also love um, the, the more mannered approach to everything is like almost suffocating. Uh, I like it, but it's, but it's, you know, the connection to real life is gone. Um, like they, become- yeah, a lot of people, you know, feel like he's, I don't want to say fallen into self parody, but you know, he almost moves beyond self parody though. Like it's, I think that it's, it's, it's almost kind of like, I don't, you know, it's funny, a director that's not on either of our lists that I think about all the time, and he's kind of been out of fashion for a long time, but everyone had their face where they probably liked Tim Burton a little bit. And I think about Tim Burton being like training wheels auteur for young people because it's such a recognizable brand that he builds. But then when you start finding other type of thing and you realize that Tim Burton is kind of trapped in this conveyor belt system of stamping the Tim Burton brand onto pre-existing properties. And it becomes, mm. <laughs> becomes kind of a thing where it's hard to think of him as an artist. Sometimes Wes Anderson, I feel like will be that way for, you know, a younger generation where like he might be the, 
the director that gets him into directors, but who knows if they will stick with those movies? I don't know. I mean, for me, I think his films are all really funny in surprising ways, very emotional. Um, and uh, this has got my favorite Bill Murray performance. Um, this is a film I know every line of. And, um, you know, so I, I feel like most people listening to this probably have their minds made up about Wes Anderson and Rushmore. So that's my number 11. Yeah, it should be higher now that I think about it. But um, I have a movie at number 10 that is uh, the most surprising in that I was unbelievably destroyed by the sight of stick figures uh, having an emotional breakdown, or one in particular, that is, from the great Don Hertzfeld. It is such a beautiful day. And I think um, this movie became even more special on a personal note because I wasn't I wasn't a teacher for very long. It was like a couple years. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I... It was like a year down the road. Uh, you know, I, I follow one of my students on Instagram and they're in New York um, majoring in screenwriting. And she uh, wrote a post about, you know, the, the the films that have influenced her the most or lately or something along those lines. And when she included It's Such a Beautiful Day, I, I started to tear up because I showed her that movie <laughs> in yeah. class as like an example of what you can do. Um, you know, to convey emotion in like just using animation, just using stick figures, like the most simple things in the world, like the most stripped down minimalist approach to telling a story. And yet you can get swept up in it. You know, this is not, this is not a fully dimensional 3d image of a human being. This is a stick figure and you're, and you're feeling what they're feeling and you're understanding it. So it's 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 a, an important film in a lot of ways. It's something that I'll always cherish. Uh, and to me, it's like, as much as I love something like Tree of Life, this to me actually moved me in the same way, but in a more powerful way. And again, I don't watch it very often just because it overwhelms me. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's easily my favorite animated film and because I'd never seen anything like it again. And certainly his trilogy the world of tomorrow has been great as well which i highly recommend now that there are three parts and you can see them all just follow the work of don hertzfeld and be prepared to have your life be changed forever um it's such a beautiful day as a masterpiece and something that i hope people discover over time yeah yeah i i saw it for the first time last week so i'm, I'm still kind of processing it, but i did like it and uh, i knew that that was an important film for you so i wanted to finally cross that off the list of shame after years of knowing about him but because of because of director's club really i don't think i ever really encounter i mean i know that he's discussed elsewhere too but i mean that's that's kind of what i associate him with is you and patrick talking about his work um my number 10 um and this one actually kind of surprises me because i thought i was gonna talk about henry fool um but i decided to put the unbelievable truth instead oh okay Um, and I don't. Choice. I think it's because I'm at a point where uh, this is just what I feel like revisiting more often now. I mean, I, I love Henry Fool, and it, it, at the time, it felt like a great summing up of everything 
that made him an interesting director. It's, um, but The Unbelievable Truth, I think, um, not just because it's such a great use of Adrian Shelley uh, and, and it's so funny. I think it's because it's the one that is the most light on its feet in a way that um, the more Hal Hartley kind of proceeded, the more he felt like obligated to bring weight and, and to it, which I, I admire. I mean, but I think um, there's something about the kind of relaxed humor of unbelievable truth. I mean, it's something that was shot in 11 days. It has, it has like a connection to things like Jarmish and other things that I recognize in American independent film, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's um, tighter and more screwball than Jarmish. And Jarmish is a director that's really important to me. That's not on my list, but I mean, you know, major influence or impact on me, you know, growing up. But um, Hal Hartley, you know, I, we talked about him a little bit earlier, so I won't go too much longer on this other than this is, um, you know, just it's a sweet, funny, like occasionally like um, kind of moody film in places. Like it has like some very like kind of moody little passages connecting the scenes, um, but it's also full of very silly like kind of gags so uh, and and i i don't know i mean i i could definitely talk about the martin donovan films or henry fool or any of them but um for today it's the unbelievable truth i concur i ugh, man yeah adrian shelley's just the best so number nine okay this is probably the only like so maybe a, it would be a surprise to some people who don't know by now, but I'd say this is the only movie on the list that remains that some people might go, hmm, I don't know about this gym guy, but it is my favorite Martin Scorsese film now, and it is Shutter Island. <laughs> ha! I surprise! Knew, I knew that it was going to be this, and I, 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 I'm not on the same page with you on this one. <laughs> Woohoo! I, I see, that's... That was bound to happen eventually. But I'm just saying, like, it's... Oh, my God. that The ending of this movie... I always go... Like, yes, there's there's a lot of minutes before the ending of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm affected by all of it. And especially knowing... And I know people, like, really harp on, like, oh, it's just like kind of an M. Night Shyamalan twist. It's not... That's not what the movie's about. The movie really is about whether you want to live with the trauma that you've experienced or you really want to just go ahead and end it all because of the trauma you experienced and like what 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 that final line has to say is kind of one of the more powerful things I've ever seen in a movie uh and just like the idea of like I I I can't live with what has happened in my life I can't live with what I've done I can't live with what I've experienced. So I'm basically going to get, get a lobotomy. That's basically what that ending really says to me. And I, I realize like <laughs> an ending is very important. And to me, that's one of the best endings uh, in any movie. And it affects my rewatches of that movie. Uh, and certainly I find, I find what happens with, Michelle Williams as his wife in that movie to be utterly devastating because it could be essentially just about postpartum depression. And certainly he went through 
you know, more trauma by, by being in a war. Uh, and his choice to try and escape it and create this alternate reality is exactly like why we love movies. <laughs> we want to escape the shit, the horror and the trauma and everything else going on in our day-to-day lives by living inside of a fantasy world. And that's, that's kind of why I love this movie. Like some people say that kind of about inception, which is another movie where it features a wife that does something traumatic that affects his ability to think rationally, uh, where people say like, Oh, inception is kind of about making movies. Uh, to me, like shutter Island is a movie about why we love movies. And not a lot of people have that read. And I keep meaning to write about this movie more because the more I watch it, the more I'm affected by it. Uh, and I, I, I understand why people don't like it. I understand why people get huffy about that ending or whatever, but because it's like, yeah, it has a traditional, aha, gotcha kind of a twist. But really, I think, you know, even the first time I saw this movie, I'm like, yeah, I know, I know what's going to, I know what, I kind of know what's happening but that doesn't bother me. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go on and on and on and on again, but I love this movie so much. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You like it. I, I, I watched it again. Uh, last week I s- still have, um, uh, pretty cold re- reaction. to it. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, maybe one day it'll play differently, but, uh, yeah, it's, th- this is one that great I, score. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I struggle with it. I, I don't really like um, the DiCaprio era of Scorsese. I like the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I like the Departed and Aviator. Okay, but I I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, something something about Shutter Islands. The the does it feel like too much like pastiche? Like too much like a throwback to I, all those? I, it feels you know. mannered in a way that I find distracting. Like I like all of the actors in it. I like the look of it. It's Scorsese. I mean, I'm, 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 I want to be on board with it, but it to me, it's, it's probably one of my least favorite things he's made. <laughs> and I understand that response. Like some people yeah. do feel that way, but yeah. I don't know. The more I watch it, the more I'm like kind of surprised, even by my own reaction. To I'm it. surprised by it too, because I mean, when you told me that that was your new favorite Scorsese movie, I'm like what am I missing here? <laughs> because I know that you're a big after hours fan. I'm like, how does yeah, he like this love, more than after I love, hours? I love, it would probably be Shutter Island, After Hours, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, and Mean Streets maybe? Yeah. I think that's how it would go right now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, it's hard. It really is. Because like, yeah, you know, I could put on Taxi Driver right now and say it's my favorite. But honestly, there's something... Mm. I think it's something that has to say about psychology. That's probably all there is to it, really. Well, As someone who's been through weird stuff or has studied it, I think there's something about like also the treatment of the mentally ill that there's that documentary, right? Like uh, blah, 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 who did that documentary about the, that was kind of inspired for this film where you go into mental hospitals from that era maybe Wiseman did it oh not um uh, oh no I know what you're talking about um Titty Cut Follies yeah yeah I think that's it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's also something that I don't know oh. I think when they're talking about like how they treat mental illness at that point in time too is also something that really gets to me uh so 
I don't know. Mm. I mean, yeah, I it, like again, anytime people do have issues with it, it's not something like I'm going to fight over because <laughs> I oh, get yeah. it. Well, I don't fight over any movies, but like yeah, it, it's yeah, I I will give it another try at some point. I mean, it's I I own it. Like I I I picked it up um recently cuz it was discounted. I'm like, well, you know, I should give this another try cuz my I saw it in the theater and the girl I took to see it really hated it, which probably didn't help, but um you know, sure. the um you know, my my reaction was just kind of like, I don't know what I've seen. Like, I mean, cuz it felt like it felt so um I don't know if broad is the right word, but like so overplayed that I wasn't sure what he was up to. Cause I know that Scorsese, Scorsese knows how to direct actors. So I don't know. Like it clearly was all a choice, but um, I don't know when he goes into what is more commercial territory. And I'm thinking of things like Cape fear also um, he can get a little big for me. Um, but I, you know, I know that it was like the most successful Scorsese movie, uh, like a lot of people love it. I mean, you clearly have a deeper reading of it than I I do. So I don't know. I I might just be missing something with this one. But yeah, I, I, I you know, I I'll I'll take Taxi Driver in this in this particular debate. Yeah, and you know, there's also the just, I guess, the question of what is real and how, what you know when you fabricate something, what does that mean? Are you really? I don't know. There's just like a lot of things going on, yeah, but let's continue because yeah, yeah, we're yeah. getting, we're, we're, we're going overboard here. We're yeah, going so, crazy. All right. Well, well it's just my number nine is all that heaven allows Douglas Sirk, 1955. Um, this is one that I think I was 23 when I saw it and uh, I liked it a lot. And every time I go, I go back to it, I, you know, it just moves further up the, up the, uh, up the rank for me, whatever. I, I think it's um, you know, and I like the remix of it too. I love Fassbender's Ali Fears the Soul. I love Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven. I just really respond to this particular, this particular story. I think um, you know, I respond to the beautiful um, artificial world of this film. I think that um, it's funny because they they kind of you know try to imply that the the home is almost like a domestic prison for the main character in this, but it's like. I don't know. It's like a fun house designed by Mario Bava to me. I love the look of it. I'd be totally, totally content in that uh, suburban jail cell. Um, it's occasionally quite funny. Um, and I think Douglas Sirk's melodramas are, you know, definitely like a, a comfort food for me. I love uh, There's Always Tomorrow, Tarnished Angels. Um, and I think that the, the theme of peer pressure and social ostracizing mm-hmm. I think that they could probably tell the story again in a contemporary setting and it still would have relevance. Um, this is maybe the one of Cirque's films that actually moves me the most. I mean, he's got a bunch of films like The Imitation of Life that people um, might be more familiar with. But I mean, there's a there's a scene. Um, I, I want to spoil anything, but there's, there's a scene between mother and daughter that uh, I find really uh, devastating in, in All That Heaven Allows. Like, I don't I don't respond to it because it's, has some clever satire of conformity. You know, I respond to it because it breaks my heart. Like I respond to it the way it's supposed to work now because it's intellectual um, and it looks amazing. I think that um, it, I forget if it's on Criterion Channel, but the Blu-ray of it is just like, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful Technicolor films I've ever seen. And, you know, I, I thought about other films. Like I, I rewatched Life and Death of Colonel Blimp last night thinking it might be on the list of Powell and Pressburger film. And there's other... 
gorgeous Technicolor films. I just ran out of room for the list, but this one is one of the most beautiful films I have ever seen. And uh, it's a great little tearjerker. And uh, so I recommend it. It even has some funny lines that uh, play up, you know, the inside secret of Rock Hudson's personal life, you know, that uh, would have been an inside gag in 1955. But uh, yeah. I need to see more Cirque. And I think uh, I'm hoping that Director's Club will continue in, in 2022, but I'll put you on the list for a Douglas Cirque episode because that would be, that would be wonderful because he's certainly someone whose films I have seen. I've enjoyed immensely. Yeah. And and uh, I need to see more of, and I would recommend uh, the Kino Lorber edition of there's always tomorrow, which is, you know, a major favorite of mine. And it has a commentary by Sam Deegan. Wow. Um, so this next film, I think it's, a, it's similar along the lines in, uh, of Carnival of Souls, right? Because this was his only film as a director. Yeah, if it's not of the Charles, hunter, then yes. <laughs> yes, Charles Lawton, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, that's the only film. And what a remarkable... Tr- I, I watched this again the other night, and I was kind of like, I I can't believe how gorgeously shot this movie is. And, he, and, and like every scene is almost breathtaking. And the shadows and the colors and just the, or I mean the colors, the, the just the shadows and the, 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 the framing and the way like one of the bedrooms almost looks like a church steeple. And there's just like little touches throughout this entire movie that are very subtle. Um, and it's so creepy. It is so dark. It is, it's like a movie that you wouldn't expect to have been made at that time. You know, it's, it's, he like practically plays, you know, Henry Lee Lucas in this movie or something, you know, like he's just one of the ultimate creeps. Yeah. Well, it's um, funny. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, you're, you're right. It, it is a, uh, I mean, it, it, I, I think I just, you know, his performance in Cape Fear like really makes my skin crawl, but this is definitely true. like up there for like Robert Mitchum at his most imposing and scary. Yeah. And I, I, again, it's clearly influenced a lot of my favorite filmmakers um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, like from beginning to end a story that takes hold of you and you care about these kids and you care about what happens. And there's just like incredible, like almost like German expressionism to way things are filmed. Like there's really odd camera angles and things that you don't normally associate with this period. But I mean, it's, it's, you know, it could be interpreted as a film noir of sorts, but yeah. It's also got like this really great, you know, brother sister camaraderie and like what where they wind up in like this kind of orphanage type place. It's it just it just keeps surprising you as it goes on and it all it ends up be, becoming one of the more beautiful, you know, scary films I've from that era and of all time. So Yeah, it's like his Citizen Kane because it's like somebody that came came at the directing gig from a position of some celebrity in power that is like trying out all the techniques that he can think of, um, you yeah. know, that, that would serve the story. Absolutely. Um, my, uh, my number eight is a film that we don't have to go at length about, but is Halloween, John Carpenter, 1978, uh, written in, uh, co-written with deborah hill oh not the david gordon green movie okay okay yeah no no it's uh (laughs) i mean that's we'll we'll get to that one no um kidding but the uh yeah you know on a basic level i think it it reminded me of um 
trick-or-treating in the suburban neighborhoods that I grew up in. And so when I saw it as a teenager, I think I was 15 when I saw Halloween, um, it like immediately became a film I was obsessed with. Like, a, you know, I, I, I forget if I had read about it in Danny Perry. I think I, I think I saw it before I read Danny Perry's book, Cult Movies. Uh, I'm trying to remember that. Mm. It was around that same age, but like... Um, what to say about Halloween. I mean, it's, it's a film that I've seen so many times that I don't even watch it every Halloween anymore because it was like, it's a wonderful life or something that was just like a holiday standard. And it's like, you know, I overkilled on it, but it's, you know, it's, it does everything that I want in a, in a slasher movie. It's a beautiful looking film. I love the the writing that Deborah Hill, I would give her the line share of credit for what I like about the writing of Halloween because she was um, the writer of the teenage girl dialogue. And yeah, I like all the, uh, the evil is gone kind of dialogue that Loomis has for Carpenter's side of it. But um, I think that the, the appealing, the appealing um, teenage characters is something that I think slasher movies took a second to pick up on why that made it in. I mean, it's, you know, obviously you have things like black Christmas before this, but I think that um Slasher movies needed like a year or so to figure out that that was the missing ingredient, not uh, the fact that there was someone stabbing people. Um, and, you know, I love the, the the music of it. I think that, um, you know, it picks up on ideas that Goblin and, um, you know, the, the tubular bells and Exorcist and all these things that preceded, like it made it chillier and more minimalist. And, um, you know, the Dean Cundy's uh, camera work, I think, really is still the best of any slasher movie. Um, that yeah. that is still the most beautiful looking of all of them. Um, uh, no contest. And, I, you know, and John Carpenter, I really deeply love The Fog. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll, it's a close second to Halloween for me. And because I love the writing of it so much, I think it mm. is even more Hawksian than uh, his Hawks remake, The Thing, you know, as far as like the patter of it. But, and, you know, if if I'm being real, Halloween is always going to probably be the John Carpenter film that I default love the best um, just because uh, the, the the world that it's set in. And, you know, that kind of world, you know, kind of also uh, resonates with another film I'll be talking about. But like that darkness and suburbia theme, I think uh, I responded to in a big way as a teenager and it never really wore off for me, even though, Obviously, there's plenty of Carpenter films that follow and that precede that that are remarkable, like Assault on Precinct 13 or The Thing or Christine yeah. or They Live or Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, there's so many things he did and, uh, you know, that, you know, are endlessly rewatchable. I mean, even things like Prince of Darkness that don't get the same attention are, are quite interesting. But um, Oh, yeah, for sure. I love that one. Yeah, but Halloween is uh, is my number eight. All right, let's go. Paris, Texas. <laughs> that's a, that's exactly the kind of mood that film is, right? Like somebody screaming, "Paris, Texas!" Yay! Yeah, no, it's you a know, it's slapper. full. Yeah, it's a full of manic energy, and people yelling at the top of their lungs. It's like, it's like it's a mad, 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 mad world, pretty much. Yeah, well, that was the shooting title, but they changed it. 
to the and I, I think for the better because there was already another movie with that title. I did a movie club podcast episode with uh, Jay Shield, Kurt Halfyard, Patrick Rapole on Paris, Texas. Um, I think it remains my favorite cinematography of all time. Mm. Like I love all my movies. I love all the ones on here. I think it's the most gorgeously shot movie I, I've ever seen. To where it's like, I want to go to that gas station. It looks gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just like shots in here I want on my wall forever. And uh, contains mm, possibly my favorite monologue ever spoken by Harry Dean Stanton at one point. Yeah. No, it's a, so it's, it's, a, got, it's got everything I love in a movie, in this movie. And I'm sorry, Patrick doesn't like it, but that's okay. Yeah, no, I I, I love it too, and uh, it, it, in in a way, I th- I thought of a film that was on my list until this morning, and I just had to swap it out. But uh, the man who fell to earth, you know, in that fish out of water European eye on Middle America, you know, small towns, and like how beautiful and strange it is to an outside outsider's eye. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I I Ben Vendors is a major talent and sometimes I think overlooked because he, he continues to, to crank them out and, you know, uh, they, you know, they don't all get received with the same, uh, acclaim as Paris, Texas or wings of desire, you know, he's like eighties, uh, art house hits, but, um, you know, I mean, he's made a lot of tremendous films. Um, I, I, I nearly had the Kings of the road on my own list and Paris, Texas, another was, great movie. Yeah. Paris, Texas is definitely up there for me too. Um, yeah, no. I... Dying to see this on the big screen in my life. So if New York, if you do that, I might come out. If yeah. it shows somewhere at some point, if we're not all dead. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They showed. Um, they had a vendors retrospective in New York a couple of years ago. I was able to see um, Summer in the City, his first film, which can never come out on home video because of the music rights are like absurd. It's just like hmm. packed with popular songs. But uh, yeah, I think he you know the german new wave directors like i I don't have uh any of them on my list and it really kind of uh made me sad because Werner herzog and reiner Werner fassbender and vin benders are all giant filmmakers to me i mean i love so many of their movies but um you know i had to make room for purple rain and real art um (laughs) my uh number seven speaking of art films is uh francois truffaut's shoot the piano player 1960 um this is God, Holy know, crap, another one I gotta add to my list. One of my favorite movies for a long time. I mean, this was really the film that got me excited about the French New Wave more than Breathless or The 400 Blows or, um, you know, any, any of the uh, the more successful popular movies at the time. I mean, this one is so playful and sad and uh, has one of my favorite uh, scores, the, uh, the George DeLaRue score for this. I used to put this on to just hear it, even though I can't speak French, so I couldn't follow along. Like, uh, if I was just like doing other things at the, when I worked at the video store, it just always kind of set a mood. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's an adaptation of a David Goodis crime novel. So it's got the, um, like it's got the grounding in a crime story, but it, 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 it's more about, um, uh, like a, like a melancholy character study. I think, um, even, I think Kent Jones made this comparison. I thought it was brilliant that uh, something like five easy pieces borrows from it. As far as like, you think it's about one kind of person 
and then you learn about them and they have this whole other life that they're trying to escape. Hmm. Um, I wonder if, if it was even like a lift, but um, they do different things with it. But it's, I think if you are curious about the French new wave, this is the best gateway film I can think of. I think it's, um, you know, it's for me, the best Truffaut film. Um, I just, you know, it's, it's one I always return to every couple of years. It, I think, um, you know, we we talked about a lot of films that I think are essentially men writing their dream girl characters into scripts. Um, and, you know, oh, yeah. the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing becomes kind of a punching bag kind of thing. And it could be a little bit silly in some of these films. But, I mean, I think plenty of these films, all the real girls among them, you know, Unbelievable Truth is another one. Um, probably further down the list we can go. But uh, as far as, like, films that uh, offer some kind of idealized thing, and, you know, there's there's debate of whether or not that's a negative thing. But I think Shoot the Piano Player has that kind of feeling to um, – with the female lead in that uh, Marie Dubois and um, Charles Aznavour is like, you know, totally compelling uh, lead figure for it. It's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a film that uh, I feel very close to. And uh, so, yeah, if you, if you are exploring those early European art house films, I mean, this is a, uh, this is one that's still funny and sad and surprising. I can't wait to finally watch it. It's been too long. It's, I, I think you'll it like it. Shouldn't I hide better? Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna play the score for my number six choice. There you go. 1941, you know, is a film that I hadn't thought about, but you're right. It is a really funny. Oh comedy. no. <laughs> Oh yes, yeah, actually it is pretty funny. No, it actually is pretty funny. Yeah, it is. Um, um Jaws. Okay, <laughs> that's all. all right. that's, do I really need to go well, on and on about well, it? No, well, I it's, don't. It's funny that it's... You, it's funny that you say that because the director of this film that I'm going to come up with here is uh, the guy that got fired from Jaws too. It is John D. Hancock and his debut featured "Let's Scare Jessica to Death," 1971. Uh, my favorite. That is horror. number 98 on my list. Yeah, it's uh, my favorite horror movie. It's my favorite film location that I visited, and I visited a lot of film locations. Uh, it's my favorite uh, music to a horror film. Uh, maybe my mm. favorite performance in the lead, uh, Zora Lampert. And, uh, you know, we've talked about a couple of films about, uh, you know, that kind of repulsion or Carnival of Souls or like, you know, uh, uh, neurotic female protagonists. And uh, this is one of those, but I think it's... Uh, just a great, uh, eerie, uh, great afternoon horror, uh, uh, you know, masterpiece, really. And, and, and it, it seems like more people are finding it, it you know, as the years go by. And, um, you know, I I, uh, I, I I forget if I've talked about this elsewhere. I mean, you know, but it's, yeah, it, it's it's uh, just from this very important to me. That's my number six. It's a fantastic choice. I know, I know my friend, uh, know my friend Sharon. She's also a huge fan, and uh, talk. Yeah, we talked a lot about this movie, and it's something that the more I watch it, and I kind of, it's, it has become a yearly tradition. But the first time I watch it, uh, it's not like the greatest story in the world, but it's kind of funny to bring up the fact that, uh, you know, a, a musician friend of mine was like, "Hey." I have some opium. Do you want to smoke opium and watch Let's Scare Jessica to Death? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> I got nothing else to do. I got nothing else planned. And I've never smoked opium before, so why not? And yeah, it was just, a, yeah, I barely remembered the movie, but it was more of like I was in and out and not, I just like couldn't feel my legs and stuff. But it was, it was kind of fun. It was a fun movie to watch in an altered state. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I will probably touch on this theme more with another film, but the, um, the post. Oh, it's altered states, right? Yeah, of course. Well, no, I was going to say that the, um, the, the, uh, seventies post counterculture era kind of like that, that generation coming to terms with adulthood is a theme in let's go Jessica to death mm. that I really love the, um, the hippies trying to go straight in small town USA. This is something that you get a little, little touch of it in, um, Messiah of evil, but you get it in, uh, things that are not on my list, like return to Sakaka seven, like that kind of like, what do, what does the protest generation do when they grow up? thing i i really find that a compelling theme it's not like the major focus of let's go jessica to death but i like that as an undercurrent versus i mean i like the films about like you know teenagers getting bumped off and you know models getting harassed in the jalo movies but like i think that the uh the the characters um in in let's go jessica to death like that that theme i i think that that's a big part of why it matters to me as much as the you know the the spooky goings on of the um, the woman they find at the house, and you know is she some kind of uh, otherworldly threat? Is Jessica just you know uh, going insane? You know these these uh, that ambiguity is is all well and good, but like I think that it's just the um, the sadness of it that uh, I respond yeah. to even more than the the scariness of it. But um, it's a great little That's character just... study film. It's very true for my number three coming up, but before we get to that, mm. I would say, um, you know what, the you know what, number sixty on my list is a simple plan, and I would say that the, if it weren't for this movie, that's now number five, used to be number one, but mm. now it's number five. There wouldn't be a simple plan, and that is uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh-huh. I love movies about greed. I love movies about people thinking all oh, this all this money or all this gold is going to save us all and i'm going to you know be rich and happy and everything's going to be okay and nah that's just not how life works people it just you just turn into greedy monsters that's all that's really all the message of that movie is is you know like <laughs> capitalism sucks and money sucks and i hate money and we're slaves to it and there's nothing we can do and you know it's I always say like, hey, if a million dollars came my way, I would, I would, I would be given a charity. I'd be helping out my friends. I say that. I don't know if that's true. I could easily turn into um, Humphrey Bogart in Treasure of Sierra Madre. You never know. You just never know. But uh, I still think this is the uh, as good as movies get. Although there's four more to come. <laughs> Yeah, I, I rewatched The Treasure of Sierra Madre because I knew that this was inevitably on your list because it was your number one the last time I think you did this list. Um, yes. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, it's faultless. I mean, I, 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 it's not my favorite John Huston movie, but I, I wouldn't disagree that it's kind of perfect for what it is. I, I, mm-hmm. I, it's, he's weird because I really prefer when he became like a quasi new Hollywood director, like around the time of like fat city and wise blood and the dead. And um, he, he's a weird, he's a weird one because he has, I should watch fat city again too. That probably would be on my list L- lowered, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, 
I mean, his career goes from things like Maltese Falcon up to Prissy's Honor. I mean, it's, but he, he has so many, I mean, things like phobia that are just like, you know, baffling, <laughs> you know, you know, mixed in with these, you know, obvious uh, classics. I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's a fascinating director. And there's, I, I love the documentary on him that's on the Warner Brothers edition of uh, Treasure Sierra Madre as well. I, I think if you haven't oh. taken time to watch that, you'd probably find it really interesting. Hell of a director. Hell of a director. Yes. That's a terrible John Houston, but I tried. I thought that was something that you just played from the documentary. That was you? Okay, well. Um, What's your number five, Bill? My number five, uh, and I struggled with this one too, because, um, you know, uh, Noah Baumbach has mm. a couple of films that I really like a lot, and uh, I was really uh torn between one of his newer films and kicking and screaming, which I ultimately am, am going with today because it's one of my comfort viewing films. I just think it's very funny and um, does not have the same way with the unbelievable truth. does not have the same pressure to be, you know, living up to, um, you know, his reputation as an artist quite the same way. I mean, but I think no Baumbach for me is like the most consistently, enjoyable director of that 90s indie boom now i think as far as like i like everything even uh, the one he took his name off of highball i like that too um yeah yeah that was all right but um but yeah i, I it's funny because like i i think my favorite american film of recent years is francis ha and so i was tempted to kind of do an upset and talk about that one i think that um you know, as a portrait of female friendship, uh, certainly a film that like has plenty of homages to French New Wave. I think um, that's a really wonderful film in a different way, and it, it it helped kind of push Greta Gerwig along. I like her films as a director a lot too. I like the film that she did before uh, Lady Bird, um, Nights and Weekends, a lot as well. But um, you know, back to Kicking and Screaming, and this also is a kind of stand-in for the films of Whit Stillman, which I love a great deal. I was really kind of sad when all three of you. <laughs> on the best films of 1990 episode of director's club all took turns bashing metropolitan. Um, but Man. I think that's the best from 1990, but you know, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. But um, Chris Eigeman um, is the funniest thing in both kick and screaming <laughs> and uh, all the Whit Stillman films. And um, oh yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. That's I mean, a good point. You know, I think I like Barcelona more. So when we get to that, I'm, I'm going to watch it again with an open mind. Yeah, I mean, I get the resistance to the uh, the world of smug preppies that uh, populate the films of Whit Stillman, but I think that they are very funny. And, um, you know, this one, I, I think I saw it at the right age. I saw it in 1998, uh, just as I was about to graduate from college. I think I was 21, and it really was almost on the nose how much it kind of <laughs> aligned with... Uh, you know, where I was at versus what the film uh, is about. And I went into it with really low expectations because I think they might have compared it to Seinfeld in the box. And it was like Parker Posey and Eric Stoltz on the cover. It's like they were very overexposed indie faces at that point in the 90s. I'm like, okay, well, you know, this will be like Sleep With Me or one of those other kind of you know pleasant indie comedies. And, you know, it's just one that like, just I, I, I was surprised happily to see that this has, you know, become a criterion collection film and like i i just thought it was gonna be one of those like little indie cult films that kind of you know had a video store kind of following but didn't really um i, I never would have thought that uh no baumbach would become like a 
you know, an Oscar nominated prestige director. It's like, he's such a weird career because it seems like every couple of years he resets the entire thing. Because I think about the, uh, the early films like this and Mr. Jealousy and Highball. And then he goes away for a while. And then he comes back with Squid and the Whale. It's like a totally different kind of filmmaker. And, and the um, Margot at the Wedding and Greenberg. And then he comes back again with Francis Ha in a totally different thing. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I, I think they've they've all got such strong writing. I think of, um, I know Quentin Tarantino compared him to Paul Mazursky, which is another director I wish had been on the list. But, um, you know. Another blind spot, I think. I need to see more of his work, for sure. A lot sure. of good stuff. Uh, yeah. Also, scenes from them all, but so also a lot of good stuff. Ooh, yuck! But yuck, um, yeah. but yeah, but this is just a very funny film. Um, you know, it's a hangout mm-hmm. movie. Uh, it, I I don't know that it is the great art of Francis Ha or Squid and the Whale or um, you know, uh, any of some of the later films. I'm a big fan of Margaret the Wedding, which a lot of people don't care for. But I think that's, mm. you know, I think they're all interesting. Uh, films but this one is you know if i'm having a bad day i can put this on and feel better so that's why i pick it for number five it's interesting when i think back to um the first time i saw greenberg i just was not in the mood and i left halfway where i was like (laughs) i don't fucking care about this jerk at all i don't want to spend time with him i don't care that he's putting galaxy 500 on a playlist for um i'm out of here i'm just you know, and then I watched it again. I'm like, you know what? I love this. And I love all of Noah Baumbach's movies, really, except for Margot at the Wedding. I'm kind of left cold on. But I think the more I think about his career, the more I'm like, maybe this guy is my Woody Allen. You know, I mean, maybe like just his writing speaks to me more than very than other, than other screenwriters do. Like there's yeah. certainly examples, but I think just like every time he he makes a movie and I'm just kind of in awe of his ear for dialogue yeah. and the way people interact together. I can't imagine him making a Stardust Memories or a Zelig or Purpose of Cairo. Like I can't see That's him true. taking the chances of Woody Allen in like Woody Allen's like peak. But I kind of wish he would. I wish he'd do something really daring but, after Marriage Story. But at the same time, I feel like he's as consistently good as Woody Allen in his best period. And I think he's only... He could he could be like the guy. I mean, you know, I don't know that I prefer the Meyerowitz stories and Marriage Story over Francis Ha or Squid in the Wind. Like, I don't know that he's necessarily getting better, but it's like he's he's staying uh, yeah, at the highest Meyerowitz level, you know, uh, yeah. for me. And you know, I uh, yeah, no, I, I I I'm excited. I'm always excited to see what he's doing next. Um, and uh, you know, he's he's I I'm happy because I, I know it took him a long time to get the budget for Squid in the Whale. It seems like he's always been kind of on under the radar up until recent years and you know so it's i i'm happy to see him become a prestige director but uh and he was nice to me when i met him um and i his characters are so mean in some of the films i thought oh he's gonna be horrible but he was nice (laughs) he seems nice um number four is like the only example in this entire top 50 of maybe an action film kind of but i would call it an existential crime thriller noir of sorts and uh again i haven't seen as many films by this director as i would like but it um you know as i believe let me try and think i think 
Yeah, I think it's Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs who asks Harvey Keitel, I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan. Mm. I am not, and yet... <laughs> There's something about his character in Point Blank. Yeah, yeah. That's unlike anything I've ever seen in where he, like, I don't know. He's, again, talk about a movie that's very dreamlike and enigmatic and has this incredible nonlinear structure that is so unconventional and so out there. And and to the point where you're like, is he a ghost? What, what? Why isn't he reacting to certain things? I mean, like he's getting hit like you wouldn't believe by Angie Dickinson at one point. He's just standing there, doesn't really move, doesn't have any reaction. And there's there's moments throughout this movie that I, I I'm puzzled by, but in the best way possible. And I've never seen anything like it. And it's, clearly, it's an influence for the the limey and uh, yes. the way Soderbergh directs or at least edits um, his films. I, he's described it as a memory film of sorts. And again, very similar to uh, Jeté, Jetem. That is funny that it. you say that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because um, that's how I feel. Like, w- movies are like that for me. That's how they play in my head. And uh, this movie is best experienced as a whole on the big screen. But if you can't see it in any way, shape, or form, it's very fragmented. It's like a puzzle. And you can choose to put it together or not. But uh, I absolutely love everything about this movie so much. Yeah, no, it's not on my list, but it's, I mean, perfect movie. I, I, I think it's probably John Borman's best movie. I, I like um, Deliverance and Hope and Glory and some of his other films a lot. But uh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's perfect. Uh, oh, and weird. It, this is weird. I just opened up the Wikipedia for it and it's... Under where it says themes, it says um, some critics consider Point Blank to be a haunted dreamlike film that draws upon the spatial and temporal experiments of modernist European art cinema, especially the time fractured films of French director Alan Renoir. Ah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, no, that's why I thought it was funny that you said that. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's I mean, that's a that's a great, great film. Um, I don't have anything to add to it, but um yeah, my please see it. Please see it. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, my my number four is um, a film that always always threatens to move to the very top. Although I don't know if it'll be my favorite film, but it's one that I I care a great deal about. Is uh, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, uh, Michelle Gondry, two thousand five. Wow. Yes. That's cool that it's that high. Nice. Yes. No. It's um. It's, I should watch that again too. You know the thing with it is, um, you know, I, I think you know you look at it and it's hard to not see it as, you know, right before he has the breakdown, because it's right around the time mm-hmm. he's offered fifty million dollars uh, for another season of Chappelle Show by Comedy Central, and I think maybe the the guilt you know, of, of having that kind of power and wealth uh, compels him to make this free concert in, in, uh, in New York that was going to be um, kind of like a great venue. I mean, it's not just the Soulquarians, but it's, it's heavily informed by the Soulquarians, which is the, 
collective of artists that surrounded the roots in the late 90s and early 2000s. So you have, you know, Jill Scott and Erica Badu and Common and Most Deaf and um, to an extent, Kanye West, I guess, could be part of that, but he's kind of a little bit of an outlier. But um, but you have this concert film that feels um, kind of joyful and playful, but also um, like when the Fuji show up at the end, uh, Lauren Hill was somebody that had like this mm. very kind of public breakdown in the wake of massive success. And I think that... Yeah, um, for sure. You look at the look on her face uh, doing those Fuji songs and you can read so much complicated emotion in, in it um, because she's somebody that never really came with a follow-up to miseducation to this day. I don't think she has. And I think about um, you know, the pressure that, that that kind of intense celebrity puts on people. I know that the film opens with a marching band doing um an arrangement of overnight celebrity which is this twista song that kanye west produced but even just the notion of um the burden of celebrity um is something i think about in like Chappelle's. i don't want to say forced joviality because i think he probably means it but at the same time i'm looking at him thinking this guy is going to walk away from all of this very soon and so it adds this kind of bittersweet undercurrent and plus it's Right around the time that the Iraq War was still, still you know, going on, mm-hmm. it's it's there's all sorts of asides that reference that and how so many of the young people that are in that audience or that are going to see that concert could be potential cannon fodder. You know, it's it's right, it's happening right before the re-election of George Bush, and it's not quite as political as Watt Stacks, which is probably a, a film that influences it, but it's um. I think that there's still some kind of anxieties, um, you know, about the war, about the pressure put on black entertainers that <laughs> that kind of give it something more than just a review of neo soul and hip hop. Like it's it's more than that. Interesting. Um, so there's a lot of context going on. There's a lot of social political themes that, yeah, I mean, like I just. I don't know if I wrote it off as just another concert film, but I certainly, and maybe at the time, wasn't perceiving it the way you are. And that's something that's going to make me want to watch it again, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I you know, I, it was a film that I didn't seek out when it opened theatrically. I, I think I, I rented it just to have something to cook dinner to, you know, just because it was a concert <laughs> film. I like some of the artists in it. I like Dave Chappelle as a comedian. And... um it, it kind of struck me on the first viewing and then every time I've gone back to it, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think, um, you know, Michel Gondry, I think it changed him too because I think that the DIY aesthetic of, you know, that old couple making their little house that's off to the side adjacent to the concert or the the let's put on a show exuberance of the entire endeavor I think that that bleeds over into Science of Sleep and Be Kind Rewind and all of the films that he does in the wake of his Charlie Kaufman uh, projects. And then, you know, Chappelle, I, I you know, I, I know that Questlove talks about that film being like a like an end of an era kind of kind of moment or that that concert rather as like, you know, that's really where a certain era ends for that collective of, of musicians. And um 
I don't know. It's it's like a little interesting document um, that uh, just it just it just uh, I I don't know. I think that more people should check it out. I know that uh, Chappelle himself these days and Kanye West perpetually are are like polarizing figures. But uh, if you don't have that as a barrier, uh, it's it's um, I think one of the great films you know of recent years. Then I will watch it again very soon. Number three on my list uh, is my new favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. And I I don't know if I've proclaimed my love of it entirely on the podcast, but there will be at some point a Paul Thomas Anderson episode sequel that uh, I, I Steve Procopi may return, as a matter of fact, because he called this the best film of the decade. And uh, I'm inclined to agree now. Uh, there was an entire podcast <laughs> that covered the film minute by minute uh, with various guests, a lot of them astute. A lot of them I like you know contacted on Twitter and said thank you for bringing this point to my attention. But um, it's inherent vice mm. and I, I it's hard to put into words now why it's become my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Uh, but it does. It does contain, you know, that weird sense of humor, but mixed with deep longing and melancholy that he's kind of known for. And then he kind of pulls off really well. Uh, And I like it captures the voice of Pinchon, a very enigmatic writer that I struggle with, but still find fascinating. Uh, And it's it's become my favorite Joaquin Phoenix performance, even if he does the mumbling thing. I uh, I certainly find it sweet. I find him to be a very likable protagonist in this movie, even if he's high most of the time. Uh, it's become, you know, like my Big Lebowski, but I feel like it has a lot more to say thanks to some of the, uh, like the Neil Young touches about the journey through the past and feeling nostalgia, whether that's good or bad. And uh, just like what it has to say about our kind of uh, in this perpetual cycle of medicating ourselves because we don't like the way the world is going and how things are turning out to be. And another post Manson, you know, uh, feeling and certainly Vietnam, just like everything is perpetually being explored on the bottom uh, or, you know, uh, underneath the surface, I should say, that's not always apparent until you watch it like nine times. (laughs) and then suddenly it's like oh this is actually an amazing work of art and i i I can't explain why most of the time too like if i did a commentary for this i'd just be like going well this is great this is great (laughs) i love everything about this um but i'm sure if you listen to some podcasts if you read some essays on it you'll understand a little bit better why inherent vice is now a masterpiece (laughs) Yeah, I remember when you uh, didn't include it on your best films of the year list that year that it came out, and uh, Patrick commenting on it. Yeah, that was a shocker. Yeah. Again, one that I had to warm up to, but let's let's just keep going. Eventually, we're gonna. I'll talk about that even more in the future for yeah. sure. Yes. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you you came around on it because that is uh, a wonderful movie. Um, yeah. My number three is one I've talked about plenty of times on podcasts. It's Blue Velvet, 1986, David Lynch. Um, 
you know, I I don't know what more to say about. It. I mean, it's you know, apologize if anyone's heard me say this on other podcasts. Basically, you know, the film that um, made me interested in following directors the way I do certain musical artists. It's the film that's had the biggest impact on my life, probably. Um, I Understandably think so. It's the film that compelled me to move to Wilmington, North Carolina, for a couple of years. It prompted. Um, a podcast little mini series of episodes on the now playing network from the neighborhood that I did with my friend Dave Ryder. Um, some of the first film locations I visited, um, first film I ever wrote about, first film I ever had anything published about in a local newspaper when I was, you know, uh, first even trying to talk about film in print. It's not a very good essay, but I, you know, um, I did. Uh, I did another podcast about this. Um, Just the disc, the Brian Sauer uh, podcast. So Stephanie Crawford and I did a whole thing on David Lynch. Um, so I feel like I. I it's you know, I, on a very basic level, I, I think I responded to it the way I responded to uh, Halloween as a teenager, as far as like the sinister feeling in a suburbia, not too dissimilar from the one I grew up in. Um, and funny enough, both of them were beautiful films that I grew up in pan and scan VHS, uh, you know, <laughs> versions of it. Um, but I mean, David Lynch, you know, uh, is is the director that when I get books on film directors, it's the, I turn to the L's first to see, you know, like, I mean, e- even if Robert Altman and Howard Hawks and Ingmar Bergman, you know, there's other directors that have more films I love, but I think um, in terms of impact on my life, I mean, it's not even close what uh you know his stuff means to me um i think you know we'll probably be talking about one of his later films that has kind of replaced blue velvet in the popular canon i can understand that i don't know that blue velvet is his best movie it's just the one that uh impacted my life the most i think um twin peaks the return was the most exciting film related thing if if you consider it television, most exciting television, but it's, you know, he, he continues to be someone that I think operates at uh, full strength, which is um, really not common for artists that have been famous since the seventies to be potentially, you know, on the verge of making what could be their greatest work. Um, so it's exciting. It's to, to follow his, his career and, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I know Blue Velvet had an impact on you. I know that you'll be talking about a different film of his. But, uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, that's my number three. <laughs> yeah, I'd say the top three really just sums up me in a nutshell and also represents three of my favorite voices of all time in film and otherwise. So uh, for number two, my favorite screenwriter of all time is, of course, Charlie Kaufman with Synecdoche, New York. A uh, again a dreamlike puzzle <laughs> seems to be like that's kind of becoming the consistent go-to uh, narrative for me. Is like I don't know if I understand this movie entirely, but I love that I don't, and I actually get an emotional uh, catharsis watching this film, especially after losing Philip Seymour Hoffman and the way the film plays out. Um, and again, I don't know if I entirely understand what it's trying to say but again something that just works for me that makes me laugh hysterically that make that makes me cringe that makes me freak out uh the way this film plays with time is really tricky really unexpected 
you really have to pay attention. And I also recommend going to YouTube and watching lots of people try to figure this movie out <laughs> and analyze it ad nauseum. And I think it's amazing to see what people think of this movie. And, um, you know, eventually I'm going to write down all my thoughts on this one, too, because uh, I think it's a remarkable work of art that is unlike anything I've ever seen. And, you know, talk about an ensemble that you'll never forget when you see them all together. And they also, he just has this view of the world and the way we live that is, I guess it's similar sometimes to Cormac McCarthy, that it's kind of nihilistic and we're all doomed and, you know, life is horrible sometimes, but we can still find beauty and grace. And I think that this movie tries to tap into that, but also has a lot of things to say that, again, is left up to your interpretation uh, much much like a David Lynch film. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's a great film. I mean, it's my favorite thing that Charlie Kaufman has written the screenplay for. I think, um, you know, when I first read about it, I thought it was like, like invented for me in a lab as far as that cast, because it was like, I mean, you know, besides Everybody's Michelle Williams, it. it's like, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee, And um, I haven't mentioned him at all, but um, a big uh, impact on me um, was uh, the films of Tom Noonan what happened was in the wife and stuff for him to be in it as an actor. And, um, you know, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, of course it's, uh, you know, I remember when that came out that, uh, there were people that really struggled with it that I knew that I it, oh, yeah. it definitely like, to you know, was day, not a know universally beloved film. It. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's definitely like, <laughs> the aspects of being John Malkovich that made people mad back in 99, it feels like a epic length, you know, approximation of that kind of feeling of like, it's just a surreal, sad. Um, yeah. Like, like, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't know that I would try to untangle it like as we're trying to wrap up, but it is, a, it is a great film. And uh, you know, I totally, I, I figured that was coming when you mentioned that it was another Michelle Williams. I thought when you said Shutter Island, like, oh, maybe that's what he meant. But yeah, no, it's. Oh, wait a minute. There's three then. Yes. Three total. Okay, cool. Yeah. And we've already talked about my number two and uh, at length was the last picture show, 1971, Peter Bogdanovich. Um, I think I wow. I think I saw this 18 or 19 years old and, um, you know, it mixes together the classical old Hollywood style with the. Um, the uh, the frankness about sexuality that Wait a minute. is that on my list that better be on my list somewhere yeah let me look let me look let me look here what the crap I think I've mistakenly forgot it oh. I'm a fool it should be on here yeah, should well. be at least in the top 100 I'll fix that later okay <laughs> go ahead sorry well no just I mean we we've talked about this one before and I know that in the last year we had that Ben Mankiewicz uh, Turner Classic Movies podcast about Bogdanovich and there was that Polly Platt season on you must remember this and I'm almost like exhausted about the mythology surrounding this film at this point but it, it is a uh, you know for me it, it was you know I mean it was my number one for a long time and I, I, I don't like it any less you know I just felt like having something different i mean these things are so kind of arbitrarily positioned sometimes <laughs> but it's you know it's a great melancholy americana film um and uh you know I, I i think if you haven't seen it it's uh you know as good as movies get you are so right about that um 
think I know what your number one is now. But my number one uh, is something that has crept up over time. And of course, I've told people the circumstances surrounding me seeing this movie uh, were very emotional. And I think the first time I saw it, I wrote it off as like, uh, this is minor, minor Lynch. And it seems like basically he was trying to do Lost Highway all over again to some degree. And now, lo and behold, it is now, to me, the epitome of everything I love about movies uh, rolled into one. And honestly, I would say that even Twin Peaks has now become, with that last season, has become my favorite television show. So why not give David Lynch's Mulholland Drive my number one spot? You know, I won't, um, yeah, I won't argue with on that. I mean, it's... <laughs> You know, it's funny because like I even when I was seeing it on sight and sound lists, maybe whatever, 10 years ago or something, I just kind of went, what? And now I understand why. And I, again, like I can't even pinpoint exactly other than when I watch it, I think everything about it, every scene, every moment, every choice uh, is now profound and special and moving and you know, the Silencio sequence is in my favorite moments in cinema history. Uh, and Naomi Watts gives, again, one of my top five favorite performances in cinema history. So, uh, yeah, what can you say? Like, I've always put David Lynch at least in my top ten favorite directors, but now he's he's in the top three. Uh, he's just a remarkable magician. <laughs> I don't know how, how to explain what he does and how he does it. If I could be on set with any director, you know, including Paul Thomas Anderson, I'd actually want to see how David Lynch works and does what he does. And I know there's documentaries where you can see some some footage of that, but yeah, he curses I, a I lot. just <laughs> I he curses and smokes and uh I I am I'm beyond words when it comes to watching a lot of his work, you know. I just uh, I I can't even like I just this movie people can write it off too and it's being like well it's clear that this was a pilot and then it became something else and I think what it ultimately becomes is uh one of the saddest movies about uh an, an unrealized unrequited love that destroys you uh that destroys this this uh, person played by Naomi Watts and again I love movies about dreams and this plays like a dream and there's a lot going on visually that I think is startling to to experience and uh, now it makes me you know think of the circumstances upon the first time I seeing seeing it very differently like seeing this in waking life back to back uh, when you're very very vulnerable uh, it's kind of like hard to believe that I experienced that. Like if, I mean, I got to meet very quickly to, uh, Richard Linkletter because he was there for waking life. Mm -hmm. But if I had gotten to meet him and David Lynch back to back, I probably would have collapsed. <laughs> I just probably wouldn't be able to handle like just the fact that they've made two of the most profound movies that speak to me, uh, ever. You know, it's like I can't I can't get over it. And and certainly when he came into town for Inland Empire, that was special. And that's certainly another movie that I want to give another look over time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's Mulholland Drive is probably going to always be my new favorite movie. But I've said that uh, <laughs> many times. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think um, 
there's one thing I'll, I'll say about David Lynch as far as like he's a, a set piece, you know, specialist as far as like there are sequences that don't even need to have the narrative thread connecting them to work. And I think that, you know, when I showed somebody Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive in kind of quick succession, and I, you know, I had the same first impression of Mulholland Drive that you did. I think um, it felt like a companion to Lost Highway. And Lost Highway is a film I love tremendously and I think has always been mm-hmm. underrated and um, and will always probably continue to be underrated because Mulholland Drive came along in a way that was similar but maybe more accessible uh, for people. Um, you know, um, that, uh, you know, maybe maybe as people are starting to come around on lost highway uh Mulholland drive just made it simpler well here here we this is the masterpiece this was you know not lost highway lost highway was a you know i think the biggest flop of his career i think even more than something like dune or twin peaks fire walk with me i think lost highway was the biggest commercial failure of his career and um it's a shame because that's a really fascinating movie i'm gonna talk about it on projection booth later this year and maybe get to the bottom of it. Maybe not, but, um, Mulholland hmm. drive, I think, you know, when I showed it back to back or like a week apart uh, to a friend of mine, uh, it became clear just how many great set pieces, um, were in this one. I mean, you know, you mentioned the Silencio scene, but I'm thinking of the cowboy scene. I'm thinking of the, the figure behind <laughs> winkies. I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, the angry masturbation stuff. I mean, I'm thinking of the, I told every little star, you know, like 16 reasons, like those kind of moments. Um, uh, so many uh, perfect little things. And, you know, I, I don't even know had he made it into a television show, what that would have looked like. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, or if they even had um, decided to make it a film at the time they shot it. Cause I think, I think, uh, all the props and sets were gone by the time that the French financing came in to turn it into a feature film so that they had no choice, but to go another direction um, rather than follow the strands they had set in motion in the pilot. Um, You know, I, it's, I mean, David Lynch, I don't really even like totally like ranking them because I think that there's a lot to say about fire walk with me and a lot to say about Eraserhead and a lot to say about, Fire Walk With Me is another one that the more I watch it, the more it creeps up as being a masterpiece. I think it's, yeah. I mean, there are people I know that say that's the best one, and I I mean, I get it. You know, that's a heartbreaking, horrifying movie, Uh, and also quite beautiful. I mean, you know, it's... they're They're all such, you know, interesting films. I mean, even one that I know has kind of never been as well loved and i i think that maybe you and patrick you know both are not as keen on but wild at heart has so many scenes that i think are tremendous i mean whatever faults it has it's still i'll definitely keep watching that one over time yeah i (laughs) you know like i i love every pretty pretty much everything he's done except dune maybe but you know I, i i i will keep watching his work over the years no matter what so yeah well you know one one actress that uh that I know from Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks it was uh, Frances Bay, and uh, she's got a little oh, bit part yeah. in uh, my number one film, uh, which is Chilly Scenes of Winter, uh, number seventy-seven on my list. Yeah, a movie that I I, I uh, breaks my heart, breaks my heart. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know we're trying to wrap up, so I'll just say that, I mean, this is coming at a very weird time because uh, we're only a couple I'll of say. days out from Joan Micklin Silver passing away. And, uh, you know, um, it's it's nice to see that her uh, recognition only seems to be uh, increasing in recent years. I know that there's a growing cult following for crossing Delancey whenever it was playing in New York. I know between the lines is getting more attention in recent years because of um, Cohen uh, re-releasing that. I think um, uh, Chil- Chilsea of Winter might have a new home in home video, but I, I shouldn't say more than that. But the, uh, you know, this one crept up on me because I, I, I sought it out because of Danny Perry uh, writing about it in cult movies three, uh, his, uh, his book. And, um, you know, I think I liked it well enough. I got it from the Morris County Library, and I, I, I appreciated it. I liked John Hurd. I, I was already a fan of Cutter's Way and, um, you know, Griffin Dunn, who's in a film that really should have been on my list. I just have room with American Werewolf in London, you know, like, I mean, um, in After oh, Hours yeah. as well. Um, like, there were people involved in it that I liked. Um, but something about it, uh, maybe on the second or third viewing, is when I I, I felt it kind of really clicking into place because I think um, I think it gets at a kind of truth about romantic obsession that, you know, I, I know a lot of male filmmakers uh, either play it for laughs like Modern Romance or maybe play it for something a little scarier like Taxi Driver. I think, you know, this is something that was you know based on a novel by Anne Beattie and, and written and directed by Joan Micklin Silver. And they they seem to get it the, the best. Um you know that 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 character is a stalker, and it's he's complicated, but he's and he can he can be like verging on threatening. I know that you know there are certain lines in it that will definitely uh, raise an eyebrow in the current in the current climate. But I think that that's I think that makes it more interesting than if it was like a uh, a John Cusack character. You know, I think I think I like that he's. Uh, funny in the way that guys at an office can be funny, which is like a little offbeat and potentially obnoxious. Like he's not like a a stand up comedian working an office job. Like he's realistically, you know, quirky funny. Um, yeah, even in the beginning with the meat cute, it's like, dude, give her some space. You know, she's like, let me do my job. Uh, go out, wait out there. But he's like, no, man, I'm I'm gonna I, I <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. invade your space, and it's kind of uncomfortable, you know. But it also gets her too because she's not a uh, she's complicated. Like she's the kind of character sure. that has sure. the worst self esteem. That I think uh, I think we've all met or been that kind of character. I think that um, you know that kind of person that doesn't feel like they can take on love, and so they they really only respond positively when they're maybe a little mistreated, you know, like um, she doesn't want to live with him until he doesn't call her one night, you know, like these little details and, uh, you know, that doesn't make her into the villain or the manic pixie dream girl fantasy figure either. Like she's just allowed to be a complicated person. And I think that that kind of gives it um, a rewatchability and a richness to me that, um, you know, I mean, I, I I love a film like Modern Romance, but Modern Romance doesn't try to give that character a complicated inner life. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> whereas this does. Um, you know, and I think yeah, for both of them, yeah, for, for sure. both of them. It's... You know, and 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 this also, like I mentioned, with Let's Go Jessica to Death, it it is a um, 
it is a film about that counterculture generation fumbling into adulthood and what do you do when uh you know dylan and janice joplin and woodstock and all that's in the rearview mirror and now it's just kind of like you know walking you know to your car in the snow and working an office job that you know you don't even really have any connection to it emotionally and um so you have all this extra mental energy you know misdirected towards a woman you barely know you know it, it it totally feels um accurate in in the way that it handles that kind of stuff but it's also very funny all the supporting uh characters in it are you know fleshed out and likable i think peter Riegert does you know a really good turn as the <laughs> friend in it um gloria graham uh, gloria graham from uh, you know it's a wonderful life and in the lonely place and i mean she's you know very funny and and loopy as the uh as the mother in it um you know it's just it's got an atmosphere to it it's got like um great use of music beautiful uh score by uh is it ken lauber you know like uh the the uh, it just uh, you know i know how good or bad i'm doing you know in my day-to-day life uh, you know in terms of how much i identify with charles whenever i rewatch chili since of winter because it is a uh you know it is not an easy character to you know be in the shoes of but uh I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's one that um, it seems to be getting more and more attention. I know that uh, like Martin Scorsese had been a, a vocal fan of it. I know that um, Brian and Elric have been giving it some love on the Pure Cinema podcast and that this only kind of helps kind of raise awareness of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like for, for, for now, this is the one that if forced to put these things in numerical order, I'm putting this one number one. Excellent choice, and I'm very grateful for you introducing me to this film. There is a uh, dialogue exchange after they walk out of a uh, a porno movie theater. Yeah, that is way too well, like hit way too close to home. Like it was scary. Uh, in that, I've had an exchange with somebody that I'm with as like you're putting me too much on a pedestal. I'm not this person that you think I am that like that conversation that they have in this movie was like, Oh, this, this is modern romance or broadcast news territory for me. Uh, So it it has moments like that where I'm just kind of like, this is as good as, you know, a romantic drama can be and full of funny moments, but full of sad moments and full of real human uh, poignancy throughout that uh, yeah the more I watch it the more I go this is this is a, one of the all-time great movies too so I'm with you yeah yeah and it, it's you know I mean I, I, I see that kind of behavior that the characters I mean like that way that people try so hard and they push people away just because they don't have any filter um, mm-hmm. you know I it's I don't know it's just very well observed kind of thing but it's also doesn't forget to be funny. Doesn't forget to be, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, 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 it, it, it works, uh, perfectly for me. And, uh, you know, and, and Joan Micklin Silver did other films that are equally worthy of note. Like between the lines is a film that I, uh, care a lot about. I've seen it twice this weekend by, you know, by chance, because I, I rewatched it when, uh, the news, uh, came out of her passing and then I went to a virtual movie party yesterday and it was the first film on the on the menu so <laughs> I, I, I'm very like uh, refreshed on on that one but again that's also that uh, 
you know, counterculture, you know, youth reckoning with adulthood in the seventies. And what do you do? Um, do you, do you sell out? Do you retain those, you know, those values that inform that protest generation? And, um, you know, I, it's interesting theme to, to tackle. And, you know, Joan Micklin Silver was not a young director, I think even at the time that she made Hester Street. So she, um, you know, un, unheralded uh, director of, of Real Note. I know that um, I think as of now, Between the Lines is on the Criterion channel. And um, I'm not sure. I think Chili's of Winter might still be on YouTube at the time that we, you know, that this comes out. But uh, yeah, it comes and goes from from uh, various great market channels, I think. But there is a there is a Blu-ray out there also with a uh, commentary by Joan Micklin Silver and uh, yeah, no, it's, and, and it also launched a production team, uh, the, um, triple play productions, uh, that was, um, Griffin Dunn, Amy Robinson, and, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, what's his name? Um, the, uh, oh gosh, he plays Ox in this. Um, why am I blanking on his name? He's I know who you're Niedermeyer talking in Animal House. Um, yeah. Mark Metcalf. Mark Metcalf. Yeah, he was responsible for getting the money together, I think. Yes. For... Yeah, yeah. But it's um you know, that's the team that did Baby It's You with John Sales, they did Running on Empty with Sydney Lumet, they did After Hours with Scorsese. Um so I feel like there's Jeez. a story there too as far as that that I'm sure that... there is. One of us, either you or me, we need to get a hold of Griffin Dunn and just talk to him sometime. Yes. I, uh, I, I, I think he, uh, the, the kind of story, I'm sure he's been on podcasts too, but he, I, the kind of stories that he has, I bet, are remarkable. Yeah. And I, I think, you know what's, what's weird is that when I was a little kid on HBO, there was this movie called Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even. Yeah. And it's not a good movie. It's not really that good. But she directed it. Mm-hmm. And the cast is insane when you think about like I I saw this movie maybe when I was 10 or 11 or whatever you know maybe I was in a freshman in high school or something and I saw this and you know it's the cute quirky girl talking to the camera and you know running away from her family and I kind of you know I thought the I thought the girl was cute <laughs> I liked Adrian Shelley at the time even so it's just like a but you know that cast Griffin Dunn Dan Futterman Jenny Lewis, Adrian Shelley, David Strathairn, you know, <laughs> yeah. like what a cast in this kind of forgettable, quirky comedy. But I, I think if you like that cast, you know, and the fact that she directed it, I think it's worth looking at once or twice in your life. It's it's average, but it's still it's still got its merits. Yeah. It, it, and uh it, yeah lover boy not so much but yeah. I, I do like this one yeah no I, and, and uh i i was lucky enough to get to appear on an episode the projection booth that um with mike white and uh filmmaker and author daniel kramer um and that has uh new interviews that mike had done with mark metcalf amy robinson griffin dunn and the late great joan micklin silver and john hurd um so if you're already a fan of it and listen to this um check that out because that's you know no no blu-ray is going to be able to put them all together thank you so much bill for being on this what could be the longest episode of all time <laughs> I, I don't know is uh, you talked for eight hours on robert altman right yeah, or something like something seven like or eight seven hours? and a half hours at least yeah 
Yeah, but that was edited down. This won't be. (laughs) (laughs) People have seven hours of our favorite movies to to get through. Now I'm debating because uh, I think at this point, even with the uh, retrospective episodes I do with Eric and uh, Colin, I just decided, fuck it. It's a seven-hour episode or whatever and not split it into two parts. And I think I'm going to do that with this. People, you can listen to it in chunks. You can (laughs) listen to it at your leisure. You don't have to listen to the whole thing all at once. I think it's often fun to see what people's reactions are to the fact that they have a seven-hour episode in their feed. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you know. I hope, I hope people get some entertain, entertainment from this. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I it, it is uh, always weird for me to put these things out, and uh, so yeah, no, I this is fun though. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little hoarse, but uh, me too, me yeah. too. <laughs> uh, I, I need to eat. I need to drink. I need to, yeah, <laughs> do a lot of things now. But uh, I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun, and yeah. of course. If people want to check out your show, they know where to go. Nowplayingnetwork.net. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, the supporting characters can be found on there, as well as my Blue Velvet podcast from the neighborhood, if you like Blue Velvet as well. Of course, um, yeah. But yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on the show. This was fun. Great. Thanks again, Bill Ackerman, for being on the first of a two-part extravaganza anniversary special uh, featuring favorite films with Bill, which you just heard. And thanks for making it through all six hours and 45 minutes. And who knows, maybe you'll get 10 hours of content this month because Patrick and I might talk for three hours and 15 minutes in about two weeks for a special surprise episode that, uh, yeah, it's going to be quite interesting. A very different approach to uh, a normal bonus episode that I hope you will enjoy. And thank you all for listening these past 10 years it means so much and so grateful for your listenership and support and the uh, kind reviews over on itunes and elsewhere please subscribe please follow please do all the things that you can do to continue to support the show at directorsclubpodcast.com send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and uh you know what we're gonna keep this thing going and i really appreciate it uh it, it's 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 it's, un, it's unreal to me still to this day, and uh, thank you to, of course to Patrick for all of his contributions over the years, and the great Bill Ackerman for being on this episode. Uh, please follow us at Letterbox, which is linked in the show notes, along with my newly revised list of 100 favorite films. See you in a couple weeks when Patrick will return. <laughs> <laughs>